Daenerys When the battle was done, Danny rode her silver through the fields of the dead. Her handmaids and the men of her cars came after, smiling and jesting among themselves. Dothraki Hoos had torn the earth and trampled the rye and lentils into the ground, while arracks and arrows had sown a terrible new crop and watered it with blood. Dying horses lifted their heads and screamed at her as she rode past. Wounded men moaned and prayed. Jacaran moved among them, the mercy men with their heavy axes, taking a harvest of heads from the dead and dying alike. After them would scurry a flock of small girls, pulling arrows from the corpses to fill their baskets. Last of all, the dogs would come sniffing, lean and hungry, the feral pack that was never far behind the Kalasar. The sheep had been dead longest. There seemed to be thousands of them, black with flies, arrow shafts bristling from each carcass. Carl Ogre's riders had done that, Danny knew. No man of Drogo's Kalasar would be such a fool as to waste his arrows on sheep when there were shepherds yet to kill. The town was afire, black pumes of smoke roiling and tumbling as they rose into the hard blue sky. Beneath broken walls of dried mud, riders galloped back and forth, swinging their long whips as they herded the survivors from the smoking rubble. The women and children of Ogre's Kalasar walked with sullen pride, even in defeat and bondage. They were slaves now, but they seemed not to fear it. It was different with the townsfolk. Danny pitied them. She remembered what terror felt like. Mothers stumbling along with blank, dead faces, pulling sobbing children by the hand. There were only a few men among them, cripples and cowards and grandfathers. Sir Jorah said the people of this country named themselves the Lazarine, but the Dothraki called them Heishraki, the Lamb Men. Once Danny might have taken them for Dothraki, for they had the same copper skin and almond-shaped eyes. Now they looked alien to her, squat and flat-faced, their black hair cropped unnaturally short. They were herders of sheep and eaters of vegetables, and Carl Droger said they belonged south of the river bend. The grass of the Dothraki Sea was not meant for sheep. Danny saw one boy bolt and run for the river. A rider cut him off and turned him, and the others boxed him in, cracking their whips in his face, running him this way and that. One galloped behind him, lashing him across the buttocks until his thighs ran red with blood. Another snared his ankles with a lash and sent him sprawling. Finally, when the boy could only crawl, they grew bored of the sport and put an arrow through his back. Sir Jorah met her outside the shattered gate. He wore a dark green surcoat over his mail. His gauntlets, greaves, and great helm were dark grey steel. The Dothraki had mocked him for a coward when he donned his armor. But the knight had spit insults right back in their teeth. Tempers had flared. Longswords had clashed with Arak. And the rider, whose taunts had been loudest, had been left behind to bleed to death. Sir Jorah lifted the visor of his flat-topped great helm as he rode up, 
Your Lord Husband awaits you within the town. Drogo took no harm. A few cuts, Sir Jorah answered. Nothing of consequence. He slew two Carls this day, Carl Ogo first, and then the son, Fogo, who became Carl, when Ogo fell. His blood riders cut the bells from their hair, and now Carl Drogo's every step rings louder than before. Ogo and his son had shared the high bench with her lord husband at the naming feast when Viserys had been crowned, but that was in Vase Dothrak, beneath the Mother of Mountains, where every rider was a brother and all quarrels were put aside. It was different out in the grass. Ogre's Kalasar had been attacking the town when Karl Drogo caught him. She wondered what the lamb men had thought when they first saw the dust of their horses from atop those cracked mud walls. Perhaps a few, the younger and more foolish, who still believed that the guards heard the prayers of desperate men, took it for deliverance. Across the road, a girl no older than Danny was sobbing in a high, thin voice as a rider shoved her over a pile of corpses face down and thrust himself inside her. Other riders dismounted to take their turns. That was the sort of deliverance the Dothraki brought the lamb men. I am the blood of the dragon, Daenerys Targaryen reminded herself as she turned her face away. She pressed her lips together and hardened her heart and rode on toward the gate. Most of Ogre's riders fled, Sir Jorah was saying. Still, there may be as many as ten thousand captives. Slaves, Danny thought. Karl Drogo would drive them down river to one of the towns on Slaver's Bay. She wanted to cry, but she told herself she must be strong. This is war. This is what it looks like. This is the price of the Iron Throne. I've told the Carl he ought to make for Meereen, Sir Jorah said. They'll pay a better price than he'd get from a slaving caravan. Illyrio writes that they had a plague last year, so the Brussels are paying double for healthy young girls, and triple for boys under ten. If enough children survive the journey, the gold will buy us all the ships we need, and hire men to sail them. Behind them, the girl being raped made a heart-rending sound, a long, sobbing wail that went on and on and on. Danny's hand clenched hard around the reins, and she turned the silver's head. "'Make them stop,' she commanded Sir Jorah. Kalishi, the knight sounded perplexed. "'You heard my words,' she said. "'Stop them.' She spoke to her cars in the harsh accents of Dothraki. "'Jogo, Quaro, you will aid Sir Jorah. I want no rape.' The warriors exchanged a baffled look. Jorah Mormont spurred his horse closer. Princess, he said, you have a gentle heart, but you do not understand. This is how it has always been. Those men have shed blood for the Carl. Now they claim their reward. Across the road, the girl was still crying, her high sing-song tongue strange to Danny's ears. The first man was done with her now, and a second had taken his place. She is lamb girl, Quaro said in Dothraki. She is nothing, Galisi. The riders do her honor. The lamb men lay with sheep, it is known. It is known, her handmaid Iri echoed. 
It is known, agreed Jogo, astride the tall grey stallion that Drogo had given him. If her wailing offends your ears, Khaleesi, Jogo will bring you her tongue. He drew his arrack. I will not have her harmed, Danny said. I claim her. Do as I command you, or Carl Drogo will know the reason why. Aye, Khaleesi, Jogo replied, kicking his horse. Quaro and the others followed his lead, the bells in their hair chiming. Go with them, she commanded Sir Jorah. As you command, the knight gave her a curious look. You are your brother's sister, in truth. Viserys? She did not understand. No, he answered. Rhaegar, and galloped off. Danny heard Jogo shout. The rapers laughed at him. One man shouted back. Jogo's arrack flashed, and the man's head went tumbling from his shoulders. Laughter turned to curses as the horsemen reached for weapons, but by then Quaro, Ego, and Rakaro were there. She saw Ego point across the road to where she sat upon her silver. The riders looked at her with cold, black eyes. One spat. The others scattered to their mounts, muttering. All the while, the man atop the lamb girl continued to plunge in and out of her, so intent on his pleasure that he seemed unaware of what was going on around him. Sir Jorah dismounted and wrenched him off with a male hand. The Dothraki went sprawling in the mud, bounced up with a knife in hand, and died with Ego's arrow through his throat. Mormont pulled the girl off the pile of corpses and wrapped her in his blood-splattered cloak. He led her across the road to Danny. What do you want done with her? The girl was trembling, her eyes wide and vague. Her hair was matted with blood. Doria, see to her hurts. You do not have a rider's look. Perhaps she will not fear you. The rest with me. She urged the silver through the broken wooden gate. It was worse inside the town. Many of the houses were afire, and the Jacaran had been about their grisly work. Headless corpses filled the narrow, twisty lanes. They passed other women being raped. Each time, Danny reined up, sent her cars to make an end to it, and claimed the victim as slave. One of them, a thick-bodied, flat-nosed woman of forty years, blessed Danny haltingly in the common tongue. But for the other, she only got flat, black stares. They were suspicious of her, she realized with sadness, afraid that she had saved them for some worse fate. You cannot claim them all, child, Sir Jorah said, the fourth time they stopped, while the warriors of her cars herded her new slaves behind her. I am Khaleesi, heir to the Seven Kingdoms, the blood of the dragon, Danny reminded him. It is not for you to tell me what I cannot do. Across the city, a building collapsed in a great gout of fire and smoke, and she heard distant screams and the wailing of frightened children. They found Karl Drogo, seated before a square, windowless temple with thick mud walls and a bulbous dome like some immense brown onion. Beside him was a pile of heads taller than he was. One of the short arrows of the lamb men stuck through the meat of his upper arm, and blood covered the left side of his bare chest like a splash of paint. 
His three blood riders were with him. Jiqui helped Danny dismount. She had grown clumsy as her belly grew larger and heavier. She knelt before the carl. My son and stars is wounded. The arak cut was wide but shallow. His left nipple was gone, and a flap of bloody flesh and skin dangled from his chest like a wet rag. Iskratch, moon of life, from Arak of one blood rider to Karl Ogau. Karl Drogo said in the common tongue, I kill him for it, and Ogo too. He turned his head, the bells in his braid ringing softly. Is Ogo you hear? And Fogel is Kalaka, who was Karl when I slew him. No man can stand before the son of my life, Danny said, the father of the stallion who mounts the world. A mounted warrior rode up and vaulted from his saddle. He spoke to Hago, a stream of angry Dothraki too fast for Danny to understand. The huge blood rider gave her a heavy look before he turned to his cull. This one is Mago, who rides in the cars of Kojako. He says the Khaleesi has taken his spoils, a daughter of the lambs who was his to mount. Karl Droger's face was still and hard, but his black eyes were curious as they went to Danny. Tell me the truth of this moon of my life, he commanded in Dothraki. Danny told him what she had done in his own tongue so the Karl would understand her better, her words simple and direct. When she was done, Drogo was frowning. This is the way of war. These women are our slaves now, to do with as we please. It pleases me to hold them safe, Danny said, wondering if she had dared too much. If your warriors would mount these women, let them take them gently and keep them for wives. Give them places in the Kalasar, and let them bear your sons. Kotho was ever the cruelest of the blood riders. It was he who laughed. Does the horse breed with the sheep? Something in his tone reminded her of Viserys. Danny turned on him angrily. The dragon feeds on horse and sheep alike. Karl Drogo smiled. See how fierce she grows, he said. It is my son inside her, the stallion who mounts the world, filling her with his fire. Ride slowly, Kotho. If the mother does not burn you where you sit, the sun will trample you into the mud. And you, Mago, hold your tongue and find another lamb to mount. These belong to my Khaleesi. He started to reach out a hand to Daenerys, but as he lifted his arm, Drogo grimaced in sudden pain and turned his head. Danny could almost feel his agony. The wounds were worse than Sir Jorah had led her to believe. Where are the healers? she demanded. The Kalasi had two sorts, barren women and eunuch slaves. The herb women dealt in potions and spells, the eunuchs in knife, needle, and fire. Why did they not attend the Karl? The Karl sent the hairless men away, Khaleesi. Old Kahalo assured her. Danny saw the blood rider had taken a wound himself, a deep gash in his left shoulder. Many riders are hurt, Karl Drogo said stubbornly. 
Let them be healed first. This arrow is no more than the bite of a fly. This little cut is only a new scar to boast of to my son. Danny could see the muscles in his chest where the skin had been cut away. A trickle of blood ran from the arrow that pierced his arm. It is not for Karl Drogo to wait, she proclaimed. Joger, seek out these eunuchs and bring them here at once. Silver Lady, a woman's voice said behind her, I can help the great rider with his hurts. Danny turned her head. The speaker was one of the slaves she had claimed, the heavy, flat-nosed woman who had blessed her. The Carl needs no help from women who lie with sheep, barked Kotha. Ego, cut out her tongue. Ego grabbed her hair and pressed a knife to her throat. Danny lifted her hand. No, she is mine. Let her speak. Ego looked from her to Kotho. He lowered his knife. I mean no wrong, fierce raiders. The woman spoke Dothraki well. The robe she wore had once been the lightest and finest of woolens, rich with embroidery, but now they were mud-caked and bloody and ripped. She clutched the torn cloth of her bodice to her heavy breasts. I have some small skill in the healing arts. Who are you? Danny asked her. I am named Miri Mazdur. I am God's wife of this temple. Meiji, grunted Hago. Fingering his arrack, his look was dark. Danny remembered the word from a terrifying story that Jiqui had told her one night by the cook fire. A meiji was a woman who lay with demons and practiced the blackest of sorceries, a vile thing, evil and soulless, who came to men in the dark of night and sucked life and strength from their bodies. I am healer, Miri Mazdur said. A healer of sheeps, sneered Kotha. Blood of my blood, I say, kill this Meiji, and wait for the hairless men. Danny ignored the blood rider's outburst. This old, homely, thick-bodied woman did not look like a Meiji to her. Where did you learn your healing, Miramaz Dur? My mother was God's wife before me, and taught me all the songs and spells most pleasing to the great shepherd and how to make the sacred smokes and ointments from leaf and root and berry. When I was younger and more fair, I went in caravan to Ashai by the shadow, to learn from their mages. Ships from many lands come to Ashai, so I lingered long to study the healing ways of distant peoples. A moon singer of the Jogos Nai gifted me with her birthing songs. A woman of your own riding people taught me the magics of grass and corn and horse, and a maester from the sunset lands opened a body for me and showed me all the secrets that hide beneath the skin. Sir Jorah Mormon spoke up. A maester? Marwin, he named himself, the woman replied in the common tongue. From the sea beyond the sea, the seven lands, he said, sunset lands, where men are iron and dragons rule. He taught me the speech. A maester in a shy, Sir Joram used. Tell me, God's wife, what this Marwin wear about his neck? 
a chain so tight it was like to choke him, Iron Lord, with links of many metals. The knight looked at Danny. Only man, chain in the citadel of Old Town, wears such a chain, he said. And uh, such men do know much of healing. Why should you want to help my Carl? All men are one flock, or so we are taught, replied Miramar's duel. The great shepherd sent me to earth to heal his lambs, wherever I might find them. Kotho gave her a stinging slap. We are no sheep, Meiji. Stop it, Danny said angrily. She is mine. I will not have her harmed. Karl Drogo grunted. The arrow must come out, Kotho. Uh, yes, great rider, Miramar's door answered, touching her bruised face. And your breast must be washed and sewn, lest the wound festers. Do it then, Karl Drogo commanded. Great rider, the woman said, my tools and potions are inside the god's house, where the healing powers are strongest. I will carry you, blood of my blood, Hago offered. Karl Drogo waved him away. I need no man's help, he said in a voice proud and hard. He stood unaided, towering over them all. A fresh wave of blood ran down his breast, from where Ogre's arrack had cut off his nipple. Danny moved quickly to his side. I am no man, she whispered. So you may lean on me. Drogo put a huge hand on her shoulder. She took some of his weight as they walked towards the great mud temple. The three blood riders followed. Danny commanded Sajara and the warriors of her cars to guard the entrance and make certain no one set the building afire while they were still inside. They passed through a series of anterooms into the high central chamber under the onion. Faint light shone through the hidden windows above. A few torches burnt smokily from sconces on the walls. Sheepskins were scattered across the mud floor. There, Miramar's door said, pointing to the altar, a massive blue-veined stone carved with images of shepherds and their flocks. Karl Drogo lay upon it. The old woman threw a handful of dried leaves onto a brazier, filling the chamber with fragrant smoke. Best if you wait outside, she told the rest of them. We are blood of his blood, Kahalo said. Here we wait. Kotho stepped close to Mira Ma's door. Know this, wife of the Lamb God. Harm the Karl, and you suffer the same. He drew his skinning knife and showed her the blade. She will do no harm. Denny felt she could trust this old, plain-faced woman with her flat nose. She had saved her from the hard hands of the rapers, after all. If you must stay, then help, Mira told the blood riders. The great rider is too strong for me. Hold him still while I draw the arrow from his flesh. She let the rags of her gown fall to her waist as she opened a carved chest and busied herself with bottles and boxes, knives and needles. When she was ready, she broke off the barbed arrowhead and pulled out the shaft, chanting in the sing-song tongue of the Lazarine. She heeded 
a flagon of wine to boiling on the brazier, and poured it over his wounds. Kalt Drogo cursed her, but he did not move. She bound the arrow wound with a plaster of wet leaves and turned to the gash on his breast, smearing it with a pale green paste before she pulled the flap of the skin back in place. The Karl ground his teeth together and swallowed a scream. The guard's wife took out a silver needle and a bobbin of silk thread and began to close the flesh. When she was done, she painted the skin with red ointment, covered it with more leaves, and bound the breast in a ragged piece of lambskin. You must say the prayers I give you, and keep the lambskin in place for ten days and ten nights, she said. There will be fever and itching, and a great scar when the healing is done. Carl Drogo sat, bells ringing. I sing of my scars, sheep woman, he flexed his arm and skull. Drink neither wine nor the milk of the puppy, she cautioned him. Pain you will have, but you must keep your body strong to fight the poison spirits. I am Carl, Drogo said. I spit on pain and drink what I like. Kohala, bring my vest. The older man hastened off. Before, Danny said to the ugly Lazarine woman, I heard you speak of birthing songs. I know every secret of the bloody bed, Silver Lady, nor have I ever lost a babe, Miramar's door replied. My time is near, Danny said. I would have you attend me when he comes, if you would. Carl Drogo laughed. Moon of my life, you do not ask a slave. You tell her. She will do as you command. He jumped down from the altar. Come, my blood, the stallions call. This place is ashes. It is time to ride. Hagar followed the carl from the temple, but Kotho lingered long enough to favor Miramar's door with a stare. Remember, Meiji, as the carl fares, so shall you. As you say, Ryder, the woman answered him, gathering up her jars and bottles. The great shepherd guards the flock. Tyrion On a hill overlooking the King's Road, a long trestle table of rough-hewn pine had been erected beneath an elm tree and covered with a golden cloth. There, beside his pavilion, Lord Tywin took his evening meal with his chief knights and lord's bannermen, his great crimson and gold standard waving overhead from a lofty pike. Tyrion arrived late, saddle-sore and sour, all too vividly aware of how amusing he must look as he waddled up the slope to his father. The day's march had been long and tiring. He thought he might get quite drunk tonight. It was twilight, and the air was alive with drifting fireflies. The cooks were serving the meat course, five suckling pigs, skin-seared and crackling, a different fruit in every mouth. The smell made his mouth water. My pardons, he began, taking his place on the bench beside his uncle. Perhaps I had best charge you with burying our dead, Tyrion, Lord Tymonson. If you are as late to battle as you are to table, 
The fighting will all be done by the time you arrive. Oh, surely you can save me a peasant or two, father, Tyrion replied. Uh, not too many. I wouldn't want to be greedy. He filled his wine cup and watched a serving man carve into the pig. The crisp skin crackled under his knife, and hot juice ran from the meat. It was the loveliest sight Tyrion had seen in ages. Sir Adam's outriders say the Stark host has moved south from the twins, his father reported, as his trencher was filled with slices of pork. Lord Frey's levies have joined them. They are likely no more than a day's march north of us. Oh, please, father, Tyrion said, I'm about to eat. Does the thought of facing the Stark boy unman you, Tyrion? Your brother Jamie would be eager to come to grips with him. I'd sooner come to grips with that pig. Rob Stark is not half so tender, and he never smelt as good. Lord Leffard, the sour bird who had charge of their stores and supplies, leaned forward. I hope your savages do not share your reluctance, else we've wasted our good steel on them. My savages will put your steel to excellent use, my lord, Tyrion replied. When he had told Leffard he needed arms and armour to equip the three hundred men Ulf had fetched down out of the foothills, you would have thought he'd asked the man to turn his virgin daughters over to their pleasure. Lord Leffard frowned. I saw that great hairy one today, the one who insisted that he must have two battle-axes, the heavy black steel ones with twin crescent blades. Shagger likes to kill with either hand, Tyrion said, as a trencher of steaming pork was laid in front of him. He still had that wood axe of his strapped to his back. Shagger is of the opinion that three axes are even better than two. Tyrion reached the thumb and forefinger into the salt dish and sprinkled a hefty pinch over his meat. Sir Kevin leaned forward. We had a thought to put you and your wildlings in the vanguard when we come to battle. Sir Kevin seldom had a thought that Lord Tywin had not had first. Tyrion had skewered a chunk of meat on the point of his dagger and brought it to his mouth. Now he lowered it. The vanguard, he repeated dubiously. Either his lord father had a new respect for Tyrion's abilities, or he decided to rid himself of his embarrassing get for good. Tyrion had the gloomy feeling he knew which. They seem ferocious enough, Sir Kevin said. Ferocious! Tyrion realized he was echoing his uncle like a trained bird. His father watched, judging him, weighing every word. Let me tell you how ferocious they are. Last night, a moon brother stabbed a stone crow over a sausage. So today, as we made camp, three stone crows seized the man and opened his throat for him. Perhaps they were hoping to get the sausage back, I couldn't say. Bronn managed to keep Shaga from chopping off the dead man's cock, which was fortunate, uh, but even so, Ulf is demanding blood money, which Con and Shaga refuse to pay. When soldiers lack discipline, the fault lies with the Lord Commander, his father said. His brother Jamie had always been able to make men follow him eagerly, 
and die for him if need be. Tyrion lacked that gift. He bought loyalty with gold, and compelled obedience with his name. A bigger man would be able to put fear in them. Is that what you're saying, my lord? Lord Tywin Lannister turned to his brother. If my son's men will not obey his commands, perhaps the vanguard is not the place for him. No doubt he would be more comfortable in the rear, guarding our baggage train. Do me no kindnesses, father, he said angrily. If you have no other command to offer me, I'll lead your van. Lord Tywin studied his dwarf son. I said nothing about command. You will serve under Sir Gregor. Tyrion took one bite of pork, chewed a moment, and spit it out angrily. I find I am not hungry after all, he said, climbing awkwardly off the bench. Pray excuse me, my lords. Lord Tywin inclined his head, dismissing him. Tyrion turned and walked away. He was conscious of their eyes on his back as he waddled down the hill. A great gust of laughter went up from behind him, but he did not look back. He hoped they all choked on their suckling pigs. Dusk had settled, turning all the banners black. The Lannister camp sprawled for miles between the river and the King's Road. In amongst the men and the horses and the trees, it was easy to get lost, and Tyrion did. He passed a dozen great pavilions and a hundred cook fires. Fireflies drifted amongst the tents like wandering stars. He caught the scent of garlic sausage, spiced and savoury, so tempting it made his empty stomach growl. Away in the distance he heard voices raised in some bawdy song. A giggling woman raced past him, naked beneath a dark cloak, her drunken pursuer stumbling over tree roots. Farther on, two spearmen faced each other across a little trickle of a stream, practicing their thrust and parry in the fading light, their chests bare and slick with sweat. No one looked at him. No one spoke to him. No one paid him any mind. He was surrounded by men sworn to House Lannister, a vast host, twenty thousand strong. And yet, he was alone. When he heard the deep rumble of Shagger's laughter booming through the dark, he followed it to the stone crows in their small corner of the night. Con, son of Carad, waved a tankard of ale. Tyrion Hoffman! Come, sit by our fire, share meat with the stone crows. We have an ox. I can see that, come, son of Karat. The huge red carcass was suspended over a roaring fire, skewered on a spit the size of a small tree. No doubt it was a small tree. Blood and grease dripped down into the flames as two stone crows turned the meat. I thank you. Send for me when the ox is cooked. From the look of it, that might even be before the battle. He walked on. Each clan had its own cook fire. Black ears did not eat with stone crows, stone crows did not eat with moon brothers, and no one ate with burn men. The modest tent he had coaxed out of Lord Lifford's stores had been erected in the centre of the four fires. Tyrion found Bronn sharing a skin of wine with the new servants. 
Lord Tywin had sent him a groom and a body servant to see to his needs, and even insisted he take a squire. They were seated around the embers of a small cook-fire. A girl was with them, slim, dark-haired, no more than eighteen by the look of her. Tyrion studied her face for a moment, before he spied fish-bones in the ashes. "'What did you eat?' "'Trout, my lord,' said his groom. "'Brun caught them.' "'Trout,' he thought. "'Suckling pig, damn my father.' He stared mournfully at the bones, his belly rumbling. His squire, a boy with the unfortunate name of Podrick Payne, swallowed whatever he'd been about to say. The lad was a distant cousin to Sir Ilian Payne, the king's headsman, and almost as quiet, although not for want of a tongue. Tyrion had made him stick it out once, just to be certain. Definitely a tongue, he had said. Some day you must learn to use it. At the moment he did not have the patience to try and coax a thought out of the lad, whom he suspected had been inflicted on him as a cruel jape. Tyrion turned his attention back to the girl. Is this her? he asked Bronn. She rose gracefully and looked down at him from the lofty height of five feet or more. It is, my lord, and she can speak for herself, if it please you. He cocked his head to one side. I am Tyrion, of House Lannister. Men call me the Imp. My mother named me Shay. Men call me often. Bronn laughed, and Tyrion had to smile. Into the tenshay, if you'll be so kind. He lifted the flap and held it for her. Inside, he knelt to light a candle. The life of a soldier was not without certain compensations. Whenever you have a camp, you are certain to have camp followers. At the end of a day's march, Tyrion had sent Bronn back to find him a likely whore. I would prefer one who is reasonably young, with as pretty a face as you can find, he had said. If she has washed sometime this year, I shall be glad if she hasn't wash her. Be certain that you tell her who I am, and warn her of what I am. Jig had not always troubled to do that. There was a look the girls got in their eyes sometimes when they first beheld the lordling they had been hired to pleasure. A look that Tyrion Lannister did not ever care to see again. He lifted the candle and looked her over. Bronn had done well enough. She was doe-eyed and slim, with small, firm breasts, and a smile that was by turns shy, insolent, and wicked. He liked that. "'Shall I take my gown off, my lord?' she asked. In, "'In good time. Are you a maiden, Shay?' "'If it please you, my lord,' she answered demurely. "'What would please me would be the truth of you, girl.' "'Aye, but that will cost you double.' Tyrion decided they would get along splendidly. I am a Lannister, gold I have in plenty, and you'll find me generous, but I want more from you than what you've got between your legs, though I want that too. You'll share my tent, pour my wine, laugh at my jests, rub the ache for my legs after each day's ride, and whether I keep you a day or a year, for so long as we are together, you will take no other man into your bed. Fair enough. She reached down to the hem of her thin, rough-spun gown 
and pulled it up over her head in one smooth motion, tossing it aside. There was nothing underneath but Shay. If he don't put down that candle, my lord will burn his fingers. Tyrion put down the candle, took a hand in his, and pulled her gently to him. She bent to kiss him. Her mouth tasted of honey and cloves, and her fingers were deft and practised as they found the fastening of his clothes. When he entered her, she welcomed him with whispered endearments and small, shuddering gasps of pleasure. Tyrion suspected her delight was feigned, but she did it so well that it did not matter. That much truth he did not crave. He had needed her, Tyrion realized afterwards, as she lay quietly in his arms. Her, or someone like her. It had been nigh on a year since he had lain with a woman, since before he had set out for Winterfell in company with his brother and King Robert. He could well die on the morrow or the day after, and if he did, he would sooner go to his grave thinking of Shay than of his lord father, Lysa Aaron, or Lady Catelyn Stark. He could feel the softness of her breasts pressed against his arm as she lay beside him. That was a good feeling. A song filled his head. Softly, quietly, he began to whistle. What's that, my lord? She murmured against him. Oh, nothing, he told her. A song I learned as a boy, that's all. Go to sleep, sweetling. When her eyes were closed and her breathing deep and steady, Tyrion slid out from beneath her, gently, so as not to disturb her sleep. Naked, he crawled outside, stepped over his squire, and walked around behind his tent to make water. Bronn was seated cross-legged under a chestnut tree, near where they tied the horses. He was honing the edge of his sword, wide awake. The sword did not seem to sleep like other men. "'Where did you find her?' Tyrion asked him as he pissed. "'I took her for him a night. The man was loath to give her up. But your name changed his thinking somewhat. That, and my dirk at his throat.' "'Oh, splendid,' Tyrion said dryly, shaking off the last drops. "'I seem to recall saying, find me a whore, not make me an enemy.' "'The pretty ones were all claimed,' Bronn said. "'I'll be pleased to take her back if you prefer a toothless drab.' Tyrion limped closer to where he sat. "'My lord father would call that insolence, and send you to the mines for impertinence.' Well, good for me, you're not your father, Bronn replied. I saw one with boils all over her nose. Would you like her? What, and break your heart? Tyrion shot back. I shall keep Shay. Did you perchance note the name of this knight you took her from? I'd rather not have him beside me in the battle. Bronn rose, cat quick and cat graceful, turning a sword in his hand. You'll have me beside you in the battle, dwarf. Tyrion nodded. The night air was warm on his bare skin. See that I survive this battle, and you can name your reward. Bronn tossed the longsword from his right hand to his left and tried a cut. Who'd want to kill the likes of you? My lord father, for one. He's put me in the van. I'd do the same. A small man with a big shield, <laughs> you'll give the archers fits. 
"'I find you oddly cheering,' Tyrion said. "'I must be mad.' Bronn sheathed his sword. "'Beyond a doubt.' When Tyrion returned to his tent, Shay rolled onto her elbow and murmured sleepily, "'I woke, and my lord was gone.' "'My lord is back now,' he slid in beside her. Her hand went between his stunted legs and found him hard. "'Yes, he is,' she whispered, stroking him. He asked her about the man Bronn had taken her from, and she named the minor retainer of an insignificant lordling. "'You need not fear his light, my lord,' the girl said, her fingers busy at his cock. "'He is a small man.' "'And what am I, pray?' Tyrion asked her. "'A giant?' "'Oh, yes,' she purred. "'My giant of Lannister.' She mounted him then, and for a time she almost made him believe it. Tyrion went to sleep, smiling, and woke in the darkness to a blare of trumpets. Shay was shaking him by the shoulder. "'My lord,' she whispered. "'Wake up, my lord. I'm frightened.' Groggy, he sat up and threw back the blankets. The horns called through the night, wild and urgent, a cry that said, Hurry, hurry, hurry! He heard shouts, the clatter of spears, the wicker of horses, though nothing yet that spoke to him of fighting. My lord father's trumpets, he said, battle assembly! I thought Stark was yet a day's march away. Shay shook her head, lost. Her eyes were wide and white. Groaning, Tyrion lurched to his feet, and pushed his way outside, shouting for his squire. Wisps of pale fog drifted through the night, long white fingers off the river. Men and horses blundered through the pre-dawn chill. Saddles were being cinched, wagons loaded, fires extinguished. The trumpets blew again. Hurry! 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 Knights vaulted onto snorting courses, while men-at-arms buckled their sword belts as they ran. When he found Pod, the boy was snoring softly. Tyrion gave him a sharp poke in the ribs with his toe. "'My armor,' he said, "'and be quick about it!' Bronn came trotting out of the mists, already armored on a horse, wearing his battered half-helm. "'Do you know what's happened?' Tyrion asked him. "'The start boy stole a march on us,' Bronn said. "'He crept down the King's Road in the night, "'and now his host is less than a mile north of here.' forming up in battle array. Hurry, the trumpets called. Hurry, hurry, hurry. See that the clansmen are ready to ride. Tyrion ducked back inside his tent. Where are my clothes? He barked at Shay. There, no, the leather, damn it. Yes, bring me my boots. By the time he was dressed, his squire had laid out his armor, such as it was. Tyrion owned a fine suit of heavy plate, expertly crafted to fit his misshapen body. Alas, it was safe at Castle Rock, and he was not. He had to make do with oddments assembled from Lord Lefford's wagons, male hauberk and coif, a dead knight's courgette, lobster's greaves and gauntlets, and pointed steel boots. Some of it was ornate, some plain, not a bit of it matched or fit as it should. His breastplate was meant for a bigger man. For his oversized head, they found a huge, bucket-shaped great helm, topped with a foot-long triangular spike. Shea helped Pud with the buckles and clasps. If I die, weep for me, 
Tyrion told the whore. How will you know? You'll be dead. I'll know. I believe you would. Shay lowered the great helm down over his head, and Pod fastened it to his gorget. Tyrion buckled on his belt, heavy with the weight of a short sword and dirk. By then his groom had brought up his mount, a formidable brown courser, armoured as heavily as he was. He needed help to mount. He felt as though he weighed a thousand stone. Pod handed him up his shield, a massive slab of heavy ironwood banded with steel. Lastly, they gave him his battle-axe. Shay stepped back and looked him over. My lord looks fearsome. My lord looks a dwarf in mismatched armour, Tyrion answered sorry. But I thank you for your kindness. Podrick, should the battle go against us, see the lady safely home. He saluted her with his axe, wheeled his horse about, and trotted off. His stomach was a hard knot, so tight it pained him. Behind his servants hurriedly began to strike his tent. Pale crimson fingers fanned out to the east as the first rays of the sun broke over the horizon. The western sky was a deep purple speckled with stars. Tyrion wondered whether this was the last sunrise he would ever see, and whether wandering was a mark of cowardice. Did his brother Jamie ever contemplate death before a battle? A war-horn sounded in the far distance, a deep, mournful note that chilled the soul. The clansmen climbed onto their scrawny mountain horses, shouting curses and rude jokes. Several appeared to be drunk. The rising sun was burning off the drifting tendrils of fog as Tyrion led them off. What grass the horses had left was heavy with dew, as if some passing guard had scattered a bag of diamonds over the earth. The mountain men fell in behind him, each clan arrayed behind its own leaders. In the dawn light, the army of Lord Tywin Lannister unfolded like an iron rose, thorns gleaming. His uncle would lead the center. Sir Kevin had raised the standards above the king's road. Quivers hanging from their belts, the foot-archers arrayed themselves into three long lions to east and west of the road, and stood calmly stringing their bows. Between them, pikemen formed squares. Behind were rank on rank of men-at-arms with spear and sword and axe. Three hundred heavy horse surrounded Sir Kevin, and the lord's bannermen, Lefford, Lydon, and Serret, with all their sworn retainers. The right wing was all cavalry, some four thousand men, heavy with the weight of their armour. More than three-quarters of the knights were there, massed together like a great steel fist. Sir Adam Marbrand had the command. Tyrion saw his banner unfurl as his standard-bearer shook it out, a burning tree, orange and smoke. Behind him flew Sir Flemeth's purple unicorn, the brindled boar of Craighall, the bantam rooster of Swift, and more. His lord father took his place on the hill, where he had slept. Around him the reserve assembled, a huge force, half-mounted and half-foot, five thousand strong. Lord Tywin almost always chose to command the reserve. He would take the high ground, 
and watch the battle unfold below him, committing his forces when and where they were needed most. Even from afar, his Lord Father was resplendent. Tywin Lannister's battle armor put his son Jaime's gilded suit to shame. His great cloak was sewn with countless layers of cloth of gold, so heavy that it barely stirred even when he charged, so large that its drape covered most of his stallion's hindquarters when he took the saddle. No ordinary class would suffice for such a weight, so the great cloak was held in place by a matched pair of miniature lionesses crouching on his shoulders as if poised to spring. Their mate, a male with a magnificent mane, reclined atop Lord Tywin's great helm, one paw raking the air as he roared. All three lions were wrought in gold, with ruby eyes. His armor was heavy steel plate, enameled in a dark crimson. Greaves and gauntlets inlaid with ornate gold scrollwork. His rondels were golden sunbursts, all his fastenings were gilded, and the red steel was burnished to such a high sheen that it shone like fire in the light of the rising sun. Tyrion could hear the rumble of the foeman's drums now. He remembered Rob Stark, as he had last seen him, in his father's high seat in the great hall of Winterfell, a sword naked and shining in his hands. He remembered how the direwolves had come at him out of the shadows, and suddenly he could see them again, snarling and snapping, teeth bared in his face. Would the boy bring his wolves to war with him? The thought made him uneasy. The Northerners would be exhausted after their long, sleepless march. Tyrion wondered what the boy had been thinking. Did he think to take them unawares while they slept? Small chance of that. Whatever else might be said of him, Tywin Lannister was no man's fool. The van was massing on the left. He saw the standard first, three black dogs on a yellow field. Sir Gregor sat beneath it, mounted on the biggest horse Tyrion had ever seen. Bronn took one look at him and grinned. Always follow a big man into battle. Tyrion threw him a hard look. And why is that? He makes such splendid targets. That one? He'll draw the eyes of every bowman on the field. Laughing, Tyrion regarded the mountain with fresh eyes. I confess I had not considered it in that light. Clegane had no splendor about him. His armor was steel plate, dull gray, scarred by hard use, and showing neither sigil nor ornament. He was pointing men into position with his blade, a two-handed greatsword that Sir Gregor waved about with one hand as a lesser man might wave a dagger. Any man wants, I'll cut him down myself, he was roaring when he caught sight of Tyrion. Imp, take the left, all the river, if you can. The left of the left. To turn their flank, the Starks would need horses that could run on water. Tyrion led his men toward the river bank. Look, he shouted, pointing his axe, the river! A blanket of pale mist still clung to the surface of the water. The murky green current swirled past underneath. The shadows were muddy and choked with reeds. That river is ours. Whatever happens, keep close to the water. Never lose sight of it. 
Let no enemy come between us and our river. If they dirty our waters, hack off their cocks and feed them to the fishes. Shagger had an axe in either hand. He smashed them together and made them ring. Half man! he shouted. Other stone crows picked up the cry, and the black ears, and moon brothers as well. The burned men did not shout, but they rattled their swords and spears. Half man! Half man! Half man! Tyrion turned his corsair in a circle to look over the field. The ground was rolling and uneven here, soft and muddy near the river, rising in a gentle slope toward the king's road, stony and broken beyond it to the east. A few trees spotted the hillsides, but most of the land had been cleared and planted. His heart pounded in his chest in time to the drums, and under his layers of leather and steel his brow was cold with sweat. He watched Sir Gregor as the mountain rode up and down the line, shouting and gesticulating. This wing was all cavalry, but where the right was, a mail fist of knights and heavy lancers, the vanguard was made up of the sweepings of the west. Mounted archers in leather jerkins, a swarming mass of undisciplined free riders and cell swords. Field hands on plough horses, armed with scythes and their father's rusted swords. Half-trained boys from the stews of Lannisport. And Tyrion and his mountain clansmen. Crow food! Brun muttered beside him, giving voice to what Tyrion had left unsaid. He could only nod. Had his lord father taken leave of his senses? No pikes? Too few bowmen? A bare handful of knights? The ill-armed and unarmoured, commanded by an unthinking brute who led with his rage? How could his father expect this travesty of a battle to hold his left? He had no time to think about it. The drums were so near that the beat crept under his skin and set his hands to twitching. Brun drew his longsword, and suddenly the enemy was there before them, boiling over the tops of the hills, advancing with measured tread behind a wall of shields and pikes. Gods be damned, look at them all, Tyrion thought, though he knew his father had more men on the field. Their captains led them, on armoured war-horses, standard-bearers riding alongside with their banners. He glimpsed the bull moose of the Hornwoods, the Karstark sunburst, Lord Serwin's battle-axe, and the male fist of the Glovers, and the twin towers of Frey, blue and grey. So much for his father's certainty that Lord Walder would not bestir himself. The white of House Stark was seen everywhere, the grey direwolf seemed to run and leap as the banner swirled and streamed from the high staffs. Where is a boy? Tyrion wondered. A warhorn blew. Haru! It cried, its voice as long and low and chilling as a cold wind from the north. The Lannisters' trumpets answered. Brazen and defiant. Yet it seemed to Tyrion that they sounded somehow smaller, more anxious. He could feel a fluttering in his bowels, a queasy, liquid feeling. He hoped he was not going to die sick. As the horns died away, a hissing filled the air. A vast flight of arrows 
arched up from his right, where the archers stood flanking the road. The Nordners broke into a run, shouting as they came, but the Lannisters' arrows fell on them like hail, hundreds of arrows, thousands, and shouts turned to screams as men stumbled and went down. By then a second flight was in the air, and the archers were fitting a third arrow to their bowstrings. The trumpets blared again. Sir Gregor waved his huge sword and bellowed a command, and a thousand other voices screamed back at him. Tyrion put his spurs to his horse and added one more voice to the cacophony, and the van surged forward. The river! he shouted at his clansmen as they rode. Remember! Hew to the river! He was still leading when they broke a canter until Chella gave a blood-curling shriek and galloped past him, and Shaga howled and followed. The clansmen charged after them, leaving Tyrion in their dust. A crescent of enemy spearmen had formed ahead, a double hedgehog bristling with steel, waiting behind tall oaken shields marked with the sunburst of Karstark. Gregor Clegane was the first to reach them, leading a wedge of armoured veterans. Half the horses shied at the last second, breaking their charge before the rows of spears. The others died, sharp steel points ripping through their chests. Tyrion saw a dozen men go down. The mountain stallion reared, lashing out with iron-shod hoofs as a barbed spearhead raked across his neck. Maddened, the beast lunged into the ranks. Spears thrust at him from every side, but the shield wall broke beneath his weight. The northerner stumbled away from the animal's death throes. As his horse fell, snorting blood and biting with his last red breath, the mountain rose untouched, laying about him with his two-handed greatsword. Shagger went bursting through the gap before the shields could close, other stone crows hard behind him. Tyrion shouted, "'Burn, men! Moon brothers! After me!' But most of them were ahead of him. He glimpsed Timit, son of Timit, vault free, as his mount died under him in full stride. Saw a moon brother impaled on a Karstark spear. Watched Khan's horse shatter a man's ribs with a kick. A flight of arrows descended on them. Where they came from, he could not say, but they fell on Stark and Lannister alike, rattling off armor or finding flesh. Tyrion lifted his shield and hid beneath it. The hedgehog was crumbling, the northerners reeling back under the impact of the mounted assault. Tyrion saw Shagger catch a spearman full in the chest as the fool came on at a run, saw his axe shear through the mail and leather and muscle and lungs. The man was dead on his feet. The axe head lodged in his breast. Yet Shagger rode on, cleaving a shield in two with his left-handed battle-axe, while the corpse was bouncing and stumbling bonelessly along on his right. Finally, the dead man slid off. Shagger smashed the two axes together and roared. By then the enemy was on him, and Tyrion's battle shrunk to the few feet of ground around his horse. A man-at-arms thrust at his chest, and his axe lashed out, knocking the spear aside. The man danced back for another try, 
but Tyrion spurred his horse and rode right over him. Bronn was surrounded by three foes, but he lopped the head off the first spear that came at him and raked his blade across the second man's face on his backslash. A thrown spear came hurtling at Tyrion from the left and lodged in his shield with a woody clunk. He wheeled and raced after the thrower, but the man raised his own shield over his head. Tyrion circled around him, raining axe blows down on the wood. Chips of oak went flying until the northerner lost his feet and slipped, falling flat on his back with his shield on top of him. He was below the reach of Tyrion's axe, and it was too much bother to dismount. So he left him there and rode after another man, taking him from behind with a sweeping downcut that sent a jolt of impact up his arm. That won him a moment's respite. Reining up, he looked for the river. There it was, off to the right. Somehow he had gotten turned around. A burned man rode past, slumped against his horse. A spear had entered his belly and come out through his back. He was past any help, but when Tyrion saw one of the northerners run up and make a grab for his reins, he charged. His quarry met him sword in hand. He was tall and spare, wearing a long chainmail hauberk and gauntlets of lobstered steel. But he'd lost his helm, and blood ran down into his eyes from a gash across his forehead. Tyrion aimed a swipe at his face, but the tall man slammed it aside. Dwarf! he screamed. Die! He turned in a circle as Tyrion rode around him, hacking at his head and shoulders. Steel rang on steel, and Tyrion soon realized that the tall man was quicker and stronger than he was. Where in the seven hells was Bronn? Die! the man grunted, chopping at him savagely. Tyrion barely got his shield up in time, and the wood seemed to explode inward under the force of the blow. The shattered pieces fell away from his arm. Die! the swordsman bellowed, shoving in close and wanging Tyrion across the temple so hard his head rang. The blade made a hideous scraping sound as he drew it back over the steel. The tall man grinned, until Tyrion's destrier bit, quick as a snake, laying his cheek bare to the bone. Then he screamed. Tyrion buried his axe into his head. You die, he told him, and he did. As he wrenched the blade free, he heard a shout, Eddard! A voice rang out, For Eddard and Winterfell! The knight came thundering down on him, swinging the spiked ball of a morning star around his head. Their war horses slammed together before Tyrion could so much as open his mouth to shout for Bronn. His right elbow exploded with pain as the spikes punched through the thin metal around the joint. His axe was gone, as fast as that. He clawed for his sword, but the morning star was circling again, coming at his face. A sickening crunch, and he was falling. He did not recall hitting the ground, but when he looked up, there was only sky above him. He rolled onto his side and tried to find his feet, but pain shuddered through him, and the world throbbed. The knight who had felled him drew up above him. Tyrion the imp, he boomed down, you're mine. Do ye yield, Lannister? 
Yes, Tyrion thought, but the word caught in his throat. He made a croaking sound and fought his way to his knees, fumbling for a weapon. His sword, his dirk, anything. Do ye yield? The knight loomed overhead on his armoured warhorse. Man and horse both seemed immense. The spike bore swung in a lazy circle. Tyrion's hands were numb, his vision blurred, his scabbard empty. Yield or die, the knight declared, his flail whirling faster and faster. Tyrion lurched to his feet, driving his head into the horse's belly. The animal gave a hideous scream and reared. It tried to twist away from the agony. A shower of blood and viscera poured down over Tyrion's face, and the horse fell like an avalanche. The next thing he knew, his visor was packed with mud, and something was crushing his foot. He wriggled free, his throat so tight he could scarcely talk. Yield! He managed to croak faintly. Yes, a voice moaned, thick with pain. Tyrion scraped the mud off his helm so he could see again. The horse had fallen away from him onto its rider. The knight's leg was trapped. The arm he'd used to break his fall twisted at a grotesque angle. Yield, he repeated. Fumbling at his belt with his good hand, he drew a sword and flung it at Tyrion's feet. I yield, my lord. Dazed, the dwarf knelt and lifted the blade. Pain hammered through his elbow when he moved his arm. The battle seemed to move beyond him. No one remained on his part of the field, save a large number of corpses. Ravens were already circling and landing to feed. He saw that Sir Kevin had brought up his centre in support of the van. His huge mass of pikemen had pushed the northerners back against the hills. They were struggling on the slopes, pikes thrusting against another wall of shields, these oval and reinforced with iron studs. As he watched the air filled with arrows again, and the man behind the oak wall crumbled beneath the murderous fire. I believe you are losing, sir, he told the knight under the horse. The man made no reply. The sound of hoofs coming up behind him made him whirl, although he could scarcely lift the sword he held for the agony in his elbow. Brun reined up and looked down on him. Small use you turned out to be, Tyrion told him. It would seem you did well enough on your own, Bronn answered. You've lost a spike of your helm, though. Tyrion groped at the top of the great helm. The spike had snapped off clean. I haven't lost it. I know just where it is. Did you see my horse? By the time they found it, the trumpets had sounded again, and Lord Tywin's reserve came sweeping along the river. Tyrion watched his father fly past the crimson and gold banner of Lannister rippling over his head as he thundered across the field. Five hundred knights surrounded him, sunlight flashing off the points of their lances. The remnants of the stark lions shattered like glass beneath the hammer of their charge. With his elbow swollen and throbbing inside his armor, Tyrion made no attempt to join the slaughter. He and Bronn went looking for his men. Many he found among the dead. Ulf, 
son of Uma, lay in a pool of congealing blood, his arm gone at the elbow. A dozen of his moon brothers sprawled around him. Shagger was slumped beneath a tree, riddled with arrows. Khan's head in his lap. Tyrion thought they were both dead, but as he dismounted, Shagger opened his eyes and said, They have killed Khan, son of Karat. Handsome Khan had no mark but for the red stain over his breast, where the spear thrust had killed him. When Brun pulled Shagger to his feet, the big man seemed to notice the arrows for the first time. He plucked them out, one by one, cursing the holes they had made in his layers of mail and leather, and yowling like a babe at the few that had buried themselves in his flesh. Chella, daughter of Chaik, rode up as they were yanking arrows out of Shagger, and showed them four ears she had taken. Timot, they discovered, looting the bodies of the slain with his burned men. Of the three hundred clansmen who had ridden to battle behind Tyrion Lannister, perhaps half had survived. He left the living to look after the dead, sent Bronn to take charge of his captive knight, and went alone in search of his father. Lord Tywin was seated by the river, sipping wine from a jeweled cup as his squire undid the fastenings on his breastplate. "'A fine victory,' Sir Kevin said, when he saw Tyrion. "'Your wild men fought well.' His father's eyes were on him, pale green flecked with gold. So cool they gave Tyrion a chill. "'Did that surprise you, father?' he asked. "'Did it upset your plans? We were supposed to be butchered, were we not?' Lord Tywin drained his cup, his face expressionless. I put the least disciplined men on the left, yes. I anticipated they would break. Rob Stark is a green boy, more like to be brave than wise. I hoped that if he saw our left collapse, he might plunge into the gap, eager for a rout. Once he was fully committed, Sir Kevin's pikes would wheel and take him in the flank. "'driving him into the river while I brought up the reserve. "'And you thought it best to place me in the midst of this carnage, "'yet keep me ignorant of your plans. "'A fine route is less convincing,' his father said. "'And I am not inclined to trust my plans to a man "'who consorts with swords and savages. "'A pity my savages ruined your dance,' Tyrion pulled off his steel gauntlet and let it fall to the ground, wincing at the pain that stabbed up his arm. The Stark boy proved more cautious than I expected for one of his years, Lord Tywin admitted. But a victory is a victory. You appear to be wounded. Tyrion's right arm was soaked with blood. Good of you to notice, father, he said through clenched teeth. Might I trouble you to send for your masters, unless you relish the notion of having a one-armed dwarf for a son? An urgent shout of, Lord Tywin, turned his father's head before he could reply. Tywin Lannister rose to his feet as Sir Adam Marbrandt leapt down off his courser. The horse was lathered 
and bleeding from the mouth. Sir Adam dropped to one knee, a rangy man with dark copper hair that fell to his shoulders, armoured in burnished bronze steel, with a fiery tree of his house etched black on his breastplate. My liege, we have taken some of their commanders. Lord Sirwin, Sir Willis Manderley, Harry and Carstark, four freys, Lord Ormwood is dead, and I fear Roos Bolton has escaped us. And the boy, Lord Tywin asked. Sir Adam hesitated. The Stark boy was not with them, my lord. They say he crossed at the Twins with a great part of his horse, riding hard for River Run. A green boy, Tyrion remembered. More like to be brave than wise. He would have laughed, if he hadn't hurt so much. Catelyn The woods were full of whispers. Moonlight winked on the tumbling waters of the stream below as it wound its rocky way along the floor of the valley. Beneath the trees, war-horses wickered softly and pawed at the moist, leafy ground while men made nervous jests in hushed voices. Now and again she heard the chink of spears, the faint metallic slither of chain mail, but even those sounds were muffled. It should not be long now, my lady, Haddis Mullen said. He had asked for the honour of protecting her in the battle to come. It was his right, as Winterfell's captain of guards, and Rob had not refused it to him. She had thirty men around her, charged to keep her unharmed, and see her safely home to Winterfell if the fighting went against them. Rob had wanted fifty. Catelyn had insisted that ten would be enough, that he would need every sword for the fight. They made their peace at thirty, neither happy with it. It will come when it comes, Catelyn told him. When it came, she knew it would mean death. Hal's death, perhaps, or hers, or Rob's. No one was safe. No life was certain. Catelyn was content to wait, to listen to the whispers in the woods and the faint music of the brook, to feel the warm wind in her hair. She was no stranger to waiting, after all. Her men had always made her wait. "'Watch for me, little cat,' her father would always tell her, when he rode off to court or fair or battle. And she would, standing patiently on the battlements of River Run, as the waters of the Red Fork and the Tumblestone flowed by. He did not always come when he said he would, and days would oftentimes pass as Catelyn stood her vigil, peering out between crenels and through arrow loops, until she caught a glimpse of Lord Huster on his old brown gelding trotting along the river shore towards the landing. "'Did you watch for me?' he asked when he bent to hug her. "'Did you, little cat?' Brandon Stark had bid her wait as well. I shall not be long, my lady, he had vowed. We will be wed on my return. Yet when the day came at last, it was his brother Eddard who stood beside her in the sept. Ned had lingered scarcely a fortnight with his new bride before he too had ridden off to war, with promises on his lips. At least he had left her with more than words. He had given her a son. 
Nine moods had waxed and waned, and Rob had been born in Riveron while his father still warred in the south. She had brought him forth in blood and pain, not knowing whether Ned would ever see him. Her son. He had been so small. And now it was Rob she waited for. For Rob and for Jamie Lannister, the gilded knight, who men said had never learned to wait at all. The Kingslayer is restless and quick to anger, her uncle Brynden had told Rob, and he had wagered their lives and their best hope of victory on the truth of what he said. If Rob was frightened, he gave no sign of it. Catelyn watched her son as he moved among the men, touching one on the shoulder, sharing a jest with another, helping a third to gentle and anxious horse. His armor clinked softly when he moved. Only his head was bare. Catelyn watched a breeze stir his auburn hair, so like her own, and wondered when her son had grown so big, fifteen, and near as tall as she was. Let him grow taller, she asked the guards. Let him know sixteen and twenty and fifty. Let him grow as tall as his father and hold his own son in his arms, please. Please, please. As she watched him, this tall young man, with a new beard and the dire wolf prowling at his heels, all she could see was the babe they had laid at her breast at Riveron so long ago. The night was warm, but the thought of Riveron was enough to make her shiver. Where are they? she wondered. Could her uncle have been wrong? So much rested on the truth of what he had told them. Rob had given the blackfish three hundred picked men and sent them ahead to screen his march. Jamie does not know, Sir Brynden said when he rode back. I'll stake my life on that. No bird has reached him. <laughs> my archers have seen to that. We've seen a few of his outriders, but those that saw us did not live to tell of it. You ought to have sent out more. Ah, he does not know. How large is his host? her son asked. Twelve thousand foot scattered around the castle in three separate camps, with the rivers between, her uncle said, with a craggy smile she remembered so well. There's no other way to besiege Riveron, yet still that will be their undoing. Two or three thousand horse. The Kingslayer has us three to one, said Galbert Glover. True enough, Sir Brynden said. Yet there is one thing Sir Jamie lacks. Yes, Rob asked. Patience. Their host was greater than it had been when they left the twins. Lord Jason Mallister had brought his power out from Seaguard to join them, as they swept around the headwaters of the Blue Fork and galloped south, and others had crept forth as well. Hedge knights and small lords and masterless men-at-arms who had fled north when her brother Edmure's army was shattered beneath the walls of Riveron. They had driven their horses as hard as they dared to reach this place before Jamie Lannister had word of their coming. And now the hour was at hand. Catelyn watched her son mount up. Oliver Frey held his horse for him, Lord Walder's son, two years older than Rob, and ten years younger and more anxious. He strapped Rob's shield in place and handed up his helm. When he lowered it over the face she loved so well, a tall young knight sat on his grey stallion, 
where her son had been. It was dark among the trees, where the moon did not reach. When Rob turned his head to look at her, she could see only black inside his visor. I must ride down the line, mother, he told her. Father says you should let the men see you before a battle. Go then, she said. Let them see you. It will give them courage, Rob said. And who will give me courage, she wondered. Yet she kept her silence and made herself smile for him. Rob turned the big grey stallion and walked him slowly away from her, grey wind shadowing his steps. Behind him his battle guard formed up. When he'd forced Catelyn to accept her protectors, she had insisted that he be guarded as well, and the Lord's bannermen had agreed. Many of their sons had clamoured for the honour of riding with the young wolf, as they had taken to calling him. Torrin Carstark and his brother Eddard were among his thirty, and Patrick Malister, small John Umber, Darren Hornwood, Theon Greyjoy, no less than five of Walder Frey's vast brood, along with older men like Sir Wendell Manderley and Robin Flint. One of his companions was even a woman, Daisy Mormont, Lady Major's eldest daughter, an heir to Bear Island, a lanky six-footer who had been given a morning star at the age when most girls were given dolls. Some of the other lords muttered about that, but Catelyn would not listen to their complaints. This is not about the honour of your houses, she told them. This is about keeping my son alive and whole. And if it comes to that, she wondered, will thirty be enough? Will six thousand be enough? A bird called faintly in the distance, a high, sharp trill that felt like an icy hand on Catelyn's neck. Another bird answered, a third, a fourth. She knew their call well enough from her years at Winterville. Snow shrikes. Sometimes you saw them in the deep of winter, when the gods would was white and still. They were northern birds. They are coming, Catelyn thought. They're coming, me lady, Hal Mullen whispered. He was always a man for stating the obvious. Gods be with us. She nodded as the woods grew still around them. In the quiet she could hear them, far off yet moving closer, the tread of many horses, the rattle of swords and spears and armour, the murmur of human voices, with here a laugh and there a curse. Ian seemed to come and go. The sounds grew louder. She heard more laughter, a shouted command, splashing as they crossed and recrossed the little stream. A horse snorted, a man swore, and then at last she saw him. Only for an instant, framed between the branches of the trees as she looked down at the valley floor, yet she knew it was him. Even at this distance, Sir Jamie Lannister was unmistakable. The moonlight had silvered his armour and the gold of his hair, and turned his crimson cloak to black. He was not wearing a helm. He was there, and he was gone again, his silvery armour obscured by the trees once more. Others came behind him, long columns of them, knights and sworn swords and free riders, three-quarters of the Lannister horse. He is no man for sitting in a tent while his carpenters build siege towers, Sir Brynden had promised. He has ridden out with his knights thrice already, 
to chase down raiders or storm a stubborn holdfast. Nodding, Rob had studied the map her uncle had drawn him. Ned had taught him how to read maps. Raid him here, he said, pointing. A few hundred men, no more. Tully banners. When he comes after you, we will be waiting. His finger moved an inch to the left. Here. Here was a hush in the night, moonlight and shadows, a thick carpet of dead leaves underfoot, densely wooded ridges sloping gently down to the stream bed, the underbrush thinning as the ground fell away. Here was her son on a stallion, glancing back at her one last time and lifting his sword in salute. Here was the call of Mage Mormont's warhorn, a long, low blast that rolled down the valley from the east to tell them that the last of Jamie's riders had entered the trap. And Grey Wind threw back his head and howled. The sound seemed to go right through Catelyn Stark, and she found herself shivering. It was a terrible sound, a frightening sound. Yet there was music in it, too. For a second, she felt something like pity for the Lannisters below. So this is what death sounds like, she thought. Haroo! came the answer from the far ridge as the great John winded his own horn. To east and west, the trumpets of the Malisters and Freys blew vengeance. North, where the valley narrowed and bent like a cocked elbow, Lord Carstark's war horns added their own deep, mournful voices to the dark chorus. Men were shouting and horses rearing in the stream below. The whispering wood let out its breath all at once, as the bowmen Rob had hidden in the branches of the trees let fly their arrows, and the night erupted with the screams of men and horses. All around her, the riders raised their lances, and the dirt and leaves that had buried the cruel bright points fell away to reveal the gleam of sharpened steel. Winterfell! she heard Rob shout as the arrow sighed again. He moved away from her at a trot, leading his men downhill. Catelyn sat on her horse, unmoving, with Hal Mullen and her guard around her, and she waited as she had waited before, for Brandon and Ned and her father. She was high on the ridge, and the trees hid most of what was going on beneath her. A heartbeat, two, four, and suddenly... It was as if she and her protectors were alone in the wood. The rest were melted away into the green. Yet when she looked across the valley to the far ridge, she saw the great John's riders emerge from the darkness beneath the trees. They were in a long line, an endless line, and as they burst from the wood, there was an instant, the smallest part of a heartbeat, when all Catelyn saw was a moonlight, on the points of their lances, as if a thousand will-o'-wisps were coming down the ridge, wreathed in silver flame. Then she blinked, and they were only men, rushing down to kill or die. Afterward, she could not claim she had seen the battle, yet she could hear, and the valley rang with echoes. The crack of a broken lance, the clash of swords, the cries of Lannister and Winterfell, 
and Tully, River Run and Tully. When she realized there was no more to see, she closed her eyes and listened. The battle came alive around her. She heard hoofbeats, iron boots splashing in shallow water, the woody sound of swords on oaken shields, and the scrape of steel against steel, the hiss of arrows, the thunder of drums, the terrified screaming of a thousand horses. Men shouted curses and begged for mercy, and got it or not, and lived or died. The ridges seemed to play queer tricks with sound. Once she heard Rob's voice, as clear as if he'd been standing at her side, calling, To me! To me! And she heard his direwolf, snarling and growling, heard the snap of those long teeth, the tearing of flesh, shrieks of fear and pain for man and horse alike. Was there only one wolf? It was hard to be certain. Little by little, the sounds dwindled and died, until at last there was only the wolf. As a red dawn broke in the east, grey wind began to howl again. Rob came back to her on a different horse, riding a piebald gelding in the place of the grey stallion he had taken down into the valley. The wolf's head and his shield were slashed half to pieces, raw wood showing where deep gouges had been hacked in the oak. But Rob himself seemed unhurt. Yet when he came closer, Catelyn saw that his mail glove and the sleeve of his surcoat were black with blood. "'You're hurt,' she said. Rob lifted his hand, opened, and closed his fingers. "'No,' he said, "'this is, uh, Taran's blood, perhaps, or, um—' He shook his head. I-, "'I do not know.' A mob of men followed him up the slope, dirty and dented and grinning, with Theon and the great John at their head. Between them they dragged Sir Jamie Lannister. They threw him down in front of her horse. "'The Kingslayer!' Hal announced unnecessarily. Lannister raised his head. "'Lady Stark,' he said from his knees. Blood ran down one cheek from a gash across his scalp, but the pale light of dawn had put the glint of gold back in his hair. "'I would offer you my sword, but I seem to have mislaid it.' "'It is not your sword I want, sir,' she told him. "'Give me my father and my brother Edmure. Give me my daughters. Give me my lord husband.' I have mislaid them as well, I fear. A pity, Catelyn said coldly. Kill him, Rob, Theon Greyjoy urged. Take his head off. No, her son answered, peeling off his bloody glove. He's more use alive than dead, and my lord father never condoned the murder of prisoners after a battle. A wise man, Jamie Lancer said, an honourable. Take him away and put him in irons, Catelyn said. "'Do as my lady mother says,' Rob commanded, "'and make certain there's a strong guard around him. "'Lord Carstark will want his head on a pike.' "'That he will,' the great John agreed, gesturing. "'Lannister was led away to be bandaged and chained.' "'Why should Lord Carstark want him dead?' Catelyn asked. "'Rob looked away into the woods "'with the same brooding look that Ned often got. "'He... he killed them. Lord Carstark's sons, Galbert Glover explained. Both of them, Rob said, Torren and Eddard. 
and Darren Hornwood as well. No one can fault Lannister on his courage, Glover said. When he saw that he was lost, he rallied his retainers and fought his way up the valley, hoping to reach Lord Rob and cut him down. And almost did. He mislaid his sword in Eddard Carstark's neck after he took Torrance's hand off and split Darren Hornwood's skull open, Rob said. All the time he was shouting for me. If they hadn't tried to stop him, I should then be mourning in place of Lord Carstark, Catelyn said. Your men did what they were sworn to do, Rob. They died protecting their liege lord. Grieve for them, honour them for their valour, but not now. You have no time for grief. You may have lopped off the head of the snake, but three-quarters of the body is still coiled around my father's castle. We have won a battle, not a war. But such a battle, said Theon Greyjoy eagerly. My lady, the realm has not seen such a victory since a field afar. I vow the Lannisters lost ten men for every one of ours that fell. We've taken close to a hundred knights captive, and a dozen lords bannermen, Lord Westerling, Lord Bainfort, Sir Garth Greenfield, Lord Estran, Sir Titus Brax, Mallow the Dornishman, and three Lannisters besides Jamie, Lord Tywin's own nephews. Two of his sister's sons, and one of his dead brothers, and Lord Tywin. Catelyn dropped it. Have you perchance taken Lord Tywin, Theon? Er, uh, no, Greyjoy answered, brought up short. Until you do, this war is far from done. Rub raised his head and pushed his hair back out of his eyes. My mother is right. We still have River Run. Daenerys The flies circled Karl Drogo slowly, their wings buzzing, a low thrum at the edge of hearing that filled Danny with dread. The sun was high and pitiless. Heat shimmered in waves of the stony outcrops of low hills. A thin finger of sweat trickled slowly down between Danny's swollen breasts. The only sounds were the steady clop of their horses' hooves, the rhythmic tingle of the bells in Drogo's hair, and the distant voices behind them. Danny watched the flies. They were as large as bees, gross, purplish, glistening. The Dothraki called them blood flies. They lived in marshes and stagnant pools, sucked blood from man and horse alike, and laid their eggs in the dead and dying. Drogo hated them. Whenever one came near him, his hand would shoot out quick as a striking snake to close around it. She had never seen him miss. He would hold the fly inside his huge fist long enough to hear its frantic buzzing. Then his fingers would tighten, and when he opened his hand again, the fly would be only a red smear on his palm. Now one crept across the rump of his stallion, and the horse gave an angry flick of its tail to brush it away. The others flitted about Drogo closer and closer. The carl did not react. His eyes were fixed on distant brown hills, 
the reins loose in his hands. Beneath his painted vest, a plaster of fig leaves and cake blue mud covered the wound on his breast. The herb woman had made it for him. Miri Mazdur's poultice had itched and burned, and he had torn it off six days ago, cursing her for a meiji. The mud plaster was more soothing, and the herb woman made him poppy wine as well. He'd been drinking it heavily these past three days. When it was not poppy wine, it was fermented mare's milk, or pepper beer. Yet he scarcely touched his food, and he thrashed and groaned in the night. Danny could see how drawn his face had become. Rago was restless in her belly, kicking like a stallion. Yet even that did not stir Drogo's interest as it had. Every morning her eyes found fresh lines of pain on his face when he woke from his troubled sleep. And now, this silence, it was making her afraid. Since they had mounted up at dawn, he had not said a word. When she spoke, she got no answer but a grunt. And not even that much since midday. One of the blood flies landed on the bare skin of the cow's shoulder. Another, circling, touched down on his neck and crept up towards his mouth. Carl Drogo swayed in the saddle, bells ringing, as his stallion kept onward at a steady walking pace. Danny pressed her heels into her silver and rode closer. My lord, she said softly, Drogo, my sun and stars. He did not seem to hear. The blood fly crawled up under his drooping moustache and settled on his cheek in the crease beside his nose. Danny gasped. Drogo! Clumsily she reached over and touched his arm. Carl Drogo reeled in the saddle, tilted slowly, and fell heavily from his horse. The flies scattered for a heartbeat and then circled back to settle on him where he lay. No! Danny said, reining up. Heedless of her belly for once, she scrambled off her silver and ran to him. The grass beneath him was brown and dry. Drogo cried out in pain as Danny knelt beside him. His breath rattled harshly in his throat, and he looked at her without recognition. My horse! he gasped. Danny brushed the flies off his chest, smashing one as he would have. His skin burned beneath her fingers. The car's blood riders had been following just behind them. She heard Hago shout as they galloped up. Kaholo vaulted from his horse. Blood of my blood, he said as they dropped to his knees. The other two kept to their mounts. No, Carl Drago groaned, struggling in Danny's arms. Must ride, ride, no. He fell from his horse, Hago said, staring down. His broad face was impassive, but his voice was leaden. You must not say that, Danny told him. We have ridden far enough today. We will camp here. Here? Hago looked around him. The land was brown and sere, inhospitable. This is no camping ground? It is not for a woman to bid us halt, said Kotho. Not even a Khaleesi. We camp here, Danny repeated. Hago, tell them Carl Drogo, commander the halt. 
If any ask why, say to them that my time is near, and I could not continue. Kahalo, bring up the slaves. They must put up the carl's tent at once. Kotho, you do not command me, Kalissi, Kotho said. Find Miramar's door, she told him. The guard's wife would be walking among the other lamb men in the long column of slaves. Bring her to me, with her chest. Kotho glared down at her, his eyes hard as flint. The magi, he spat. This I will not do. You will, Danny said, or when Drogo wakes, he will hear why you defied me. Furious, Kotho wheeled his stallion around and galloped off in anger. But Danny knew he would return with Miramar's door, however little he might like it. The slaves erected Karl Drogo's tent beneath a jagged outcrop of black rock, whose shadow gave some relief from the heat of the afternoon sun. Even so, it was stifling under the sand silk, as Iri and Doria helped Danny walk Drogo inside. Thick patterned carpets had been laid down over the ground, and pillows scattered in the corners. Eroa, the timid girl Danny had rescued outside the mud walls of the lamb men, set up a brazier. They stretched Drogo out on a woven mat. No, he murmured in the common tongue. No, no. It was all he said, all he seemed capable of saying. Daria unhooked his medallion belt and stripped off his vest and leggings, while Jiqui knelt by his feet to undo the laces of his riding sandals. Iri wanted to leave the tent flaps open to let in the breeze, but Danny forbade it. She would not have any see Drogo this way, in delirium and weakness. When her cars came up, she posted them outside at guard. Admit no one without my leave, she told Jogo. No one. Eroa stared fearfully at Drogo where he lay. He dies, she whispered. Danny slapped her. The Carl cannot die. He is the father of the stallion who mounts the world. His hair has never been cut. He still wears the bells his father gave him. Khaleesi, Jiqui said. He fell from his horse. Trembling, her eyes full of sudden tears, Danny turned away from them. He fell from his horse. It was so. She had seen it. And the blood riders, and no doubt her handmaids, and the men of her cars as well, and how many more. They could not keep it secret. And Danny knew what that meant. A Carl who could not ride could not rule. And Drogo had fallen from his horse. We must bathe him, she said stubbornly. She must not allow herself to despair. Iri, have the tub brought at once. Daria, Eroa, find water, cool water. He's so hot. He was a fire in human skin. The slaves set up the heavy copper tub in the corner of the tent. When Doria brought the first jar of water, Danny wet a length of silk to lay across Drogo's brow over the burning skin. His eyes looked at her, but he did not see. When his lips opened, no words escaped them, only a moan. Where is Miramar's door? she demanded. Her patience rubbed raw with fear. Kotha will find her, Iri said. A handmaidens filled the tub with tepid water that stank of sulphur, sweetened it 
with jars of bitter oil and handfuls of crushed mint leaves. While the bath was being prepared, Danny knelt awkwardly beside her lord husband, her belly great with their child within. She undid his braid with anxious fingers, as she had on the night he'd taken her for the first time beneath the stars. His bells she laid aside carefully, one by one. He would want them again when he was well, she told herself. A breath of air entered the tent as Ago poked his head through the silk. Khaleesi said, The Andal has come, and begs leave to enter. The Andal was what the Dothraki called Sajora. Yes, she said, rising clumsily, send him in. She trusted the knight. He would know what to do if anyone did. Sajora Mormont ducked through the door flap and waited a moment for his eyes to adjust to the dimness. In the fierce heat of the south, he wore loose trousers of muttled sand silk and open-toed riding sandals that laced up to his knees. His scabbard hung from a twisted horsehair belt. Under a bleach-white vest, he was bare-chested, skin reddened by the sun. "'Talk goes from mouth to ear all over the callous are,' he said. "'It is said Karl Drogo fell from his horse.' "'Help him,' Danny pleaded. "'For the love you say you bear me, help him now.' The knight knelt beside her. He looked at Drogo, long and hard, and then at Danny. "'Send your maids away.' Wordlessly, her throat tight with fear, Danny made a gesture. Eri heard at the other girls from the tent. When they were alone, Sajara drew his dagger. Deftly, with a delicacy surprising in such a big man, he began to scrape away the black leaves and dried blue mud from Drogo's chest. The plaster had caked, hard as the mud walls of the lamb men, and like those walls, it cracked easily. Sajara broke the dry mud with his knife, pried the chunks from the flesh, peeling off the leaves one by one. A foul, sweet smell rose from the wound, so thick it almost choked her. The leaves were crusted with blood and pus, Drogo's breast black and glistening with corruption. No, Danny whispered as tears ran down her cheeks. No, please, God, hear me. No. Karl Drogo thrashed, fighting some unseen enemy. Black blood ran slowly and thick from his open wound. Your Karl is as good as dead, princess. No, he can't die. He mustn't. It was only a cut. Danny took his large, calloused hand in her own small ones and held it tight between them. I will not let him die. Sajara gave a bitter laugh. Khaleesi, or queen, that command is beyond your power. Save your tears, child. Weep for him tomorrow or a year from now. We do not have time for grief. We must go, and quickly, before he dies. Danny was lost. Go? Where should we go? Eshai, I would say. It lies far to the south, at the end of the known world, yet men say it is a great port. We will find a ship to take us back to Pentos. It will be a hard journey, make no mistake. Do you trust your cars? Will they come with us? Karl Drogo commanded them to keep me safe, Danny replied uncertainly. But if he dies, 
she touched the swell of her belly. I don't understand. Why should we flee? I am Khaleesi. I carry Drogo's heir. He will be Karl after Drogo... Sir Jorah frowned. Princess, hear me. The Dothraki will not follow a suckling babe. Drogo's strength was what they bowed to, and only that. When he is gone, Jaco and Pono and the other Coes will fight for his place, and this Kelasar will devour itself. The winner will want no more rivals. The boy will be taken from your breast the moment he is born. They will give him to the dogs. Danny hugged herself. But why? she cried plaintively. Why should they kill a little baby? Is Drogo's son, and the crones say he will be the stallion who mounts the world. It was prophesied. Better to kill the child than to risk his fury when he grows to manhood. The child kicked inside her, as if he had heard. Danny remembered the story Viserys had told her of what the usurper's dogs had done to Rhaegar's children. His son had been a babe as well, yet they had ripped him from his mother's breast and dashed his head against a wall. That was the way of men. They must not hurt my son, she cried. I will order my cars to keep him safe, and Drogo's blood riders will— Sir Jorah held her by the shoulders. A blood rider dies with his cow. You know that, child. They will take you to Vez Dothrak, to the crones. That is the last duty they owe him in life. When that is done, they will join Drogo in the Nightlands. Danny did not want to go back to Vez Dothrak and live the rest of her life among those terrible old women. Yet she knew that the knight spoke the truth. Drogo had been more than her son and stars. He had been the shield that kept her safe. I will not leave him, she said stubbornly, miserably. She took his hand again. I will not. A stirring at the tent flap made Danny turn her head. Miramar's door entered, bowing low. Days on the march, trailing behind the Kalasar, had left her limping and haggard, with blistered and bleeding feet and hollows under her eyes. Behind her came Kotho and Hagger, carrying the god's wife's chest between them. When the blood riders caught sight of Drogo's wound, the chest slipped from Hago's fingers and crashed to the floor of the tent, and Kotho swore an oath so foul it seared the air. Mira Mars Dur studied Drogo, her face still undead. The wound has festered. This is your work, Meiji, Kotho said. Hago laid his fist across Mira's cheek with a meaty smack that drove her to the ground. Then he kicked her where she lay. Stop it! Danny screamed. Kotho pulled Hago away, saying, Kicks are too merciful for a major. Take her outside. We will stake her to the earth to be the mount of every passing man. And when they are done with her, the dogs will use her as well. Weasels will tear out her entrails and carrion crows feast upon her eyes. The flies off the river shall lay their eggs in her womb and drink pus from the ruins of her breasts. He dug iron-hard fingers into the soft, wobbly flesh under the god's wife's arm and hauled her to her feet. No, Danny said. I will not have her harmed. Kotho's lips skinned back from his crooked brown teeth in a terrible mockery of a smile. No, 
You say me no? Better you should pray that we do not stake you outside beside your meiji. You did this as much as the other. Sir Jorah stepped between them, loosening his long sword in his scabbard. Rain in your tongue, bloodrider. The princess is still your Khaleesi. Only while the blood of my blood still lives, Kotho told the knight. When he dies, she is nothing. Danny felt a tightness inside her. Before I was Khaleesi, I was the blood of the dragon. Sajara, summon my cars. No, said Kotho. We will go. For now. Khaleesi. Hago followed him from the tent, scarling. That one means you no good, princess, Mormont said. The Dothraki say a man and his blood riders share one life, and Kotho sees it ending. A dead man is beyond fear. No one has died, Danny said. Sir Jorah, I may have need of your blade. Best go don your armor. She was more frightened than she dared admit, even to herself. The knight bowed. As you say, he strode from the tent. Danny turned back to Mirror Ma's door. The woman's eyes were wary. So, you have saved me once more. And now you must save him, Danny said. Please. You do not ask a slave, Miri replied sharply. You tell her. She went to Drogo, burning on his mat, and gazed long at his wound. Ask or tell, it makes no matter. He is beyond a healer's skills. The cow's eyes were closed. She opened one with her fingers. He has been dulling the hurt with milk of the puppy. Yes, Danny admitted. I made him a poultice, a fire pod, and sting me not, and bound it in a lambskin. It burned, he said. He tore it off. The herb women made him a new one, wet and soothing. It burned, yes. There is great healing magic in fire. Even your hairless men know that. Make him another poultice, Danny begged. This time I will make certain he wears it. The time for that is past, my lady, Mary said. All I can do now is ease the dark road before him so that he might ride painless to the nightlands. He will be gone by morning. Her words were a knife through Danny's breast. What had she ever done to make the gods so cruel? She had finally found a safe place, had finally tasted love and hope. She was finally going home. And now, to lose it all? No, she pleaded, save him, and I will free you, I swear it. You must know a way, some magic, some... Miramaz Dur sat back on her heels and studied Daenerys through eyes as black as night. There is a spell. Her voice was quiet, scarcely more than a whisper. But it is hard, lady, and dark. Some would say that death is cleaner. I learned the way in a shy and paid dear for the lesson. My teacher was a blood marsh from the Shadowlands. Danny went cold all over. Then you truly are a meiji? Am I? Miri Ma's door smiled. Only a meiji can save your rider now, civil lady. Is there no other way? No other. Khal Drogo gave a shuddering gasp. 
Do it. Danny blurted. She must not be afraid. She was the blood of the dragon. Save him. There is a price, the god's wife warned her. You'll have gold, horses, whatever you like. It is not a matter of gold or horses. This is blood magic, lady. Only death may pay for life. Death? Danny wrapped her arms around herself protectively, rocking back and forth on her heels. My death? She told herself she would die for him, if she must. She was the blood of the dragon. She would not be afraid. Her brother, Rhaegar, had died for the woman he loved. No, Miramar's door promised. Not your death, Khaleesi. Danny trembled with relief. Do it. The Meiji nodded solemnly. As you speak, so it shall be done. Call your servants. Carl Drogo writhed feebly as Ricardo and Quaro lowered him into the bath. No, he muttered. No, must ride. Once in the water, all the strength seemed to leak out of him. Bring his horse, Miramar's door commanded, and so it was done. Jogo led the great red stallion into the tent. When the animal caught the scent of death, he screamed and reared, rolling his eyes. It took three men to subdue him. What do you mean to do? Danny asked her. We need the blood, Mira answered. That is the way. Jogo edged back, his hand on his arrack. He was a youth of sixteen years, whip-thin, fearless, quick to laugh, with a faint shadow of his first moustache on his upper lip. He fell to his knees before her. Khaleesi, he pleaded, you must not do this thing. Let me kill this Meiji. Kill her. And you kill your Carl, Danny said. This is blood magic, he said. It is forbidden. I am Khaleesi, and I say it is not forbidden. In Vez Dothrak, Carl Drogo slew a stallion, and I ate his heart, to give our son strength and courage. This is the same. The same. The stallion kicked and reared as Ricardo, Quaro, and Ego pulled him close to the tub, where the Carl floated like one already dead, pus and blood seeping from his wound to stay in the bathwaters. Miramar's door chanted words in a tongue that Danny did not know, and a knife appeared in her hand. Danny never saw where it came from. It looked old, hammered red bronze, leaf-shaped, its blade covered with ancient glyphs. The Meiji drew it across the stallion's throat, under the noble head, and the horse screamed and shuddered as the blood poured out of him in a red rush. He would have collapsed, but the men of her cars held him up. Strength of the mount go into the raider, Mira sang, as horse blood swirled into the waters of Drogo's bath. Strength of the beast go into the man. Jago looked terrified as he struggled with the stallion's weight, afraid to touch the dead flesh, yet afraid to let go as well. Only a horse, Danny thought. If she could buy Drogo's life with the death of a horse, she would pay a thousand times over. When they let the stallion fall, the bath was a dark red, 
and nothing showed of Drogo but his face. Miri Mar's door had no use for the carcass. Burn it, Danny told them. It was what they did, she knew. When a man died, his mount was killed and placed beneath him on the funeral pyre to carry him to the nightlands. The men of her cars dragged the carcass from the tent. The blood had gone everywhere. Even the sand-silk walls were spotted with red, and the rugs underfoot were black and wet. Braziers were lit. Miri Mazdur tossed a red powder onto the coals. It gave the smoke a spicy scent, a pleasant enough smell. Yet Heroa fled, sobbing, and Danny was filled with fear. But she had gone too far to turn back now. She sent her handmaids away. Go with them, silver lady, Miramaz Dor told her. I will stay, Danny said. The man took me under the stars and gave life to the child inside me. I will not leave him. You must. Once I begin to sing, no one must enter this tent. My song will wake powers old and dark. The dead will dance here this night. No living man must look on them. Danny bowed her head, helpless. No one will enter. She bent over the tub, over Drogo in his bath of blood, and kissed him lightly on the brow. Bring him back to me, she whispered to Miramar's door before she fled. Outside, the sun was low on the horizon, the sky a bruised red. The Kalasar had made camp. Tents and sleeping mats were scattered as far as the eye could see. A hot wind blew. Jogo and Ego were digging a fire pit to burn the dead stallion. A crowd had gathered to stare at Danny with hard black eyes, their faces like masks of beaten copper. She saw Sir Jorah Mormont, wearing mail and leather now, sweat beading on his broad, balding forehead. He pushed his way through the Dothraki to Danny's side. When he saw the scarlet footprints her boots had left on the ground, the colour seemed to drain from his face. "'What have you done, you little fool?' he asked hoarsely. "'I had to save him.' "'We could have fled,' he said. "'I would have seen you safe to a Shai princess. There was no need.' "'Am I truly your princess?' she asked him. You know you are. God save us both. Then help me now, Sir Jorah grimaced. Would that I knew how. Miramar's door's voice rose to a high, ululating wail that sent a shiver down Danny's back. Some of the Dothraki began to mutter and back away. The tent was aglow with the light of braziers within. Through the blood-spattered sand silk, she glimpsed shadows moving. Miramar's door was dancing, and not alone. Danny saw naked fear on the faces of the Dothraki. This must not be, Kotho thundered. She had not seen the blood rider return. Hago and Kohalo were with him. They had brought the hairless men, the eunuchs who healed with knife and needle and fire. This will be, Danny replied. May she, Hago growled. And old Kohalo. 
Kahalo, who had bound his life to Drogo's on the day of his birth. Kahalo, who had always been kind to her. Kahalo spat full in her face. You will die, Meiji, Kotho promised, but the other must die first. He drew his arrack and made for the tent. No, she shouted, you mustn't. She caught him by the shoulder, but Kotho shoved her aside. Danny fell to her knees, crossing her arms over her belly to protect the child within. Stop him, she commanded her cars. Kill him. Rakaro and Quaro stood beside the Ted flap. Quaro took a step forward, reaching for the handle of his whip. But Kotho spun graceful as a dancer, the curved arak rising. It caught Quaro low under the arm, the bright sharp steel biting up through leather and skin, through muscle and rib bone. Blood fountained as the young rider reeled backward, gasping. Kotho wrenched the blade free. Horse Lord, Sir Jara Mormont called. Try me. His long sword slid from its scabbard. Kotho whirled, cursing. The Arak moved so fast that Quarro's blood flew from it in a fine spray like rain in a hot wind. The long sword caught it, a foot from Sajara's face, and held it quivering for an instant, as Kotho howled in fury. The knight was clad in chainmail, with gauntlets and greaves of lobstered steel, and a heavy gorget round his throat. But he had not thought to don his helm. Kotho danced backward, Arak whirling around his head in a shining blur, flickering out like lightning as the night came on in a rush. Sajara parried as best he could, but the slashes came so fast that it seemed to Danny that Kotho had four Araks and as many arms. She heard the crunch of a sword on mail, saw sparks fly as the long curved blade glanced off a gauntlet. Suddenly it was Mormont stumbling backward, and Kotho leaping to the attack. The left side of the knight's face ran red with blood and a cut to the hip opened a gash in his mail and left him limping. Kotho screamed taunts at him, calling him a craven, a milkman, a eunuch in an iron suit. You die now, he promised, Arak shivering through the red twilight. Inside Danny's womb, her son kicked wildly. The curved blade slipped past the straight one and bit deep into the knight's hip, where the mail gaped open. Mormont grunted, stumbled. Danny felt a sharp pain in her belly, a wetness on her thighs. Kotho shrieked triumph, but his arak had found bone, and for half a heartbeat it caught. It was enough. Sajara brought his longsword down with all the strength left him through flesh and muscle and bone, and Kotho's forearm dangled loose, flopping on a thin cord of skin and sinew. The knight's next cut was at the Dothraki's ear, so savage that Kotho's face seemed almost to explode. The Dothraki was shouting, Miramar's door wailing inside the tent like nothing human, Quaro pleading for water as he died, Danny cried out for help, but no one heard. Ricardo was fighting Hago, Arak dancing with Arak until Jogo's whip cracked loud as thunder, the lash calling around Hago's throat. A yank 
and the blood rider stumbled backward, losing his feet and his sword. Rakharo sprang forward, howling, swinging his arrack down with both hands through the top of Hago's head. The point caught between his eyes, red and quivering. Someone threw a stone, and when Danny looked, her shoulder was torn and bloody. No, she wept. No, please stop it. It's too high. The price is too high. More stones came flying. She tried to crawl towards the tent, but Kaholo caught her. Fingers in her hair, he pulled her head back, and she felt the cold touch of his knife at her throat. My baby, she screamed, and perhaps the guards heard. For as quick as that, Kaholo was dead. Ego's arrow took him under the arm to pierce his lungs and heart. When at last Daenerys found the strength to raise her head, she saw the crowd dispersing, the Dothraki stealing silently back to their tents and sleeping mats. Some were saddling horses and riding off. The sun had set. Fires burned throughout the Kalasar, great orange blazes that crackled with fury and spit embers at the sky. She tried to rise. An agony seized her, and squeezed her like a giant's fist. The breath went out of her. It was all she could do to gasp. The sound of Mirimar's door's voice was like a funeral dirge. Inside the tent, the shadows whirled. An arm went under her waist, and then Sajara was lifting her off her feet. His face was sticky with blood, and Danny saw that half his ear was gone. She convulsed in his arms as the pain took her again, and she heard the knight shouting for her handmaids to help him. Are they all so afraid? She knew the answer. Another pain grasped her, and Danny bit back a scream. It felt as if her son had a knife in each hand as if he were hacking at her to cut his way out. Doria, curse you, Sir Jorah roared. Come here, fetch the birthing women. They will not come. They say she is accursed. They'll come, or I'll have their heads. Doria wept. They are gone, my lord. The Meiji, someone else said. Was that Ager? Take her to the Meiji. No. Danny wanted to say, no, not that, you mustn't. But when she opened her mouth, a long wail of pain escaped, and the sweat broke over her skin. What was wrong with them? Couldn't they see? Inside the tent, the shapes were dancing, circling the brazier and the bloody bath, dark against the sand silk, and some did not look human. She glimpsed the shadow of a great wolf, and another like a man wreathed in flames. The lamb woman knows the secrets of the birthing bed, Ira said. She said so. I heard her. Yes, Doria agreed. I heard her too. No, she shouted. Or perhaps she only thought it, for no whisper of sound escaped her lips. She was being carried. Her eyes opened to gaze up at a flat, dead sky, black and bleak and starless. Please? No. 
the sound of Miramar's door's voice grew louder until it filled the world. The shapes, she screamed. The dancers! Sajara carried her inside the tent. Aria The scent of hot bread, drifting from the shops along the street of flour, was sweeter than any perfume Aria had ever smelled. She took a deep breath and stepped closer to the pigeon. It was a plump one, speckled brown, busily pecking at a crust that had fallen between two cobblestones. But when Aria's shadow touched it, it took to the air. Her stick sword whistled out and caught it two feet off the ground, and it went down in a flurry of brown feathers. She was on it in the blink of an eye, grabbing a wing as a pigeon flapped and fluttered. It pecked at her hand. She grabbed its neck and twisted it until she felt the bone snap. Compared with catching cats, pigeons were easy. A passing septon was looking at her askance. Here's the best place to find pigeon, Aria told him, as she brushed herself off and picked up her fallen stick sword. They come for the crumbs. He hurried away. She tied the pigeon to her belt and started down the street. A man was pushing a load of tarts by on a two-wheeled cart. The smells sang of blueberries and lemons and apricots. Her stomach made a hollow, rumbly noise. Could I have one? she heard herself say. A lemon or a... or, or any kind. The pushcart man looked her up and down. Plainly, he did not like what he saw. Three coppers. Aria tapped her wooden sword against the side of her boot. I'll trade you for a fat pigeon, she said. The others take your pigeon, the pushcart man said. The tarts were still warm from the oven. The smells were making her mouth water, but she did not have three coppers, or one. She gave the pushcart man a look, remembering what Syria had told her about seeing. He was short, with a little round belly, and when he moved, he seemed to favor his left leg a little. She was just thinking that if she snatched a tart and ran, he would never be able to catch her when he said, You be keeping your filthy hands off. The gold cloaks know how to deal with thieving little gutter rats. That they do. Aria glanced warily behind her. Two of the city watch were standing at the mouth of an alley. Their cloaks hung almost to the ground. The heavy wool dyed a rich gold. Their mail and boots and gloves were black. One wore a long sword at his hip, the other an iron cudgel. With a last wistful glance at the tarts, Arya edged back from the cart and hurried off. The gold cloaks had not been paying her any special attention, but the sight of them tied her stomach in nuts. Arya had been staying as far from the castle as she could get, yet even from a distance she could see the heads rotting atop the high red walls, flocks of crows squabbling noisily over each head, thick as flies. The talk in Flea Bottom was that the gold cloaks had thrown in with the Lannisters, their commander raised to a lord, with lands on the trident and a seat on the king's council. She had also heard other things, scary things, 
things that made no sense to her. Some said her father had murdered King Robert, and had been slain in turn by Lord Renly. Others insisted that Renly had killed the king in a drunken quarrel between brothers. Why else should he have fled in the night like a common thief? One story said the king had been killed by a boar while hunting. Another said he'd died eating a boar, stuffing himself so full that he'd ruptured at the table. No, the king had died at table, others said, but only because Varys the spider poisoned him. No, it had been the queen who poisoned him. No, he had died of a pox. No, he had choked on a fishbone. One thing all the stories agreed on. King Robert was dead. The bells in the seven towers of the great sept of Baelor had tolled for a day and a night, the thunder of their grief rolling across the city in a bronze tide. They only rang the bells like that for the death of a king, a tanner's boy told Arya. All she wanted was to go home, but leaving King's Landing was not so easy as she had hoped. Talk of war was on every lip, and gold cloaks were as thick on the city wall as fleas on, well, on her, for one. She had been sleeping in flea bottom, on rooftops and in stables, wherever she could find a place to lie down, and it hadn't taken her long to learn that the district was well named. Every day since her escape from the Red Keep, Arya had visited each of the seven city gates in turn. The Dragon Gate, the Lion Gate, and the Old Gate were closed and barred. The Mud Gate and the Gate of the Guards were open, but only to those who wanted to enter the city. The guards let no one out. Those who were allowed to leave left by the King's Gate or the Iron Gate, but Lannister men-at-arms in crimson cloaks and lion-crested helms manned the guard posts there. Spying down from the roof of an inn by the King's Gate, Arya saw them searching wagons and carriages, forcing riders to open their saddlebags, and questioning everyone who tried to pass on foot. Sometimes she thought about swimming the river, but the Blackwater Rush was wide and deep, and everyone agreed that its currents were wicked and treacherous. She had no coin to pay a ferryman, or take passage on a ship. Her lord father had taught her never to steal, but it was growing harder to remember why. If she did not get out soon, she would have to take her chances with the gold cloaks. She hadn't gone hungry much, since she learned to knock down birds with her stick-sword, but she feared so much pigeon was making her sick. A couple she'd eaten raw, before she found Flea Bottom. In the bottom there were pot-shops along the alleys, where huge tubs of stew had been simmering for years, and you could trade half your bird for a heel of yesterday's bread and a bowl of brown, and they'd even stick the other half in the fire and crisp it up for you, so long as you pluck the feathers yourself. Arya would have given anything for a cup of milk and a lemon cake, but the brown wasn't so bad. It usually had barley in it and chunks of carrot and onion and turnip, and sometimes even apple, with a film of grease swimming on top. Mostly, she tried not to think about the meat. Once, she had gotten a piece of fish. 
The only thing was the pot shops were never empty, and even as she bolted down her food, Aria could feel them watching. Some of them stared at her boots or her cloak, and she knew what they were thinking. With others, she could almost feel their eyes crawling under her leathers. She didn't know what they were thinking, and that scared her even more. A couple times, she was followed out into the alleys and chased, but so far, no one had been able to catch her. The silver bracelet she had hoped to sell had been stolen her first night out of the castle, along with her bundle of good clothes, snatched while she slept in a burnt-out house off Pig Alley. All they left her was the cloak she had been huddled in, the leathers on her back, her wooden practice sword, and Needle. She'd been lying on top of Needle, or else it would have been gone too. It was worth more than all the rest together. Since then, Arya had taken to walking round with her cloak draped over her right arm to conceal the blade at her hip. The wooden sword she carried in her left hand, out where everybody could see it, to scare off robbers. But there were men in the pot shops who wouldn't have been scared off if she'd had a battle-axe. It was enough to make her lose her taste for pigeon and stale bread. Often as not, she went to bed hungry, rather than risk the stairs. Once she was outside the city, she would find berries to pick, or orchards she might raid for apples and cherries. Arya remembered seeing some from the King's Road on the journey south, and she could dig for roots in the forest, even run down some rabbits. In the city, the only things to run down were rats and cats and scrawny dogs. The pot shops would give you a fistful of coppers for a litter of pups, she heard, but she didn't like to think about that. Down below the street of flour was a maze of twisting alleys and cross streets. Arya scrambled through the crowds, trying to put distance between her and the gold cloaks. She had learned to keep to the center of the street. Sometimes she had to dodge wagons and horses, but at least you could see them coming. If you walked near the buildings, people grabbed you. In some alleys, you couldn't help but brush against the walls. The buildings leaned in so close they almost met. A whooping gang of small children went running past, chasing a rolling hoop. Arya stared at them with resentment, remembering the times she'd played at hoops with Bran and John and their baby brother Rickon. She wondered how big Rickon had grown, and whether Bran was sad. She would have given anything if John had been here to call her little sister and muss her hair. Not that it needed mussing. She'd seen her reflection in puddles, and she didn't think hair got any more must than hers. She had tried talking to the children she saw on the street, hoping to make a friend who would give her a place to sleep but she must have talked wrong or something. The little ones only looked at her with quick, wary eyes and ran away if she came too close. Their big brothers and sisters asked questions Arya couldn't answer, called her names, and tried to steal from her. Only yesterday, a scrawny, barefoot girl, twice her age, had knocked her down and tried to pull her boots off her feet. But Arya gave her a crack on the ear with her stick-sword 
that sent her off sobbing and bleeding. A gull wheeled overhead as she made her way down the hill toward Flea Bottom. Arya glanced at it thoughtfully, but it was well beyond the reach of her stick. It made her think of the sea. Maybe that was the way out. Old Nan used to tell stories of boys who stowed away on trading galleys and sailed off into all kinds of adventures. Maybe Arya could do that too. She decided to visit the riverfront. It was on the way to the Mudgate anyway, and she hadn't checked that one today. The wharfs were utterly quiet when Arya got there. She spied another pair of gold cloaks walking side by side through the fish market, but they never so much as looked at her. Half the stores were empty, and it seemed to her that there were fewer ships at dock than she remembered. Out on the black water, three of the king's war galleys moved in formation, gold-painted hulls splitting the water as their oars rose and fell. Arya watched them for a bit. They began to make her way along the river. When she saw the guardsmen on the third pier, in grey woolen cloaks trimmed with white satin, her heart almost stopped in her chest. The sight of Winterfell's colours brought tears to her eyes. Behind them, a sleek, three-banked trading galley rocked at her moorings. Arya could not read the name painted on the hull. The words were strange. Murrish, Bravassi, perhaps even High Valerian. She grabbed a passing longshoreman by the sleeve. Please, she said, what ship is this? She's a wind witch out of myrrh, the man said. She's still here, Arya blurted. The longshoreman gave her a queer look, shrugged, and walked away. Arya ran toward the pier. The wind witch was the ship father had hired to take her home, still waiting. She imagined it had sailed ages ago. Two of the guardsmen were dicing together while the third walked rounds, his hand on the pommel of his sword. Ashamed to let them see her crying like a baby, she stopped to rub her eyes. Her eyes, her eyes, her eyes. Why did... Look with your eyes, she heard Sirio whisper. Arya looked. She knew all of her father's men. The three in the grey cloaks were strangers. You, the one walking the rounds, called out. What do you want here, boy? The other two looked up from their dice. It was all Arya could do not to bolt and run. But she knew that if she did, they would be after her at once. She made herself walk closer. They were looking for a girl, but he thought she was a boy. She'd be a boy then. Want to buy a pigeon? She showed them the dead bird. Get out of here, the guardsman said. Arya did as he told her. She did not have to pretend to be frightened. Behind her, the men went back to their dice. She could not have said how she got back to Flea Bottom, but she was breathing hard by the time she reached the narrow, crooked, unpaved streets between the hills. The bottom had a stench to it, a stench of pigsties and stables and tanner's sheds, mixed in with a sour smell of wine sinks and cheap whorehouses. 
Arya wound her way through the maze dully. It was not until she caught a whiff of bubbling brown coming through a pot-shop door that she realized her pigeon was gone. It must have slipped from her belt as she ran, or someone had stolen it and she never noticed. For a moment she wanted to cry again. She'd have to walk all the way back to the street of flower to find another one that plump. Far across the city, bells began to ring. Aria glanced up, listening, wondering what the ringing meant this time. "'What's this now?' a fat man called from the pot-shop. "'The bells again, God of mercy,' wailed an old woman. A red-headed whore, in a wisp of painted silk, pushed open a second-story window. "'Is it the boy king that's died now?' she shouted down, leaning out over the street. "'Ah, that's a boy for you!' <laughs> They never last long. She laughed. A naked man slid his arm around her from behind, biting her neck and rubbing the heavy white breasts that hung loose beneath her shift. Stupid slut, the fat man shouted up. The king's not dead. That's only summoning bells. One tower tolling. When the king dies, they ring every bell in the city. Eh, uh, quit your biting, or I'll ring your bells, the woman in the window said to the man behind her, pushing him off with an elbow. So who is it died, if not the king? It's a summoning, the fat man repeated. Two boys close to Arya's age scampered past, splashing through a puddle. The old woman cursed them, but they kept right on going. Other people were moving too, heading up the hill to see what the noise was about. Arya ran after the slower boy. Where are you going? She shouted when she was right behind him. What's happening? He glanced back without slowing. The gold cloaks is carrying him to the sept. Who? She yelled, running hard. The end. They'll be taking his head off, Boo says. A passing wagon had left a deep rut in the street. The boy leapt over, but Arya never saw it. She tripped and fell face first, scraping her knee open on a stone and smashing her fingers where her hand hit the hard-packed earth. Needle tangled between her legs. She sobbed as she struggled to her knees. The thumb of her left hand was covered with blood. When she sucked on it, she saw that half the thumbnail was gone, ripped off in the fall. Her hand scrubbed, and her knee was all bloody too. "'Make way!' somebody shouted from the cross street. "'Make way for my lords of red wine!' It was all Arya could do to get out of the road before they ran her down, four guardsmen on huge horses, pounding past at a gallop. They wore check cloaks, blue and burgundy. Behind them, two young lordlings rode side by side on a pair of chestnut mares alike as peas in a pod. Arya had seen them in the bailey a hundred times. The red wine twins, Sahoris and Sahaba, homely youths with orange hair and square freckled faces. Sansa and Jane Poole used to call them Sahara and Sir Slobber and giggle whenever they caught sight of them. They did not look funny now. Everyone was moving in the same direction, all in a hurry to see what the ringing was all about. The bells seemed louder now, clanging calling. 
Arya joined the stream of people. Her thumb hurt so bad where the nail had broken that it was all she could do not to cry. She bit her lip as she limped along, listening to the excited voices around her. The King's Hand, Lord Stark, they're carrying him up to Baylor's Sept. I heard he was dead. Soon enough, soon enough. Here, <laughs> I got me a silver stag, says they lop his head off. Pastime, the traitor, the man spat. Arya struggled to find a voice. He never, she started, but she was only a child, and they talked right over her. Fool, they ain't neither going to lop him. Since when do they nick traitors on the steps of the great sept? Well, they don't mean to anoint him no knight. I heard it was Stark killed old King Robert, slit his throat in the woods, and when they found him, he stood there, cool as you please, and said it was some old boar did for his grace. Aye, and that's not true. It was his own brother did him, that Renly, him with the gold antlers. You shut your lying mouth, woman. You don't know what you're saying. His lordship's a fine, true man. By the time they reached the street of the sisters, they were packed in shoulder to shoulder. Arya let the human current carry her along up to the top of Visenya's hill. The white marble plaza was a solid mass of people, all yammering excitedly at each other and straining to get closer to the great sept of Baylor. The bells were very loud here. Arya squirmed through the press, ducking between the legs of horses and clutching tight to a sword stick. From the middle of the crowd, all she could see were arms and legs and stomachs, and the seven slender towers of the sept looming overhead. She spotted a wood wagon and thought to climb up on the back, where she might be able to see. But others had the same idea. The teamster cursed at them and drove them off with a crack of his whip. Arya grew frantic, Forcing her way to the front of the crowd, she was shoved up against the stone of a plinth. She looked up at Baylor, the Blessed, the Septon King. Sliding her stick-sword through her belt, Arya began to climb. Her broken thumbnail left smears of blood on the painted marble, but she made it up and wedged herself in between the king's feet. That was when she saw her father. Lord Eddard stood on the high septon's pulpit outside the doors of the sept, supported between two of the gold cloaks. He was dressed in a rich grey velvet doublet, with a white wolf sewn on the front in beads, and a grey wool cloak trimmed with fur. But he was thinner than Arya had ever seen him, his long face drawn with pain. He was not standing so much as being held up, the cast over his broken leg was grey and rotten. The High Septon himself stood behind him, a squat man, grey with age and ponderously fat, wearing long white robes and an immense crown of spun gold and crystal that wreathed his head with rainbows whenever he moved. Clustered around the doors of the sept, in front of the raised marble pulpit, were a knot of knights and high lords. Joffrey was prominent among them, his raiment all crimson, silk and satin 
patterned with prancing stags and roaring lions, a gold crown on his head. His queen mother stood beside him in a black morning gown slashed with crimson, a veil of black diamonds in her hair. Arya recognized the hound, wearing a snowy white cloak over his dark grey armour, with four of the king's guard around him. She saw Varys, the eunuch, gliding among the lords in soft slippers and a patterned damask robe, and she thought the short man with a silvery cape and pointed beard might be the one who had once fought a duel for mother. And there, in the midst, was Sansa, dressed in sky-blue silk, with her long auburn hair washed and curled, and silver bracelets on her wrist. Arya scowled, wondering what her sister was doing here, why she looked so happy. A long line of gold-cloaked spearmen held back the crowd, commanded by a stout man in elaborate armour, all black lacquer and gold filigree. His cloak had the metallic shimmer of true cloth of gold. When the bell ceased to toll, a quiet slowly settled across the great plaza, and her father lifted his head and began to speak, his voice so thin and weak she could scarcely make him out. People behind her began to shout out, What? and Louder! The man in the black and gold armour stepped up behind father and prodded him sharply. You leave him alone, Arya wanted to shout, but she knew no one would listen. She chewed her lip. Her father raised his voice and began again. I am Eddard Stark, Lord of Winterfell, and Hand of the King, he said more loudly, his voice carrying across the plaza, and I come before you to confess my treason in the sight of gods and men. "'No!' Arya whimpered. Below her, the crowd began to scream and shout. Taunts and obscenities filled the air. Sansa had hidden her face in her hands. Her father raised his voice still higher, straining to be heard. "'I betrayed the faith of my king and the trust of my friend Robert,' he shouted. "'I swore to defend and protect his children. Yet before his blood was cold, I plotted to depose and murder his son, and seize the throne for myself. Let the High Septon and Baelor the Beloved and the Seven bear witness to the truth of what I say. Joffrey Baratheon is the one true heir to the Iron Throne, and by the grace of all the gods, lord of the seven kingdoms, and protector of the realm. A stone came sailing out of the crowd. Arya cried out as she saw her father hit. The gold cloaks kept him from falling. Blood ran down his face from a deep gash across his forehead. More stones followed. One struck the guard to father's left. Another went clanging off the breastplate of the knight in the black and gold armor. Two of the king's guard stepped in front of Joffrey and the queen, protecting them with their shields. 
Her hand slid beneath her cloak and found needle in its sheath. She tightened her fingers around the grip, squeezing as hard as she had ever squeezed anything. Please, guards, keep him safe, she prayed. Don't let them hurt my father. The High Septon knelt before Joffrey and his mother. Yes, we sin, and so do we suffer, he intoned in a deep, swelling voice, much louder than father's. This man has confessed his crimes in the sight of God and men, here in this holy place. Rainbows dance around his head as he lifted his hands in entreaty. The gods are just, yet blessed Baelor taught us that they are also merciful. What shall be done with this traitor, your grace? A thousand voices were screaming, but Arya never heard them. Prince Joffrey, no, King Joffrey, stepped out from behind the shields of his king's guard. My mother bids me let Lord Eddard take the black, and Lady Sansa has begged mercy for her father. He looked straight at Sansa then, and smiled, and for a moment Arya thought that the guards had heard her prayer, until Joffrey turned back to the crowd and said, But they have the soft hearts of women. So long as I am your king, treason shall never go unpunished. Sir Ilion, bring me his head. The crowd roared, and Arya felt the statue of Baelor rock as they surged against it. The High Septon clutched at the king's cape, and Varys came rushing over, waving his arms, and even the queen was saying something to him, but Joffrey shook his head. Lords and knights moved aside as he stepped through, tall and fleshless, a skeleton in iron mail, the king's justice. Dimly, as from far off, Arya heard her sister scream. Sansa had fallen to her knees, sobbing hysterically. Sir Ilian Payne climbed the steps of the pulpit. Arya wriggled between Baylor's feet and threw herself into the crowd, drawing needle. She landed on a man in a butcher's apron, knocking him to the ground. Immediately someone slammed into her back, and she almost went down herself. Bodies closed in around her, stumbling and pushing, trampling on the poor butcher. Arya slashed at them with needle. High atop the pulpit, Sir Ilian Payne gestured, and the knight in black and gold gave a command. The gold cloaks flung Lord Eddard to the marble, with his head and chest out over the edge. "'Here, you!' an angry voice shouted Arya, but she bowled past, shoving people aside, squirming between them, slamming into anyone in her way. A hand fumbled at her leg, and she hacked at it, kicked at shins. A woman stumbled, and Arya ran up her back, cutting to both sides, but it was no good, no good. There were too many people. No sooner did she make a hole than it closed again. Someone buffeted her aside. She could still hear Sansa screaming. Sir Ilian drew a two-handed greatsword from the scabbard on his back. As he lifted the blade above his head, sunlight seemed to ripple and dance down the dark metal 
glinting off an edge sharper than any razor. Ice, she thought. He has ice. Her tears streamed down her face, blinding her. And then a hand shut out of the press and closed around her arm like a wolf trap so hard that needle went flying from her hand. Arya was wrenched off her feet. She would have fallen if he hadn't held her up. As easy as if she were a doll. A face pressed close to hers, long black hair and tangled beard and rotten teeth. Don't look, a thick voice snarled at her. I, 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 Arya sobbed. The old man shook her so hard, her teeth rattled. Shut your mouth and close your eyes, boy. Dimly, as if from far away, she heard a, a noise, a soft, sighing sound, as if a million people had let out their breath at once. The old man's fingers dug into her arm, stiff as iron. Look at me. Yes, that's the way of it. At me. Sarwine perfumed his breath. Remember, boy. It was the smell that did it. Arya saw the matted, greasy hair, the patched, dusty, black cloak that covered his twisted shoulders, the hard black eyes squinting at her, and she remembered the black brother who had come to visit her father. Know me now, do you? There's a bright boy. He spat. They are done here. You'll be coming with me. <laughs> and you'll be keeping your mouth shut. When she started to reply, he shook her again even harder. Shut, I said. The plaza was beginning to empty. The press dissolved around them as people drifted back to their lives. But Arya's life was gone. Numb, she trailed along beside... Yorin. Yes. His name is Yorin. She did not recall him finding Needle until he handed the sword back to her. Hope you can use that, boy. I'm not, she started. He shoved her into a doorway, thrust dirty fingers through her hair, gave it a twist, yanking her head back. Not a smart boy. That what you mean to say? He had a knife in his other hand. As the blade flashed toward her face, Arya threw herself backward, kicking wildly, wrenching her head from side to side. But he had her by the hair so strong she could feel her scalp tearing, and on her lips the salt taste of tears. Bran The oldest were men-grown, seventeen or eighteen years from the day of their naming. One was past twenty. Most were younger, sixteen or less. Bran watched them from the balcony of Maester Lewin's turret, listening to them grunt and strain and curse as they swung their staves and wooden swords. The yard was alive to the clack of wood on wood, punctuated all too often by thwacks and yowls of pain when a blow struck leather or flesh. Sir Roderick strode among the boys, face reddening beneath his white whiskers, muttering at them, one and all, 
Bren had never seen the old knight look so fierce. No, he kept saying, no, no, no. They don't fight very well, Bren said dubiously. He scratched Summer idly behind the ears as the direwolf tore at a haunch of meat. Bones crunched between his teeth. For a certainty, Maester Lewin agreed with a deep sigh. The Maester was peering through his big mirish lens tube, measuring shadows and noting the position of the comet that hung low in the morning sky. Yet given time, Sir Roderick has the truth of it. We need men to walk the walls. Your lord father took the cream of his guard to King's Landing, and your brother took the rest, along with all the likely lads for leagues around. Many will not come back to us, and we must needs find the men to take their places. Bran stared resentfully at the sweating boys below. If I still had my legs, I could beat them all. He remembered the last time he'd held a sword in his hand, when the king had come to Winterfell. It was only a wooden sword, yet he'd knocked Prince Tommen down half a hundred times. Sir Roderick should teach me to use a polex if I had a polex with a big long haft. Hodor could be my legs. We could be a knight together. I think that unlikely, Mr. Lewin said. Bren, when a man fights, his arms and legs and thoughts must be as one. Below in the yard, Sir Roderick was yelling, You fight like a goose. He pecks you, and you peck him harder. Parry! Block the blow! Goose fighting will not suffice. If those were real swords, the first peck would take your arm off. One of the other boys laughed, and the old knight rounded on him. You laugh, you, now that is gall, you fight like a hedgehog. There was a knight once who couldn't see, Bran said stubbornly, as Sir Roderick went on below. Old Nan told me about him. He had a long staff with blades at both ends, and he could spin it in his hands and chop two men at once. Simeon Star-Eyes, Lewin said, as he marked numbers in a book. When he lost his eyes, he put star-sapphires in the empty sockets, or so the singers claim. Bran, that is only a story like the tales of Florian the Fool, a fable from the age of heroes. The maester tisked. You must put these dreams aside, and they will only break your heart. The mention of dreams reminded him. I dreamt about the crow again last night, the one with three eyes. He flew into my bedchamber and told me to come with him, so I did. We went down to the crypts. Father was there and we talked. He was sad. And why was that? Lewin peered through his tube. It was something to do about John, I think. The dream had been deeply disturbing, more so than any of the other crow dreams. Hodor won't go down into the crypts. The maester had only been half listening, Bran could tell. He lifted his eye from the tube, blinking. Hodor won't go down into the crypts. When I woke, I told him to take me down to see if father was truly there. At, at, at first, he didn't know what I was saying, but I got him to the steps by telling him to go here and go there. Only then he wouldn't go down. He just stood on the top step and said, Hodor, like he was scared of the dark. But I had a torch. It made me so mad I almost gave him a swat in the head, like old Nan is always doing. 
He saw the way the maester was frowning, and hurriedly added, I didn't, though. Good. Hodor is a man, not a mule to be beaten. In the dream, I flew down with a crow. But I can't do that when I'm awake, Bran explained. Why would you want to go down to the crypts? I told you, to look for father. The maester tugged at the chain around his neck, as he often did when he was uncomfortable. Bran, sweet child, one day Lord Eddard will sit below in stone, beside his father and his father's father, and all the Starks back to the old kings in the north. Uh, but that will not be for many years, gods be good. Your father is a prisoner of the Queen in King's Landing. You will not find him in the crypts. He was there last night. I talked to him. Uh, stubborn boy, the maester sighed, setting his book aside. Would you like to go see? I can't. Hodor won't go, and the steps are too narrow and twisty for Dancer. I believe I can solve that difficulty. In place of Hodor, the wildling woman, Osha, was summoned. She was tall and tough and uncomplaining, willing to go wherever she was commanded. I've lived my life beyond the wall. A hole in the ground won't fret me none, my lords, she said. Summer, come, Bran called as she lifted him in wiry, strong arms. The dire wolf left his bone and followed as Usher carried Bran across the yard and down the spiral steps to the cold vault under the earth. Maester Lewin went ahead with a torch. Bran did not even mind, too badly, that she carried him in her arms and not on her back. Sir Roderick had ordered Usher's chain struck off, since she had served faithfully and well, since she had been at Winterfell. She still wore the heavy iron shackles around her ankles, a sign that she was not yet wholly trusted. But they did not hinder her sure strides down the steps. Bran could not recall the last time he'd been in the crypts. It had been before, for certain. When he was little, he used to play down here with Rob and John and his sisters. He wished they were here now. The vault might not have seemed so dark and scary. Summer stalked out in the echoing gloom, then stopped, lifted his head, and sniffed the chill, dead air. He bared his teeth and crept backward, eyes glowing golden in the light of the maester's torch. Even Usher, hard as iron, seemed uncomfortable. Grim folks, by the look of them, she said as she eyed the long row of granite stalks on their stone thrones. They were the kings of winter, Bran whispered. Somehow it felt wrong to talk too loudly in this place. Osher smiled. Winter's got no king. If you'd seen it, you'd know that, summer boy. They were the kings of the north for thousands of years. Maester Lewin said, lifting the torch high so the light shone on the stone faces. Some were hairy and bearded, shaggy men, fierce as the wolves that crouched by their feet. Others were shaved clean, their features gaunt and sharp-edged as the iron longswords across their laps. Hard men for a hard time. Come. He strode briskly down the vault, past the procession of stone pillars and the endless carved figures. A tongue of flame trailed back, from the upraised torch as he went. The vault was cavernous, 
longer than Winterfell itself, and John had told him once that there were other levels underneath, vaults even deeper and darker, where the older kings were buried. It would not do to lose the light. Summer refused to move from the steps, even when Usher followed the torch, Bran in her arms. "'Do you recall your history, Bran?' the maester said as they walked. Uh, "'Tell Usher who they were and what they did, if you can.' He looked at the passing faces, and the tales came back to him. The maester had told him the stories, and old Nan had made them come alive. "'That one is John Stark. When the sea raiders landed in the east, he drove them out and built the castle at White Harbour.' His son was Rickard Stark, not my father's father, but another Rickard. He took the neck away from the March King and married his daughter. Theon Starks, the real thin one with the long hair and the skinny beard, they called him the Hungry Wolf because he was always at war. That's a Brandon, the tall one with a dreamy face. He was Brandon the Shipwright because he loved the sea. His tomb is empty. He tried to sail west across the Sunset Sea and was never seen again. His son was Brandon the Burner because he put the torch to all his father's ships in grief. There's Roderick Stark, who won Bear Island in a wrestling match and gave it to the Mormons. And that's Torren Stark, the king who knelt. He was the last king in the north and the first lord of Winterfell after he yielded to Aegon the Conqueror. Oh, and there, he's Cregenstark. He fought with Prince Aemon once, and the Dragon Knight said he'd never faced a finer swordsman. They were almost at the end now, and Bran felt a sadness creeping over him. Oh, and there's my grandfather, Lord Rickard, who was beheaded by Mad King Aerys. His daughter, Lyanna, and his son, Brandon, are in the tombs beside him. Not me, another Brandon, my father's brother. They're not supposed to have statues. That's only for the lords and the kings. But my father loved them so much, he had them done. The maid's a fair one, Usher said. Robert was betrothed to marry her, but Prince Rhaegar carried her off and raped her, Bran explained. Robert fought a war to win her back. He killed Rhaegar on the trident with his hammer, but Lyanna died, and he never got her back at all. A sad tale, said Usher. But those empty holes are sadder. Lord Eddard's tomb, for when his time comes, Maester Lewin said. Is this where you saw your father in your dream, Bren? Yes. The memory made him shiver. He looked around the vault uneasily, the hairs on the back of his neck bristling. Had he heard a noise? Was there someone here? Maester Lewin stepped towards the open sepulchre, torch in hand. As you see, he's not here. Nor will he be for many a year. Dreams are only dreams, child. He thrust his arm into the blackness inside the tomb, as into the mouth of some great beast. Do you see? It's quite empty. The darkness sprang at him, snarling. Bran saw eyes like green fire, a flash of teeth, fur as black as the pit around them. Maester Lewin yelled and threw up his hands. The torch went flying from his fingers, caromed off the stone face of Brandon Stark, and tumbled to the statue's feet, the flames licking up his legs. In the drunken, shifting torchlight, 
they saw Lewin struggling with a direwolf, beating at his muzzle with one hand while the jaws closed on the other. Summer! Bran screamed. And Summer came, shooting from the dimness behind them a leaping shadow. He slammed into Shaggy Dog and knocked him back, and the two direwolves rolled over and over in a tangle of grey and black fur, snapping and biting at each other, while Maester Lewin struggled to his knees, his arm torn and bloody. Usher propped Bran up against Lord Rickard's stone wolf as she hurried to assist the maester. In the light of the guttering torch, shadow wolves twenty feet tall fought on the wall and roof. Shaggy, a small voice called. When Bran looked up, his little brother was standing in the mouth of father's tomb. With one final snap at Summer's face, Shaggy Dog broke off and bounded to Rickon's side. You let my father be, Rickon warned Lewin. You let him be. Rickon, Bran said softly, father's not here. Yes, he is. I saw him. Tears glistened on Rickon's face. I saw him last night. In your dream? Rickon nodded. You leave him. You leave him be. He's coming home now, like he promised. He's coming home. Bran had never seen Maester Lewin look so uncertain before. Blood dripped down his arm, where Shaggy Dog had shredded the wool of his sleeve and the flesh beneath. Asha, the torch, he said, biting through his pain, and she snatched it up before it went out. Soot stains blackened both legs of his uncle's likeness. That, that beast, Lewin went on, is supposed to be chained up in the kennels. Rickon patted Shaggy Dog's muzzle, damp with blood. I let him loose. He, he doesn't like chains. He licked at his fingers. Rickon, Bran said, would you like to come with me? No, I like it here. It's dark here and cold. I'm not afraid. I have to wait for father. You can wait with me, Bran said. We'll wait together. You and me and our wolves. Both of the dire wolves were licking wounds now, and would bear close watching. Bran, the maester said firmly, I know you mean well, but Shaggy Dog is too wild to run loose. I'm the third man he's savaged. Give him the freedom of the castle, and it's only a question of time before he kills someone. The truth is hard, but the wolf has to be chained, or... He hesitated, or killed, Bran thought. But what he said was, he was not made for chains. We will wait in your tower, all of us. That is quite impossible, Mr. Lewin said. Osher grinned. The boy's the lordling here, as I recall. She handed Lewin back his torch and scooped Bran up into her arms again. The maester's tower it is. Will you come, Rickon? His brother nodded. If Shaggy comes too, he said, running after Osher and Bran, and there was nothing Mr. Lewin could do but follow, keeping a wary eye on the walls. Maester Lewin's turret was so cluttered that it seemed to Bran a wonder that he ever found anything. Tottering piles of books, covered tables and chairs, rows of stoppered jars lined the shelves, candle stubs and puddles of dried wax dotted the furniture, the bronze Moorish lens tube sat on a tripod by the terrace door. Star charts hung from the walls. 
Shadow maps lay scattered among the rushes. Papers, quills, and pots of ink were everywhere, and all of it was spotted with droppings from the ravens in the rafters. Their strident quarks drifted down from above as Usher washed and cleaned and bandaged the maester's wounds, under Lewin's terse instruction. This is folly, the small grey man said, while she dabbed at the wolf's bites with a stinging ointment. I agree that it is odd that both you boys dreamed the same dream, yet when you stop to consider it, it's only natural. You miss your lord father, and you know that he is a captive. Fear can fever a man's mind and give him queer thoughts. Rickon is too young to comprehend. I'm four now, Rickon said. He was peering through the lens tube at the gargoyles on the first keep. The direwolves sat on opposite sides of the large round room, licking their wounds and gnawing on bones. Too young and, oh, seven hells, that burns. No, no, don't stop. More. Too young, as I say, but you, Bran, you're old enough to know that dreams are only dreams. Some are, some aren't. Usher poured pale red fire milk into a long gash. Lewin gasped. The children of the forest could tell you a thing or two about dreaming. Tears were streaming down the maester's face, yet he shook his head doggedly. The children live only in dreams. Now, dead and gone. Enough, that's enough. Now the bandages. Pads and then wrap. And, and make it tight. I'll be bleeding. Old Nan says the children knew the songs of the trees, that they could fly like birds and swim like fish and talk to the animals, Bran said. She says that they made music so beautiful that it made you cry like a little baby just to hear it. And all this they did with magic, Maester Lewin said, distracted. I wish they were here now. A spell would heal my arm less painfully, and they could talk to Shaggy Dog and tell him not to bite. He gave the big black wolf an angry glance out of the corner of his eye. Take a lesson, Bran. The man who trusts in spells is dueling with a glass sword, as the children did. Here, let me show you something. He stood abruptly, crossed the room, and returned with a green jar in his good hand. Have a look at these, he said, as he pulled the stopper and shook out a handful of shiny black arrowheads. Bran picked one up. It's made of glass. Curious, Rickon drifted closer, to peer over the table. Dragon glass, Usher named it, as she sat down beside Lewin, bandagings in hand. Obsidian, Maester Lewin insisted, holding out his wounded arm, forged in the fires of the gods far below the earth. The children of the forest hunted with that thousands of years ago. The children worked no metal. In place of mail, they wore long shirts of woven leaves and bound their legs in bark, so that they seemed to melt into the wood. In place of swords, they carried blades of obsidian. And still do. Osher placed soft pads over the bites on the maester's forearm and bound them tight with long strips of linen. Bran held the arrowhead up close. The black glass was slick and shiny. He thought it beautiful. Can I keep one? As you wish, the maester said. I want one too, Rickon said. I want four. I'm four. 
Lewin made him count them out. Be careful. They're still sharp. Don't cut yourself. Tell me about the children, Bran said. It was important. What do you wish to know? Everything. Maester Lewin tugged his chain collar where it chafed against his neck. They were the people of the Dawn Age, the very first, before kings and kingdoms, he said. In those days there were no castles or holdfasts, no cities, not so much as a market town to be found between here and the Sea of Dawn. There were no men at all. Only the children of the forest dwelt in the lands we now call the Seven Kingdoms. There were a people, dark and beautiful, small of stature, no taller than children, even when grown to manhood. They lived in the depths of the wood, in caves and crannogs and secret tree-towns. Slight as they were, the children were quick and graceful. Male and female hunted together, with weirwood bows and flying snares. Their gods were the gods of the forest, stream, and stone, the old gods, whose names are secret. Their wise men were called green seers, and carved strange faces in the weirwoods to keep watch on the woods. How long the children reigned here, or where they came from, no man can know. But some twelve thousand years ago, the first men appeared from the east, crossing the broken arm of dawn before it was broken. They came with bronze swords and great leather shields riding horses. No horse had ever been seen on this side of the narrow sea. No doubt the children were as frightened by the horses as the first men were by the faces in the trees. As the first men carved out whole fasts and farms, they cut down the faces and gave them to the fire. Horror-struck, the children went to war. The old songs say that the green seers used dark magics to make the sea rise and sweep away the land, shattering the arm. But it was too late to close the door. The wars went on until the earth ran red with blood of men and children both. But more children than men, for men were bigger and stronger, and wood and stone and obsidian make a poor match for bronze. Finally, the wise of both races prevailed, and the chiefs and heroes of the first men met the green seers and wood dancers amidst the weirwood groves of a small island in the great lake called God's Eye. There they forged the pact. The first men were given the coastlands, the high plains and bright meadows, the mountains and bogs, but the deep woods were to remain forever the children's, and no more weirwoods were to be put to the axe anywhere in the realm. So the gods might bear witness to the signing, every tree on the island was given a face, and afterward the sacred order of green men was formed to keep watch over the Isle of Faces. The pact began four thousand years of friendship between men and children. In time the first men even put aside the gods they had brought with them, and took up the worship of the secret gods of the wood.
the signing of the pact ended the Dawn Age and began the Age of Heroes. Bran's fist curled around the shiny black arrowhead. But the children of the forest are all gone now, you said. Here they are, said Osha, as she bit off the end of the last bandage with her teeth. North of the wall, things are different. That's where the children went, and the giants, and the other old races. Maester Lewin sighed. Oh, woman, by rights you ought to be dead or in chains. The Starks have treated you more gently than you deserve. It is unkind to repay them for their kindness by filling the boys' heads with folly. Tell me where they went, Bran said. I want to know. Me too, Rickon echoed. Oh, very well, Lewin muttered. So long as the kingdoms of the first men held sway, the pact endured. All through the age of heroes and the long night and the birth of the seven kingdoms. Yet finally there came a time, many centuries later, when other peoples crossed the narrow sea. The Andals were the first, a race of tall, fair-haired warriors who came with steel and fire and the seven-pointed star of the new gods painted on their chests. The wars lasted hundreds of years, but in the end the six southern kingdoms all fell before them. Only here, where the king of the north threw back every army that tried to cross the neck, did the rule of the first men endure. The Andals burnt out the weirwood groves, hacked down the faces, slaughtered the children where they found them, and everywhere proclaimed the triumph of the seven over the old gods. So the children fled north. Summer began to howl. Mr. Lewin broke off, startled. When Shaggy Dog bounded to his feet and added his voice to his brother's, dread clutched at Bran's heart. It's coming, he whispered, with a certainty of despair. He had known it since last night, he realized, since the crow had led him down into the crypts to say farewell. He had known it, but he had not believed. He had wanted Maester Lewin to be right. The crow, he thought, the three-eyed crow. The howling stopped as suddenly as it had begun. Summer padded across the tower floor to Shaggy Dog and began to lick at a mat of bloody fur on the back of his brother's neck. From the window came a flutter of wings. A raven landed on the grey stone sill, opened its beak, and gave a harsh, raucous rattle of distress. Rickon began to cry. His arrowheads fell from his hand one by one and clattered on the floor. Bran pulled him close and hugged him. Maester Lewin stared at the black bird as if it were a scorpion with feathers. He rose, slow as a sleepwalker, and moved to the window. When he whistled, the raven hopped onto his bandaged forearm. There was dried blood on its wings. A hawk! Lewin muttered. Perhaps an owl. A poor thing. I wonder it got through. He took the letter from its leg. Bran found himself shivering 
as the maester unrolled the paper. "'What is it?' he said, holding his brother all the harder. "'You know what it is, boy,' Usher said, not unkindly. She put her hand on his head. Maester Lewin looked up at them, numbly. A small, grey man, with blood on the sleeve of his grey wool robe and tears in his bright grey eyes. My lords, he said to the sons, in a voice gone hoarse and shrunken, we, we shall need to find a stone carver who knew his likeness well. Sansa In the tower room, at the heart of Magor's Holdfast, Sansa gave herself to the darkness. She drew the curtains around her bed, slept, woke weeping, and slept again. When she could not sleep, she lay under the blankets, shivering with grief. Servants came and went, bringing meals, but the sight of food was more than she could bear. The dishes piled up on the table beneath her window, untouched and spoiling, until the servants took them away again. Sometimes her sleep was leaden and dreamless, and she woke from it more tired than when she had closed her eyes. Yet those were the best times, for when she dreamed, she dreamed of father. Waking or sleeping, she saw him, saw the gold cloaks fling him down, saw Sir Ilian striding forward, unsheathing ice from the scabbard on his back, saw the moment, the moment when she had wanted to look away. She had wanted to. Her legs had gone out from under her, and she had fallen to her knees. Yet somehow she could not turn her head, and all the people were screaming and shouting. And her prince had smiled at her. He'd smiled, and she'd felt safe, but only for a heartbeat, until he said those words, and her father's legs. That was what she remembered, his legs, the way they jerked when Sir Ilian, when the sword. Perhaps I will die too, she told herself, and the thought did not seem so terrible to her. If she flung herself from the window, she could put an end to her suffering, and in the years to come the singers would write songs of her grief. Her body would lie on the stones below, broken and innocent, shaming all those who had betrayed her. Sansa went so far as to cross the bedchamber and throw open the shutters. But then her courage left her, and she ran back to her bed, sobbing. The serving girls tried to talk to her when they brought her meals, but she never answered them. Once Grand Maester Pycelle came, with a box of flasks and bottles, to ask if she was ill. He felt her brow, made her undress, and touched her all over while her bedmaid held her down. When he left, he gave her a potion of honey water and herbs and told her to drink a swallow every night. She drank it all right then and went back to sleep. She dreamt of footsteps on the tower stair, an ominous scraping of leather on stone as a man climbed slowly toward her bedchamber, step by step. All she could do 
was huddled behind the door and listened, trembling as he came closer and closer. It was Sir Ilian Payne, she knew, coming for her, with ice in his hand, coming to take her head. There was no place to run, no place to hide, no way to bar the door. Finally, the footsteps stopped, and she knew he was just outside, standing there, silent, with his dead eyes and his long, puffed face. That was when she realized she was naked. She crouched down, trying to cover herself with her hands, as the door began to swing open, creaking, the point of the great sword poking through. She woke, murmuring, Please, please, I'll be good, I'll be good, please don't. But there was no one to hear. When they finally came for her in truth, Sansa never heard their footsteps. It was Joffrey who opened her door. Not Sir Ilian, but the boy who had been her prince. She was in bed, curled up tight, her curtains drawn, and she could not have said if it was noon or midnight. The first thing she heard was the slam of the door. Then her bed hangings were yanked back, and she threw up a hand against the sudden light and saw them standing over her. "'You will attend me in court this afternoon,' Joffrey said. "'See that you bathe and dress as befits my betrothed.' Sandal Clegane stood at his shoulder in a plain brown doublet and green mantle, his burned face hideous in the morning light. Behind them were two knights of the King's Guard in long white satin cloaks. Sansa drew her blanket up to her chin to cover herself. No, she whimpered. Please, leave me be. If you won't rise and dress yourself, my hound will do it for you, Joffrey said. I beg of you, my prince, I'm king now. Dog, get her out of bed. Sandor Clegane scooped her up around the waist and lifted her off the feather bed as she struggled feebly. Her blanket fell to the floor. Underneath, she had only a thin bedgown to cover her nakedness. Do as you bid, child, Clegane said. Dress. He pushed her toward her wardrobe, almost gently. Sansa backed away from them. I did as the Queen asked. I wrote the letters. I wrote what she told me. You promised you'd be merciful. Please let me go home. I won't do any treason. I'll be good, I swear it. I don't have traitor's blood. I don't. I only want to go home. Remembering her courtesies, she lowered her head. As it please you, she finished weakly. It does not please me, Geoffrey said. Mother says I'm still to marry you, so you'll stay here and you'll obey. I don't want to marry you, Sansa wailed. You chopped off my father's head. He was a traitor. I never promised to spare him, only that I'd be merciful, and I was. If he hadn't been your father, I would have had him torn or flayed, but I gave him a clean death. Sansa stared at him, seeing him for the first time. He was wearing a padded crimson doublet, patterned with lions, and a cloth of gold cape with a high collar that framed his face. She wondered how she could ever have thought him handsome. His lips were as soft and red as the worms you found after a rain. 
and his eyes were vain and cruel. I hate you, she whispered. King Joffrey's face hardened. My mother tells me that it isn't fitting that a king should strike his wife. Sir Merrin. The night was on her before she could think, ganking back her hand as she tried to shield her face and backhanding her across the ear with a gloved fist. Sansa did not remember falling, yet the next she knew she was sprawled on one knee amongst the rushes. Her head was ringing. Samarin Trant stood over her with blood on the knuckles of his white silk glove. Will you obey now, or shall I have him chastise you again? Sansa's ear felt numb. She touched it, and her fingertips came away wet and red. I, as, as you command, my lord. Your grace, Joffrey corrected her. I shall look for you in court. He turned and left. Sir Merin and Sir Ares followed him out, but Sandor Clegane lingered long enough to yank her roughly to her feet. Save yourself some pain, girl, and give him what he wants. What, what does he want? Please tell me. He wants you to smile and smell sweet and be his lady love, the hound rasped. He wants to hear you recite all your pretty little words the way the scepter taught you. He wants you to love him and fear him. After he was gone, Sansa sank back onto the rushes, staring at the wall until two of her bedmaids crept timidly into the chamber. I will need hot water for my bath, please, she told them, and perfume, and some powder to hide this bruise. The right side of her face was swollen and beginning to ache, but she knew Joffrey would want her to be beautiful. The hot water made her think of Winterfell, and she took strength from that. She had not washed since the day her father died, and she was startled at how filthy the water became. Her maids sluiced the blood off her face, scrubbed the dirt from her back, washed her hair, and brushed it out, until it sprang back in thick auburn curls. Sansa did not speak to them, except to give them commands. They were Lannister servants, not her own, and she did not trust them. When the time came to dress, she chose the green silk gown that she had worn to the tawny. She recalled how gallant Joff had been to her that night at the feast. Perhaps it would make him remember as well, and treat her more gently. She drank a glass of buttermilk and nibbled at some sweet biscuits as she waited to settle her stomach. It was midday when Sir Merrin returned. He had donned his white armor, a shirt of enamel scales chased with gold, a tall helm with a golden sunburst crest, greaves and gorget and gauntlet and boots of gleaming plate, a heavy wool cloak clasped with a golden lion. His visor had been removed from his helm, to better show his door face, pouchy bags under his eyes, a wide, sour mouth, rusty hair spotted with grey. "'My lady,' he said, bowing, as if he had not beaten her bloody only three hours past, "'his grace has instructed me to escort you to the throne room.' "'Did he instruct you to hit me, if I refuse to come?' "'Are you... Refusing to come, my lady? The look he gave her 
was without expression. He did not so much as glance at the bruise he had left her. He did not hate her, Sansa realized. Neither did he love her. He felt nothing for her at all. She was only a... a thing to him. No, she said, rising. She wanted to rage, to hurt him, as it hurt her, to warn him that when she was queen, she would have him exiled if he ever dared strike her again. But she remembered what the hound had told her, so all she said was, I shall do whatever his grace commands. As I do, he replied. Yes, but you are no true knight, Sir Merrin. Sandor Clegane would have laughed at that, Sansa knew. Other men might have cursed her, warned her to keep silent, even begged for her forgiveness. Sir Merrin Trant did none of these. Sir Merrin Trant simply did not care. The balcony was deserted save for Sansa. She stood with her head bowed, fighting to hold back her tears, while below Joffrey sat on his iron throne and dispensed what it pleased him to call justice. Nine cases out of ten seemed to bore him. Those he allowed his counsel to handle, squirming restlessly while Lord Baelish, Grand Maester Pycell, or Queen Cersei resolved the matter. When he did choose to make a ruling, though, not even his queen mother could sway him. A thief was brought before him, and he had Sir Ilian chop his hand off, right there in court. Two knights came to him with a dispute about some land, and he decreed that they should duel for it on the morrow. To the death, he added. A woman fell to her knees to plead for the head of a man executed as a traitor. She had loved him, she said, and she wanted to see him decently buried. If you loved a traitor, you must be a traitor too, Joffrey said. Two gold cloaks dragged her off to the dungeons. Frog-faced Lord Slint sat at the end of the council table wearing a black velvet doublet and a shiny cloth of gold cape, nodding with approval every time the king pronounced a sentence. Sansa stared hard at his ugly face, remembering how he had thrown down her father for Sir Ilian to behead, wishing she could hurt him, wishing that some hero would throw him down and cut off his head. But a voice inside her whispered, There are no heroes. And she remembered what Lord Patar had said to her here in this very hall. Life is not a song, sweetling, he told her. You may learn that one day, to your sorrow. In life, the monsters win, she told herself. And now it was a hound's voice, she heard a cold rasp, metal on stone. Save yourself some pain, girl, and give me what he wants. The last case was a plump tavern singer, accused of making a song that ridiculed the late King Robert. Joff commanded them to fetch his wood harp, and ordered him to perform the song for the court. The singer wept and swore he would never sing that song again, but the king insisted. It was sort of a funny song, all about Robert fighting with a pig. The pig was a boar who'd killed him, Sansa knew, but in some verses it almost sounded as if he were singing about the queen. When the song was done, Joffrey announced that he'd decided to be merciful. The singer could keep either his fingers or his tongue. 
he would have a day to make his choice. Janus Slint nodded. That was the final business of the afternoon, Sansa saw with relief. But her ordeal was not yet done. When the Herald's voice dismissed the court, she fled the balcony, only to find Joffrey waiting for her at the base of the curving stairs. The hound was with him, and Samarin as well. The young king examined her critically, top to bottom. You look much better than you did. Thank you, your grace, Sansa said. Hollow words, but they made him nod and smile. Walk with me, Joffrey commanded, offering her his arm. She had no choice but to take it. The touch of his hand would have thrilled her once. Now it made her flesh crawl. My name day will be here soon, Joffrey said, as they slipped out the rear of the throne room. There will be a great feast and gifts. What are you going to give me? I, uh, I had not thought, my lord. Your grace, he said sharply, you truly are a stupid girl, aren't you? My mother says so. She does? After all that had happened, his words should have lost their power to hurt her, yet somehow they had not. The queen had always been so kind to her. Oh, yes, she worries about our children, whether they'll be stupid like you. But I told her not to trouble herself. The king gestured, and Sir Merrin opened the door for them. Thank you, your grace, she murmured. The hound was right, she thought. I am only a little bird repeating the words they taught me. The sun had fallen below the western wall, and the stones of the Red Keep glowed dark as blood. "'I'll get you with child, as soon as you're able,' Joffrey said, as he escorted her across the practice yard. "'If the first one is stupid, I'll chop off your head and find a smarter wife. When do you think you'll be able to have children?' Sansa could not look at him. He shamed her so. Septo Mordain says most... Most high-born girls have their flowering at twelve or thirteen. Joffrey nodded. This way, he led her into the gatehouse, to the base of the steps that led up to the battlements. Sansa jerked back away from him, trembling. Suddenly she knew where they were going. No, she said, her voice a frightened gasp. Please, no, don't make me. I beg you. Joffrey pressed his lips together. I want to show you what happens to traitors. Sansa shook her head wildly. I won't. I won't. I can have Sir Merrin drag you up, he said. You won't like that. You'd better do what I say. Joffrey reached for her, and Sansa cringed away from him, backing into the hound. Do it, girl, Sandor Clegane told her, pushing her back toward the king. His mouth twitched on the burned side of his face, and Sansa could almost hear the rest of it. He'll have you up there, no matter what, so give him what he wants. She forced herself to take King Joffrey's hand. The climb was something out of a nightmare. Every step was a struggle, as if she were pulling her feet out of ankle-deep mud, and there were more steps than she would have believed, a thousand, thousand steps, and horror waiting on the ramparts. From the high battlements of the gatehouse, the whole world spread out below them. Sansa could see the great sceptre Baelor on Visenya's hill, where her father had died. At the other end of the Street of the Sisters, 
stood the fire-blackened ruins of the dragon pit. To the west, the swollen red sun was half-hidden behind the gate of the gods. The salt sea was at her back, and to the south was the fish market and the docks, and the swirling torrent of the blackwater rush. And to the north, she turned that way, and saw only the city, streets, and alleys, and hills, and bottoms, and more streets, and more alleys, and the stone of distant walls. Yet she knew that beyond them was open country, farms, and fields, and forests, and beyond that, north, and north, and north again, stood Winterfell. "'What are you looking at?' Joffrey said. "'This is what I wanted you to see, right here.' A thick stone parapet protected the outer ridge of the rampart, reaching as high as Sansa's chin, with crenellations cut into it every five feet for archers. The heads were mounted between the crenels, along the top of the wall, impaled on iron spikes, so they faced out over the city. Sansa had noted them the moment she stepped out onto the wall walk, but the river and the bustling streets and the setting sun were ever so much prettier. He can make me look at the heads, she told herself, but he can't make me see them. This one is your father, he said. This one here. Dog, turn it around so she can see him. Sandor Clegane took the head by the hair and turned it. The severed head had been dipped in tar to preserve it longer. Sansa looked at it calmly, not seeing it at all. It did not really look like Lord Eddard, she thought. It did not even look real. How long do I have to look? Joffrey seemed disappointed. Do you want to see the rest? There was a long row of them. If it please, Your Grace. Joffrey marched her down the wall walk, past a dozen more heads and two empty spikes. I'm saving theirs for my Uncle Stannis and my Uncle Renly, he explained. The other heads had been dead and mounted much longer than her father. Despite the tar, most were long past being recognizable. The king pointed to one and said, That's your scepter there. But Sansa could not even have told that it was a woman. The jaw had rutted off her face, and birds had eaten one ear and most of a cheek. Sansa had wondered what had happened to Scepter Mordain, although she supposed she had known all along. Why did you kill her? she asked. She was Godsworn. She was a traitor. Joffrey looked pouty. Somehow she was upsetting him. You haven't said what you mean to give me for my name day. Maybe I should give you something instead. Would you like that? If it please you, my lord, Sansa said. When he smiled, she knew he was mocking her. Your brother is a traitor too, you know. He turned Septimordain's head back around. I remember your brother from Winterfell. My dog called him the Lord of the Wooden Sword. Didn't you, dog? Did I? The hound replied. I don't recall. Joffrey gave a petulant shrug. Your brother defeated my uncle Jamie. My mother says it was treachery and deceit. She wept when she heard. Women are all weak, even her. 
though she pretends she isn't. She says we need to stay in King's Landing in case my other uncles attack. But I don't care. After my name day feast, I'm going to raise a host and kill your brother myself. That's what I'll give you, Lady Sansa, your brother's head. A kind of madness took over her then, and she heard herself say, Maybe my brother will give me your head. Joffrey scowled. You must never mock me like that. A true wife does not mock her lord. Samaritan, teach her. This time the knight grasped her beneath the jaw and held her head still as he struck her. He hit her twice, left to right and harder right to left. Her lips split and blood ran down her chin to mingle with the salt of her tears. You shouldn't be crying all the time, Joffrey told her. You're more pretty when you smile and laugh. Sansa made herself smile, afraid that he would have Samarin hit her again if she did not. But it was no good. The king still shook his head. Wipe off the blood, you're all messy. The outer parapet came up to her chin, but along the inner edge of the walk was nothing, nothing but a long plunge to the bailey seventy or eighty feet below. All it would take was a shove, she told herself. He was standing right there, right there, smirking at her with those fat worm lips. You could do it, she told herself. You could do it right now. It wouldn't even matter if she went over with him. It wouldn't matter at all. Here, girl. Sandor Clegane knelt before her, between her and Joffrey. With a delicacy surprising in such a big man, he dabbed at the blood welling from her broken lip. The moment was gone. Sansa lowered her eyes. Thank you, she said when he was done. She was a good girl, and always remembered her courtesies. Daenerys Wings shadowed her fevered dreams. You don't want to wake the dragon, do you? She was walking down a long hall beneath high stone arches. She could not look behind her, must not look behind her. There was a door ahead of her, tiny with distance, but even from afar she saw it was painted red. She walked faster, and her bare feet left bloody footprints on the stone. You don't want to wake the dragon, do you? She saw sunlight on the Dothraki Sea, the living plain, rich with smells of earth and death. Wind stirred the grasses, and they rippled like water. Drogo held her in strong arms, and his hand stroked her sex and opened her and woke that sweet wetness that was his alone and the stars smiled down at them, stars in a daylight sky. Home, she whispered, as he entered her and filled her with his seed. But suddenly the stars were gone, and across the blue sky swept the great wings, and the world took flame. Don't want to wake the dragon, do you? Sir Jorah's face was drawn and sorrowful. Rhaegar! was the last dragon, he told her. He warmed translucent hands 
over a glowing brazier where stone eggs smouldered red as coals. One moment he was there, and the next he was fading, his flesh colourless, less substantial than the wind. The last dragon, he whispered, thin as a wisp and was gone. She felt the dark behind her, and the red door seemed farther away than ever. Don't want to wake the dragon, do you? Viserys stood before her, screaming, The dragon does not beg, slut! You do not command the dragon, I am the dragon, and I will be crowned! The molten gold trickled down his face like wax, burning deep channels in his flesh. I am the dragon, and I will be crowned! he shrieked, and his fingers snapped like snakes, biting at her nipples, pinching, twisting, even as his eyes burst and ran like jelly down seared and blackened cheeks. Don't want to wake the dragon. The red door was so far ahead of her, and she could feel the icy breath behind, sweeping up on her. If it caught her, she would die a death that was more than death. Howling forever alone in the darkness, she began to run. Don't want to wake the dragon. She could feel the heat inside her, a terrible burning in her womb. Her son was tall and proud, with Drogo's copper skin and her own silver-gold hair, violet eyes shaped like almonds, and he smiled for her and began to lift his hand toward hers. But when he opened his mouth, the fire poured out. She saw his heart burning through his chest, and in an instant he was gone, consumed like a moth by a candle, turned to ash. She wept for her child, the promise of a sweet mouth on her breast, but her tears turned to steam as they touched her skin. Want to wake the dragon? Ghosts lined the hallway, dressed in the faded raiment of kings. In their hands were swords of pale fire. They had hair of silver and hair of gold and hair of platinum white, and their eyes were opal and amethyst. Tourmaline and jade. Faster, they cried. Faster, faster. She raised her feet, melting the stone wherever they touched. Faster, the ghost cried as one, and she screamed and threw herself forward. A great knife of pain ripped down her back, and she felt her skin tear open, and smelled the stench of burning blood, and saw the shadow of wings. And Daenerys Targaryen flew. Wake the dragon. The door loomed before her, the red door so close, so close. The hall was a blur around her, the coal receding behind. And now the stone was gone, and she flew across the Dothraki Sea, high and higher, the green rippling beneath. And all that lived and breathed fled in terror from the shadow of her wings. She could smell home. She could see it, there, just beyond that door, green fields and great stone houses and arms to keep her warm there. She threw open the door, the dragon, and saw her brother Rhaegar, mounted on the stallion, as black as his armor. Fire glimmered red through the narrow eye-slit of his helm. The last dragon, Sir Jorah's voice whispered faintly. The last the last. Danny lifted his polished black visor. 
the face within, was her own. After that, for a long time, there was only pain, the fire within her, and the whispering of stars. She woke to the taste of ashes. No, she moaned, no, please. Khaleesi, Jiqui hovered over her, a frightened doe. The tent was drenched in shadow, still and close. Flakes of ash drifted upward from a brazier, and Danny followed them with her eyes through the smoke hole above. Flying, she thought. I had wings. I was flying. But it was only a dream. Help me, she whispered, struggling to rise. Bring me. Her voice was raw as a wound, and she could not think what she wanted. Why did she hurt so much? It was as if her body had been torn to pieces and remade from the scraps. I want... Yes, Khaleesi. Quick as that, Jiqui was gone, bolting from the tent, shouting. Danny needed something, someone, what? It was important, she knew. It was the only thing in the world that mattered. She rolled onto her side and got an elbow under her, fighting the blanket tangled about her legs. It was so hard to move. The world swam dizzily. I have to. They found her on the carpet, crawling toward her dragon eggs. Sir Jorah Mormont lifted her in his arms and carried her back to her sleeping silks, while she struggled feebly against him. Over his shoulder she saw her three handmaids, Jogo, with his little wisp of moustache, and the flat broad face of Miramar's door. I must, she tried to tell them. I have to. Sleep, princess, Sir Jorah said. No, Danny said, please, please, yes. He covered her with silk, though she was burning. Sleep and grow strong again, Khaleesi. Come back to us. And then Mira Ma's door was there, the Meiji, tipping a cup against her lips. She tasted sour milk and something else, something thick and bitter. Warm liquid ran down her chin. Somehow she swallowed. The tent grew dimmer, and sleep took her again. This time she did not dream. She floated, serene and at peace, on a black sea that knew no shore. After a time, a night, a day, a year, she could not say, she woke again. The tent was dark, its silken walls flapping like wings when the wind gusted outside. This time, Danny did not attempt to rise. Ere she called, Jiqui, Doria, they were there at once. My throat is dry, she said, so dry. And they brought her water. It was warm and flat, yet Danny drank it eagerly and sent Jiqui for more. Ere dampened a soft cloth and stroked her brow. I have been sick, Danny said. The Dothraki girl nodded. How long? The cloth was soothing, but Iri seemed so sad it frightened her. Long, she whispered. When Jiqui returned with more water, 
Miramar's door came with her eyes heavy from sleep. Crink, she said, lifting Danny's head to the cup once more, but this time it was only wine. Sweet, sweet wine. Danny drank and lay back, listening to the soft sounds of her own breathing. She could feel the heaviness in her limbs as sleep crept in and filled her up once more. Bring me, she murmured, her voice slurred and drowsy. Bring, I want to hold. Yes, the Meiji asked. What is it you wish, Khaleesi? Bring me egg, dragon's egg, please. Her lashes turned to lead, and she was too weary to hold them up. When she woke the third time, a shaft of golden sunlight was pouring through the smoke hole of the tent, and her arms were wrapped around a dragon's egg. It was the pale one. It scales the color of buttercream. Vain were the walls of gold and bronze, and Danny could feel the heat of it. Beneath her bed silks, a fine sheen of perspiration covered her bare skin. Dragon dew, she thought. Her fingers trailed lightly across the surface of the shell, tracing the wisps of gold, and deep in the stone she felt something twist and stretch in response. It did not frighten her. All her fear was gone, burned away. Danny touched her brow. Under the film of sweat, her skin was cool to the touch, her fever gone. She made herself sit. There was a moment of dizziness and the deep ache between her thighs, yet she felt strong. Her maids came running at the sound of her voice. Water, she told them. A flagon of water, cold as you can find it, and fruit, I think. Dates. As you say, Khaleesi. I want Sajora, she said, standing. Jikwi brought a sand silk robe and draped it over her shoulders, and a warm bath, and Miramar's door, and— Memory came back to her, all at once, and she faltered. Kaldroga, she forced herself to say, watching their faces with dread. Is he— The Karl lives, Ira answered quietly, yet Danny saw a darkness in her eyes when she said the words, and no sooner had she spoken than she rushed away to fetch water. She turned to Doria. Tell me. I— I shall bring Sajara— the Lysine girl said, bowing her head and fleeing the tent. Jiqui would have run as well, but Danny caught her by the wrist and held her captive. What is it? I must know. Drogo and my child. Why had she not remembered the child until now? My son, Rago, where is he? I want him. Her handmaiden lowered her eyes. The boy, he did not live, Khaleesi. Her face was a frightened whisper. Danny released her wrist. My son is dead, she thought, as Jiqui left the tent. She had known somehow. She had known since she woke the first time to Jiqui's tears. No, she had known before she woke. Her dream came back to her, sudden and vivid, and she remembered the tall man with the copper skin and the long silver-gold braid bursting into flame. She should weep, she knew, 
yet her eyes were dry as ash. She had wept in her dream, and the tears had turned to steam on her cheeks. All the grief has been burned out of me, she told herself. She felt sad, and yet she could feel Rago receding from her, as if he had never been. Sajora and Miramaz Dor entered a few moments later, and found Danny standing over the other dragon's eggs, the two still in their chest. It seemed to her that they felt as hot as the one she had slept with, which was passing strange. Sajora, come here, she said. She took his hand and placed it on the black egg with a scarlet swirls. What do you feel? Shell, hard as rock. The night was weary. Scales. Heat? No, cold stone. He took his hand away. Princess, are you well? Should you be up, weak as you are? Weak? I am strong, Jorah. To please him, she reclined on a pile of cushions. Tell me how my child died. He never lived, my princess. The women say... He faltered, and Danny saw how the flesh hung loose on him and the way he limped when he moved. Tell me. Tell me what the women say. He turned his face away. His eyes were haunted. They say the child was... She waited, but Sir Jorah could not say it. His face grew dark with shame. He looked half a corpse himself. Monstrous, Miramaz Dur finished for him. The knight was a powerful man, yet Danny understood in that moment that the Meiji was stronger and crueler and infinitely more dangerous. Twisted. I drew him forth myself. He was scaled like a lizard, blind, with the stub of a tail and small leather wings like the wings of a bat. When I touched him, the flesh sloughed off the bone, and inside he was full of grave worms and the stink of corruption. He had been dead for years. Darkness, Danny thought, the terrible darkness sweeping up behind to devour her. If she looked back, she was lost. My son was alive and strong when Sajora carried me into this tent, she said. I could feel him kicking, fighting to be born. That may be as it may be, answered Miramaz Dur. Yet the creature that came forth from your womb was as I said. Death was in that tent, Khaleesi. Only shadows, Sir Jorah asked. But Danny could hear the doubt in his voice. I saw, Meiji, I saw you alone, dancing with the shadows. The grave casts long shadows, Iron Lord, Mary said. Long and dark, and in the end, no light can hold them back. Sir Jorah had killed her son, Danny knew. He'd done what he did for love and loyalty. Yet he had carried her into a place no living man should go, and fed her baby to the darkness. He knew it too. The grave face the hollow eyes, the limp. The shadows have touched you too, Sir Jorah, she told him. The knight made no reply. Danny turned to the god's wife. You warned me 
that only death could pay for life. I thought you meant the horse. No, Miramar's door said. That was a lie you told yourself. You knew the place. Had she? Had she? If I look back, I'm lost. The price was paid, Danny said. The horse, my child, Quaro, Kotho, Hago, Kaholo. The price was paid and paid and paid. She rose from her cushions. Where is Karl Droger? Show him to me. God's wife, Meiji, blood mange, whatever you are. Show me Karl Drogo. Show me what I bought with my son's life. As you command, Khaleesi, the old woman said. Come, I will take you to him. Danny was weaker than she knew. Sir Jorah slipped an arm around her and helped her stand. A time enough for this later, my princess, he said quietly. I would see him now, Sir Jorah. After the dimness of the tent, the world outside was blinding bright. The sun burned like molten gold, and the land was seared and empty. Her handmaids waited with fruit and wine and water, and Jogo moved close to help Sir Jara support her. Ego and Rakaro stood behind. The glare of sun on sand made it hard to see more, until Danny raised her hand to shade her eyes. She saw the ashes of a fire, a few score horses milling listlessly and searching for a bite of grass, a scattering of tents and bedrolls. A small crowd of children had gathered to watch her, and beyond she glimpsed women going about their work, and withered old men staring at the flat blue sky with tired eyes, swatting feebly at blood flies. A count might show a hundred people, no more. Where the other forty thousand had made their camp, only the wind and dust live now. Drogo's Kalasar is gone, she said. A Karl who cannot ride is no Karl, said Jogo. The Dothraki follow only the strong, Sir Jorah said. I'm sorry, my princess, there was no way to hold them. Ko Pono left first, naming himself Karl Pono, and many followed him. Jago was not long to do the same. The rest slipped away night by night in large bands and small. There are a dozen new Kalasars on the Dothraki Sea, where once there was only Drogos. The old remain, said Ego, the frightened, the weak, and the sick. And we who swore we remain. They took Karl Drogo's herds, Khaleesi, Rakaro said. We were too few to stop them. It is the right of the strong to take from the weak. They took many slaves as well, the cars and yours. Yet they left some few. Eroa? asked Danny, remembering the frightened child she had saved outside the city of the Lambmen. Mago seized her, who was Carl Jago's blood rider now, said Jogo. He mounted her high and low and gave her to his Carl, and Jaco gave her to his other blood riders. They were six. When they were done with her, they cut her throat. It was her fight, Khaleesi, said Ego. If I look back, I'm lost. It was a cruel fate, Danny said, yet not so cruel as Mago's will be. I promise you that, by the old guards and the new. 
by the Lamb God and the Horse God and every God that lives. I swear it by the Mother of Mountains and the Womb of the World. Before I am done with them, Mago and Kojako will plead for the mercy they showed Eroa. The Dothraki exchanged uncertain glances. Khaleesi, the handmaid Eri, explained, as if to a child, Jaco is a Kalnar with twenty thousand riders at his back. She lifted her head, and I am Daenerys Stormborn, Daenerys of House Targaryen, of the blood of Aegon the Conqueror, and Magor the Cruel, and old Valyria before them. I am the dragon's daughter, and I swear to you, these men will die screaming. Now bring me to Carl Drogo. He was lying on the bare, red earth, staring up at the sun. A dozen blood flies had settled on his body, though he did not seem to feel them. Danny brushed them away and knelt beside him. His eyes were wide open, but he did not see, and she knew at once that he was blind. When she whispered his name, he did not seem to hear. The wound on his breast was as healed as it ever would be, the scar that covered it grey and red and hideous. Why is he out here alone in the sun, she asked him. Well, he seemed to like the warmth, princess, Sir Jorah said. His eyes follow the sun, though he does not see it. He can walk after a fashion. He will go where you lead him, but no further. He will eat if you put food in his mouth, drink if you dribble water on his lips. Danny kissed her sun and stars gently on the brow and stood to face Mirror Mars door. Your spells are costly, Meiji. He lives, said Mirror Mars door. You asked for life. You paid for life. This is not life. For one who was as Drogo was, his life was laughter and meat roasting over a fire pit and a horse between his legs. His life was an arrack in his hand and his bells ringing in his hair as he rode to meet an enemy. His life was his blood riders and me and the son I was to give him. Miramazdur made no reply. When will he be as he was? Danny demanded. When the sun rises in the west and sets in the east, said Miramazdur. When the seas go dry and mountains blow in the wind like leaves. When your womb quickens again and you bear a living child. Then he will return, and not before. Danny gestured at Sir Jorah and the others. Leave us. I would speak with this Meiji alone. Mormont and the Dothraki withdrew. You knew, Danny said when they were gone. She ached inside and out, but her fury gave her strength. You knew what I was buying, and you knew the price and yet you let me pay it. It was wrong of them to burn my temple, the heavy, flat-nosed woman said pleasantly. That angered the great shepherd. This was no God's work, Danny said coldly. If I look back, I am lost. You cheated me. You murdered my child within me. The stallion who mounts the world will burn no cities now. His calisar shall trample no nations into dust. I spoke for you, 
she said anguished. I saved you. Saved me? The Lazarine woman spat. Three riders had taken me, not as a man takes a woman, but from behind as a dog takes a bitch. The fourth was in me when you rode past. How then did you save me? I saw my God's house burn. What I had healed, good men beyond counting. My home they burned as well. And in the street I saw piles of heads. I saw the head of a baker who made my bread. I saw the head of a boy I had saved from dead-eye fever only three moons past. I heard children crying as the riders drove them off with their whips. Tell me again what you saved. Your life. Mary Ma's door laughed cruelly. <laughs> Look to your Carl and see what life is worth when all the rest is gone. Danny called out for the men of her cars and bid them take Miramar's door and bind her hand and foot. But the Meiji smiled at her as they carried her off, as if they shared a secret. A word, and Danny could have her head off. Yet then what would she have? A head? If life was worthless, what was death? They led Carl Drogo back to her tent and Danny commanded them to fill a tub, and this time there was no blood in the water. She bathed him herself, washing the dirt and the dust from his arms and chest, cleaning his face with a soft cloth, soaping his long black hair, and combing the knots and tangles from it until it shone again as she remembered. It was well past dark before she was done, and Danny was exhausted. She stopped for drink and food, but it was all she could do to nibble at a fig and keep down a mouthful of water. Sleep would have been a release, but she had slept enough, too long in truth. She owed this night to Drogo, for all the nights that had been, and yet might be. The memory of their first ride was with her, when she led him out into the darkness for the Dothraki believed that all things of importance in a man's life must be done beneath the open sky. She told herself that there were powers stronger than hatred, and spells older and truer than any the Meiji had learned in Ashai. The night was black and moonless, but overhead a million stars burned bright. She took that for an omen. No soft blanket of grass welcomed them here, only the hard, dusty ground, bare and strewn with stones. No tree stirred in the wind, and there was no stream to soothe her fears with the gentle music of water. Danny told herself that the stars would be enough. Remember, Drogo, she whispered. Remember our first ride together, the day we wed? Remember the night... We made Rago, with the Kalasar all around us, and your eyes on my face. Remember how cool and clean the water was in the womb of the world? Remember my sun and stars? Remember and come back to me? The birth had left her too raw and torn to take him inside of her, as she would have wanted. But Doria had taught her other ways. Danny used her hands, her mouth, her breasts, 
She raked him with her nails and covered him with kisses and whispered and prayed and told him stories. And by the end, she had bathed him with her tears. Yet Drogo did not feel or speak or rise. And when the bleak dawn broke over an empty horizon, Danny knew he was truly lost to her. When the sun rises in the west and sets in the east, she said sadly, when the seas go dry and mountains blow in the wind like leaves, when my womb quickens again and I bear a living child, then you will return, my sun and stars, and not before. Never, the darkness cried, never, never, never. Inside the tent, Danny found a cushion, soft silk stuffed with feathers. She clutched it to her breasts as she walked back out to Drogo, to her sun and stars. If I look back, I am lost. It hurt even to walk, and she wanted to sleep, to sleep and not to dream. She knelt, kissed Drogo on the lips, and pressed the cushion down across his face. Tyrion They of my son, Tywin Lannister said. They do, my lord. The messenger's voice was dulled by exhaustion. On the breast of his torn surcoat, the brindled boar of Crakehall was half obscured by dried blood. One of your sons, Tyrion thought. He took a sip of wine and said not a word, thinking of Jamie. When he lifted his arm, pain shut through his elbow, reminding him of his own brief taste of battle. He loved his brother, but he would not have wanted to be with him in the Whispering Wood for all the gold in Castle Rock. His Lord Father's assembled captains and bannermen had fallen very quiet as the courier told his tale. The only sound was the crackle and hiss of the log burning in the hearth at the end of the long, draughty common room. After the hardships of the long, relentless drive south, the prospect of even a single night in an inn had cheered Tyrion mightily, though he rather wished it had not been this inn again, with all its memories. His father had set a grueling pace, and it had taken its toll. Men wounded in the battle kept up as best they could, or were abandoned to fend for themselves. Every morning they left a few more by the roadside, men who went to sleep, never to wake. Every afternoon a few more collapsed along the way, and every evening a few more deserted, stealing off into the dusk. Tyrion had been half-tempted to go with them. He had been upstairs enjoying the comforts of a feather bed and the warmth of Shay's body beside him, when his squire had woken him to say that a rider had arrived with dire news of River Run. So it had all been for nothing. The rush south, the endless forced marches, the bodies left beside the road, all for naught. Rob Stark had reached River Run days and days ago. How could this happen? Sir Harry Swift moaned. How? 
even after the whispering wood you had river run ringed in iron, surrounded by a great host? What madness made Sir Jamie decide to split his men into three separate camps? Surely he knew how vulnerable that would leave them. Better than you, you chinless craven, Tyrion thought. Jamie might have lost River Run, but it angered him to hear his brother slandered by the likes of Swift, a shameless lickspittle, whose greatest accomplishment was marrying his equally chinless daughter to Sir Kevin, and thereby attaching himself to the Lannisters. I would have done the same, his uncle responded, a good deal more calmly than Tyrion might have. You have never seen a river run, Sardis, or you would know that Jamie had little choice in the matter. The castle is situated at the end of the point of land where the tumblestone flows into the red fork of the trident. The rivers form two sides of a triangle, and when danger threatens, the tullies open their sluice gates upstream to create a wide moat on the third side, turning a river run into an island. The walls rise sheer from the water, and from the towers the defenders have a commanding view of the opposite shores for many leagues around. To cut off all the approaches, a besieger must need place one camp north of the Tumblestone, one south of the Red Fork, and a third between the rivers west of the moat. There is no other way. None. Sir Kevin speaks truly, my lords, the courier said. We'd built palisades of sharpened stakes around the camps, yet it was not enough, not with no warning, and the rivers cutting us off from each other. They came down on the north camp first. No one was expecting an attack. Mark Piper had been raiding our supply trains, but he had no more than fifty men. Sir Jamie had gone out to deal with them the night before, well, with what he thought was them. We were told the Stark host was east of the Green Fork, marching south. And your outriders? Sir Gregor Clegane's face might have been hewn from rock. The fire in the hearth gave a somber orange cast to his skin and put deep shadows in the hollows of his eyes. They saw nothing. They gave you no warning. The bloodstained messenger shook his head. Our outriders had been vanishing. Mark Piper's work, we thought. The ones who did come back had seen nothing. A man who sees nothing has no use for his eyes, the mountain declared. Cut them out and give them to your next outrider. Tell him you hope that four eyes might see better than two, and if not, the man after him will have six. Lord Tywin Lannister turned his face to study Sir Gregor. Tyrion saw a glimmer of gold as the light shone off his father's pupils, but he could not have said whether the look was one of approval or disgust. Lord Tywin was oft quiet in council, preferring to listen before he spoke, a habit Tyrion himself tried to emulate. Yet this silence was uncharacteristic even for him, and his wine was untouched. "'You say they came at night,' Sir Kevin prompted. The man gave a weary nod. The blackfish led the van, cutting down our sentries and clearing away the palisades for the main assault. By the time our men knew what was happening, 
Riders were pouring over the ditch banks and galloping through the camp with swords and torches in hand. I was sleeping in the west camp between the rivers. When we heard the fighting and saw the tents being fired, Lord Brax led us to the rafts and we tried to pole across. But the current pushed us downstream and the tollies started flinging rocks at us with the catapults on their walls. I saw one raft smash to kindling and three others overturned. Men swept into the river and drowned. And those who did make it across found the Starks waiting for them on the river bank. Sir Flemont Brax wore a silver and purple tabard and the look of a man who cannot comprehend what he has just heard. My lord father... Sorry, my lord, the messenger said. Lord Brax was clad in plate and mail when his raft overturned. He was very gallant. He was a fool, Tyrion thought, swirling his cup and staring down into the winey depths. Crossing a river at night on a crude raft wearing armour with an enemy waiting on the other side? Uh, if that was gallantry, he would take cowardice every time. He wondered if Lord Brax had felt especially gallant as the weight of his steel pulled him under the black water. The camp between the rivers was overrun as well, the messenger was saying. While we were trying to cross, more Starks swept in from the west, two columns of armoured horse. I saw Lord Umber's giant in chains and the Malister Eagle, but it was the boy who led them, with a monstrous wolf running at his side. I wasn't there to see it, but it said the beast killed four men and ripped apart a dozen horses. Our spearmen formed up a shield wall and held against their first charge, but when the Tullys saw them engaged, they opened the gates of River Run, and Titus Blackwood led a sortie across the drawbridge and took them in the rear. God save us, Lord Lefford swore. Great John Umber fired the siege tires we were building, and Lord Blackwood found Sir Edmure Tully in chains among the other captives and made off with them all. Our south camp was under the command of Sir Forley Prester. He retreated in good order when he saw that the other camps were lost, with two thousand spears and as many bowmen. But the Tyrushi sellsword, who led his free riders, struck his banners and went over to the foe. Curse the man! His uncle Kevin sounded more angry than surprised. I warn Jamie not to trust that one. A man who fights for coin is loyal only to his purse. Lord Tywin wove his fingers together under his chin. Only his eyes moved as he listened. His bristling, golden side-whiskers framed a face so still it might have been a mask. But Tyrion could see tiny beads of sweat dappling his father's shaven head. "'How could it happen?' Sir Harry Swift wailed again. "'Sir Jamie taken, a siege broken. This is a catastrophe.' Sir Adam Marbrand said, "'I'm sure we're all grateful to you for pointing out the obvious, Sir Harry. The question is, what should we do about it?' "'What can we do? Jamie's house is all slaughtered, all, all taken, all put to flight.' And, and the Starks and, and the Tullys sit squarely across our line of supply. We are cut off from the West. They can march on Castle Rock if they so choose, and what's to stop them? My lords, we are beaten. We must sue for peace. Peace? Tyrion swirled his wine thoughtfully, took a deep draught, 
and hurled his empty cup to the floor, where it shattered into a thousand pieces. "'There's your piece, Sir Arius. My sweet nephew broke it for good and all when he decided to ornament the Red Keep with Lord Eddard's head. You'll have an easier time drinking wine from that cup than you will convincing Rob Stark to make peace now. He's winning. Or hadn't you noticed? Two battles do not make a war, Sir Adam insisted. We are far from lost. I should welcome the chance to try my own steel against his Stark boy. Perhaps they would consent to a truce, and allow us to trade our prisoners for theirs, offered Lord Lefford. Unless they trade three for one, we still come out light on those scales, Tyrion said acidly. And what are we to offer for my brother? Lord Eddard's rotting head? I had heard that Queen Cersei has the hand's daughters, Lefford said hopefully. If we give the lad his sisters back. Sir Adam snorted disdainfully. He would have to be an utter ass to trade Jamie Lannister's life for two girls. Then we must ransom Sir Jamie, whatever it costs, Lord Lefford said. Tyrion rolled his eyes. If the Starks feel the need for gold, they can melt down Jamie's armor. If we ask for truce, they will think us weak. Sir Adam argued. We should march on them at once. Uh, surely our friends at court uh, could be prevailed upon to join us with fresh troops, said Sir Harry's, and someone might return to Castle Rock to raise a new host. Lord Tywin Lannister rose to his feet. They have my son, he said once more, in a voice that cut through the babble like a sword through suet. Leave me. All of you. Ever the soul of obedience, Tyrion rose to depart with the rest. But his father gave him a look. Not you, Tyrion, remain. And you as well, Kevin. The rest of you, out. Tyrion eased himself back onto the bench, startled into speechlessness. Sir Kevin crossed the room to the wine cask. Uncle, Tyrion called, if you would be so kind... Here, his father offered him his cup, the wine untouched. Now Tyrion truly was nonplussed. He drank. Lord Tywin seated himself. You have the right of it about Stark. Alive, we might have used Lord Eddard to forge a peace with Winterfell and Riveron, a peace that would have given us the time we need to deal with Robert's brothers. Dead... His hand curled into a fist. Madness! Rank madness! Joff's only a boy, Tyrion pointed out. At his age I committed a few follies of my own. His father gave him a sharp look. I suppose we ought to be grateful that he has not yet married a whore. Tyrion sipped at his wine, wondering how Lord Tywin would look if he flung the cup in his face. Our position is worse than you know, his father went on. It would seem we have a new king. Sir Kevin looked polexed. A new who? What have they done to Joffrey? The faintest flicker of distaste played across Lord Tywin's thin lips. Nothing yet. My grandson still sits the Iron Throne, 
but the eunuch has heard whispers from the south. Renly Baratheon wed Marjorie Tyrell at Highgarden this fortnight past, and now he has claimed the crown. The bride's father and brothers have bent the knee and sworn him their swords. Those are grave tidings. When Sir Kevin frowned, the furrows in his brow grew deep as canyons. My daughter commands us to ride for King's Landing at once, to defend the Red Keep against King Renly and the Knight of Flowers. His mouth tightened. Commands us, mind you, in the name of the King and Council. How is King Joffrey taking the news? Tyrion asked, with a certain black amusement. <laughs> Cersei has not seen fit to tell him yet, Lord Tywin said. She fears he might insist on marching against Renly himself. With what army? Tyrion asked. You don't plan to give him this one, I hope. He talks of leading the city watch, Lord Tywin said. If he takes a watch, he'll leave the city undefended, Sir Kevin said. And with Lord Stannis on Dragonstone... Yes, Lord Tywin looked down at his son. I had thought you were the one made for Motley, Tyrion, but it would appear that I was wrong. Why, father? said Tyrion. That almost sounds like praise. He leaned forward intently. What of Stannis? He's the elder, not Renly. How does he feel about his brother's claim? His father frowned. I felt from the beginning that Stannis was a greater danger than all the others combined. Yet he does nothing. Oh, Varys has his whispers. Stannis is building ships. Stannis is hiring swords. Stannis is bringing a shadowbinder from a shy. What does it mean? Is any of it true? He gave an irritated shrug. Kevin, bring us the map. Sir Kevin did as he was bid. Lord Tywin unrolled the leather, smoothing it flat. Jamie has left us in a bad way. Roose Bolton and the remnants of his host are north of us. Our enemies hold the twins and Moat Kaelin. Rob Stark sits to the west, so we cannot retreat to Lannisport and the Rock unless we choose to give battle. Jamie is taken, and his army for all purposes has ceased to exist. Thoros of Myr and Beric Dondarrion continue to plague our foraging parties. To the east we have the Aarons. Stannis Baratheon sits on Dragonstone, and in the south, High Garden and Storm's End are calling their banners. Tyrion smiled crookedly. Take heart, father. At least Rhaegar Targaryen is still dead. I had hoped you might have more to offer us than japes, Tyrion, Lord Tywin Lannister said. Sir Kevin frowned over the map, forehead creasing. Rob Stark will have Edmure Tully and the Lords of the Trident with him now. Their combined power may exceed our own, and with Roose Bolton behind us. Tywin, if we remain here, I fear we might be caught between three armies. I have no intention of remaining here. We must finish our business with young Lord Stark before Renly Baratheon can march from Highgarden. Bolton does not concern me. He's a wary man, and we made him warier on the Green Fork. He will be slow to give pursuit. So, 
On the morrow we make for Harren Hall. Kevin, I want Sir Adam's outriders to screen our movements. Give him as many men as he requires, and send them out in groups of four. I will have no vanishings. As you say, my lord, but why Harrenhal? That is a, a grim, unlucky place. Some call it cursed. Let them, Lord Tywin said. Unleash Sir Gregor and send him before us with his reavers. Send forth Vargo Hote and his free riders as well, and Sir Amory Lorch. Each is to have three hundred horse. Tell them I want to see the river rands of fire from the guard's eye to the Red Fork. They will burn, my lord, Sir Kevin said, rising. I shall give the commands. He bowed and made for the door. When they were alone, Lord Tywin glanced at Tyrion. Your savages might relish a bit of rapine. Tell them they may ride with Vargo Hoot and plunder as they like, good stock, women. They may take what they want and burn the rest. Telling a shagger and timid how to pillage is like telling a rooster how to crow, Tyrion commented. But I should prefer to keep them with me. Uncouth and unruly they might be, yet the wildlings were his, and he trusted them more than any of his father's men. He was not about to hand them over. Then you had better learn to control them. They will not have the city plundered. The city? Tyrion was lost. What city would that be? King's Landing. I am sending you to court. It was the last thing Tyrion Lannister would ever have anticipated. He reached for his wine and considered for a moment as he sipped. And what am I to do there? Rule, his father said curtly. Tyrion hooted with laughter. My sweet sister might have a word or two to say about that. Let her say what she likes. Her son needs to be taken in hand before he ruins us all. I blame those jackanapes on the council, our friend Pattaya, the venerable Grand Maester, and that cockless wonder, Lord Varys. What sort of counsel are they giving Joffrey when he lurches from one folly to the next? Whose notion was it to make this Janus Slint a lord? Huh? The man's father was a butcher, and they grant him Harrenhal? Harrenhal, that was the seat of kings! Not that he will ever set foot inside it, if I have any say. I'm told he took a bloody spear for his sigil. <laughs> a bloody cleaver would have been my choice. His father had not raised his voice, yet Tyrion could see the anger in the gold of his eyes. And dismissing Selmy, where was the sense in that? Yes, the man was old, but the name of Barristan the Bold still has meaning in the realm. He lent honour to any man he served. Can anyone say the same of the hound? You feed your dog bones under the table. You do not seat him beside you on the eye bench. He pointed a finger at Tyrion's face. If Cersei cannot curb the boy, you must. And if these counsellors are playing us false... Tyrion knew. Spikes, he sighed. Heads, walls... I see that you've taken a few lessons from me. More than you know, father. Tyrion answered quietly. He finished his wine 
and set the cup aside, thoughtful. A part of him was more pleased than he cared to admit. Another part was remembering the battle upriver, and wondering if he was being sent to hold the left again. "'Why me?' he asked, cocking his head to one side. "'Why not my uncle? Why not Sir Adam, or Sir Flemont, or Lord Serret? Why not a bigger man?' Lord Tywin rose abruptly. "'You are my son!' That was when he knew. "'You have given him up for lost,' he thought. "'You bloody bastard! You think Jamie is good as dead!' So I am all you have left. Tyrion wanted to slap him, to spit in his face, to draw his dagger and cut the heart out of him, and see if it was made of old hard gold, the way the small folk said. Yet he sat there, silent and still. The shards of the broken cup crunched beneath his father's heels as Lord Tywin crossed the room. One last thing, he said at the door. You will not take the whore to court. Tyrion sat alone in the common room for a long while after his father was gone. Finally, he climbed the steps to his cosy garret beneath the bell tower. The ceiling was low, but that was scarcely a drawback for a dwarf. From the window, he could see the gibbet his father had erected in the yard. The innkeep's body turned slowly on its rope whenever the night wind gusted. Her flesh had grown as thin and ragged as Lannister hopes. She murmured sleepily and rolled toward him when he sat on the edge of the feather bed. He slid his hand onto the blanket and cupped a soft breast, and her eyes opened. My lord, she said with a drowsy smile. When he felt her nipple stiffen, Tyrion kissed her. I have a mind to take you to King's Landing, sweetling, he whispered. John The mare wickered softly as Jon Snow tightened the cinch. Easy, sweet lady, he said in a soft voice, quieting her with a touch. Wind whispered through the stable, a cold, dead breath on his face, but John paid it no mind. He strapped his roll to the saddle, his scarred fingers stiff and clumsy. Ghost, he called softly, to me, and the wolf was there, eyes like embers. John, please, you must not do this. He mounted, the reins in his hand, and wheeled the horse round to face the night. Samuel Tarley stood in the stable door, a full moon peering over his shoulder. He threw a giant shadow, immense and black. Get out of my way, Sam. John, you can't, Sam said. I won't let you. I would sooner not hurt you, John told him. Move aside, Sam, or I'll ride you down. You won't. You have to listen to me, please. John put his spurs to horseflesh, and the mare bolted for the door. For an instant Sam stood his ground, his face as round and pale as the moon behind him, his mouth a widening O of surprise. At the last moment, when they were almost on him, he jumped aside as John had known he would, stumbled and fell. The mare leapt over him, out into the night. John raised the hood of his heavy cloak 
and gave the horse her head. Castle Black was silent and still as he rode out, with Ghost racing at his side. Men watched from the wall behind him, he knew, but their eyes were turned north, not south. No one would see him go. No one but Sam Tarley, struggling back to his feet in the dust of the old stables. He hoped Sam hadn't hurt himself, falling like that. He was so heavy and so ungainly, it would be just like him to break a wrist or twist his ankle getting out of the way. I warned him, John said aloud. It was nothing to do with him anyway. He flexed his burned hand as he rode, opening and closing the scarred fingers. They still pained him, but it felt good to have the wrappings off. Moonlight silvered the hills as he followed the twisting ribbon of the King's Road. He needed to get as far from the wall as he could before they realized he was gone. On the morrow he would leave the road and strike out overland, through field and bush and stream, to throw off pursuit, but for the moment speed was more important than deception. It was not as though they would not guess where he was going. The old bear was accustomed to rise at first light, so John had until dawn to put as many leagues as he could between himself and the wall. If Sam Tarley did not betray him. The fat boy was dutiful and easily frightened, but he loved John like a brother. If questioned, Sam would doubtless tell them the truth, but John could not imagine him braving the guards in front of the king's tower to wake Mormont from sleep. When John did not appear to fetch the old bear's breakfast from the kitchen, they'd look in his cell and find Longclaw on the bed. Been hard to abandon it, but John was not so lost to honor as to take it with him. Even Jorah Mormont had not done that when he fled in disgrace. Doubtless Lord Mormont would find someone more worthy of the blade. John felt bad when he thought of the old man. He knew his desertion would be salt in the still raw wound of his son's disgrace. That seemed a poor way to repay him for his trust, but it couldn't be helped. No matter what he did, John felt as though he were betraying someone. Even now he did not know if he was doing the honorable thing. The Southern had it easier. They had their septons to talk to, someone to tell them the God's will, and help sort out right from wrong. But the Starks worshipped the old gods, the nameless gods, and if the heart trees heard, they did not speak. When the last lights of Castle Black vanished behind him, John slowed his mare to a walk. He had a long journey ahead, and only the one horse to see him through. There were whole fasts and farming villages along the road south, where he might be able to trade the mare for a fresh mount when he needed one, but not if she were injured or blown. He would need to find new clothes soon. Most like he'd need to steal them. He was clad in black from head to heel. High leather riding boots, rough-spun breeches and tunic, sleeveless leather jerkin, and heavy wool cloak. His long sword and dagger were sheathed in black moleskin, and his hauberk and quaff in his saddlebag were black ringmail. Any bit of it could mean his death if he were taken. A stranger wearing black was viewed with cold suspicion in every village and holdfast north of the Neck, and men would soon be watching for him. Once Maester Eamon's ravens took flight, John knew he would find no safe haven, not even at Winterfell. 
Bran might want to let him in, but Maester Lewin had better sense. He would bar the gates and send John away, as he should. Better not to call there at all. Yet he saw the castle clear in his mind's eye, as if he had left it only yesterday, the towering granite walls, the great hall, with its smells of smoke and dark and roasting meat, his father Solar, the turret room where he had slept. Part of him wanted nothing so much as to hear Bran laugh again, to sub on one of Gage's beef and bacon pies, to listen to old Nan tell her tales of the children of the forest and Florian the fool. But he had not left the wall for that. He had left because he was, after all, his father's son and Rob's brother. The gift of a sword, even a sword as fine as Longclaw, did not make him a mormont. Nor was he Aemon Targaryen. Three times the old man had chosen, and three times he had chosen honour. But that was him. Even now, John could not decide whether the maester had stayed because he was weak and craven, or because he was strong and true. Yet he understood what the old man had meant about the pain of choosing. He understood that all too well. Tyrion Lannister had claimed that most men would rather deny a hard truth than face it. But John was done with denials. He was who he was. Jon Snow. Bastard. An oathbreaker. Motherless, friendless, and damned. For the rest of his life, however long that might be, he would be condemned to be an outsider, the silent man standing in the shadows who dares not speak his true name. Wherever he might go throughout the Seven Kingdoms, he would need to live a lie, lest every man's hand be raised against him. But it made no matter, so long as he lived long enough to take his place by his brother's side and help avenge his father. He remembered Rob as he had last seen him, standing in the yard with snow melting in his auburn hair. John would have to come to him in secret, disguised. He tried to imagine the look on Rob's face when he revealed himself. His brother would shake his head and smile, and he'd say, he'd say... He could not see the smile. Hard as he tried, he could not see it. He found himself thinking of the deserter his father had beheaded the day they found the direwolves. You said the words, Lord Eddard had told him. You took the vow before your brothers, before the old gods, and the new. Desmond and Fat Tom had dragged the man to the stump. Bran's eyes had been wide as saucers, and John had to remind him to keep his pony in hand. He remembered the look on father's face when Theon Greyjoy brought forth ice, the spray of blood on the snow, the way Theon had kicked the head when it came rolling at his feet. He wondered what Lord Eddard might have done if the deserter had been his brother, Benjen, instead of that ragged stranger. Would it have been any different? It must. Surely. Surely. And Rob would welcome him, for a certainty. He had to, or else. It did not bear thinking about. Pain throbbed deep in his fingers as he clutched the reins. John put his heels into his horse and broke into a gallop, racing down the king's road, as if to outrun his doubts. John was not afraid of death. 
but he did not want to die like that, trussed and bound and beheaded like a common brigand. If he must perish, let it be with a sword in his hand, fighting his father's killers. He was no true Stark, had never been one, but he could die like one. Let them say that Eddard Stark had fathered four sons, not three. Ghost kept pace with them for almost half a mile, red tongue lulling from his mouth. Man and horse alike lowered their heads as he asked the mare for more speed. The wolf slowed, stopped, watching his eyes glowing red in the moonlight. He vanished behind, but John knew he would follow, at his own pace. Scattered lights flickered through the trees ahead of him, on both sides of the road. Mole's town. A dog barked as he rode through, and he heard a mule's raucous hawk from the stable. But otherwise the village was still. Here and there the glow of hearth fires shone through shuttered windows leaking between wooden slats, but only a few. Mole's town was bigger than it seemed, but three-quarters of it was under the ground, in deep, warm cellars connected by a maze of tunnels. Even the whorehouse was down there, nothing on the surface but a wooden shack no bigger than a privy with a red lantern hung above the door. On the wall he'd heard men call the whores buried treasures. He wondered whether any of his brothers in black were down there tonight, mining. That was oath-breaking, too, yet no one seemed to care. Not until he was well beyond the village did John slow again. By then both he and the mare were damp with sweat. He dismounted, shivering, his burned hand aching. A bank of melting snow lay under the trees, bright in the moonlight, water trickling off to form small shallow pools. John squatted and brought his hands together, cupping the runoff between his fingers. The snow melt was icy cold. He drank and splashed some on his face until his cheeks tingled. His fingers were throbbing worse than they had in days, and his head was pounding too. I am doing the right thing, he told himself, so why do I feel so bad? The horse was well lathered, so John took the lead and walked her for a while. The road was scarcely wide enough for two riders to pass abreast, its surface cut by tiny streams and littered with stone. That run had been truly stupid, an invitation to a broken neck. John wondered what had gotten into him. Was he in such a great rush to die? Off in the trees, the distant scream of some frightened animal made him look up. His mare whinnied nervously. Had his wolf found some prey? He cupped his hands around his mouth. Ghost! he shouted. Ghost! To me! The only answer was a rush of wings behind him as an owl took flight. Frowning, John continued on his way. He led the mare for half an hour until she was dry. Ghost did not appear. John wanted to mount up and ride again, but he was concerned about his missing wolf. Ghost! he called again. Where are you? To me! Ghost! Nothing in these woods could trouble a direwolf, even a half-grown direwolf, unless... No. Ghost was too smart to attack a bear. 
and if there was a wolf pack anywhere close, John would have surely heard them howling. He should eat, he decided. Food would settle his stomach and give Ghost the chance to catch up. There was no danger yet. Castle Black still slept. In his saddlebag he found a biscuit, a piece of cheese, a small withered brown apple. He'd brought salt beef as well, and a rasher of bacon he'd filched from the kitchens. But he would save the meat for the morrow. After it was gone, he'd need to hunt, and that would slow him. John sat under the trees and ate his biscuit and cheese while his mare grazed along the king's road. He kept the apple for last. It had gone a little soft, but the flesh was still tart and juicy. He was down to the core when he heard the sounds. Horses. And from the north. Quickly, John leapt up and strode to his mare. Could he outrun them? No, they were too close. They'd hear him for a certainty. And if they were from Castle Black... He led the mare off the road behind a thick stand of grey-green sentinels. Quiet now, he said in a hush voice, crouching down to peer through the branches. If the guards were kind, the riders would pass by. Likely as not, they were only small folk from Molestown, farmers on their way to the fields, although what they were doing out in the middle of the night. He listened to the sound of hooves growing steadily louder, as they trotted briskly down the king's road. From the sound there were five or six of them, at the least. Their voices drifted through the trees. Certainly came this way. We can't be certain. He could have ridden east, for all you know, or left the road to cut through the woods. That's what I'd do. In the dark, stupid. If you didn't fall off your horse and break your neck, you'd get lost and wind up back at the wall. When the sun came up, I would not. Gren sounded peeved. I just ride south. You can tell south by the stars. What if the sky was cloudy? Pip asked. Well, then I wouldn't go. Another voice broke in. You know where I'd be if it was me? I'd be in Molestown digging for buried treasure. Toad's shrill laughter boomed through the trees. John's mare snorted. Keep quiet, all of you, Alder said. I thought I heard something. Where? I didn't hear anything. The horses stopped. You can't hear yourself fart. I can too, Gren insisted. Quiet. They all fell silent, listening. John found himself holding his breath. Sam, he thought. He hadn't gone to the old bear, but he hadn't gone to bed either. He'd woken the other boys. Damn them all. Come dawn, if they were not in their beds, they'd be named deserters too. What did they think they were doing? The hushed silence seemed to stretch on and on. From where John crouched, he could see the legs of their horses through the branches. Finally, Pip spoke up. What did you hear? I don't know, Halder admitted. A sound, I thought. It might have been a horse, but there's nothing here. Out of the corner of his eye, John glimpsed a pale shape moving through the trees. Leaves rustled and ghosts came bounding out of the shadows, so suddenly that John's mare started and gave a whinny. There! Alder shouted. I heard it too. Traitor! John told the dire wolf as he swung up into the saddle. He turned the mare's head to slide off through the trees, uh, but they were on him before he had gone ten feet. John! Pip shouted after him. Pull up! Gren said. 
You can't outrun us all. John wheeled around to face them, drawing his sword. Get back. I don't wish to hurt you, but I will if I have to. One against seven, Alder gave the signal. The boys spread out, surrounding him. What do you want with me? John demanded. We want to take you back where you belong, Pip said. I belong with my brother. Where are your brothers now? Gren said. They'll cut off your head if they catch you, you know, Todd put in with a nervous laugh. This is so stupid, it's like something the Oryx would do. I would not, Gren said. I'm no oath-breaker. I said the words and I meant them. So did I, John told them. Don't you understand? They murdered my father. It's war. My brother Rob is fighting in the Riverlands. We know, Pip said solemnly. Sam told us everything. We're sorry about your father, Gren said. But it doesn't matter. Once you say the words, you can't leave, no matter what. I have to, John said fervently. You said the words, Pip reminded him. Now my watch begins. You said it. It shall not end until my death. I shall live and die at my post, Gren said, nodding. You don't have to tell me the words. I know them as well as you do. He was angry now. Why couldn't they let him go in peace? They were only making it harder. I am the sword in the darkness, Holder intoned. The watcher on the walls, piped Toad. John cursed them all to their faces. They took no notice. Pip spurred his horse closer, reciting, I am the fire that burns against the cold, the light that brings the dawn, the horn that wakes the sleepers, the shield that guards the realms of men. Stay back, John warned him, brandishing his sword. I, I mean it, Pip. They weren't even wearing armor. He could cut them to pieces if he had to. Mathar had circled behind him. He joined the chorus. I pledge my life and honor to the night's watch. John kicked his mare, spinning her in a circle. The boys were all around him now, closing from every side. For this night, Halder trotted in from the left. And all the nights to come. Finish, Pip. He reached over for John's reins. So air your choices. Kill me, or come back with me. John lifted his sword and lowered it helpless. Damn you, he said. Damn you all. Do we have to bind your hands, or will you give us your word you will ride back peaceful? asked Halder. I won't run, if that's what you mean. Ghost moved out from under the trees, and John glared at him. Small help you were, he said. The deep red eyes looked at him knowingly. We'd best hurry, Pip said. If we're not back before first light, the old bear will have all our heads. On the ride back, John Snow remembered little. It seemed shorter than the journey south, perhaps because his mind was elsewhere. Pip set the pace, galloping, walking, trotting, and then breaking into another gallop. Millstown came and went, the red lantern over the brothel long extinguished. They made good time. Dawn was still an hour off when John glimpsed the towers of Castle Black ahead of them, dark against the pale immensity of the wall. It did not seem like home this time. They could take him back, John told himself, but they could not make him stay. The war would not end on the morrow or the day after, 
and his friends could not watch him day and night. He would bide his time, make them think he was content to remain here, and then, when they had grown lax, he would be off again. Next time, he would avoid the King's Road. He could follow the wall east, perhaps all the way to the sea, a longer route but a safer one, or even west to the mountains, and then south over the high passes. That was the wildling's way, hard and perilous, but at least no one would follow him. He wouldn't stray within a hundred leagues of Winterfell or the King's Road. Samuel Tarley awaited them in the old stables, slumped on the ground against a bale of hay, too anxious to sleep. He rose and brushed himself off. I, I'm glad they found you, John. I'm not, John said, dismounting. Pip hopped off his horse and looked at the lightning sky with disgust. "'Give us a hand bedding down the horses, Sam,' the small boy said. "'We have a long day before us, and no sleep to face it on, thanks to Lord Snow.' When day broke, John walked to the kitchens, as he did every dawn. Three-finger hub said nothing as he gave him the old bear's breakfast. Today it was three brown eggs boiled hard with fried bread and ham steak and a bowl of wrinkled plums. John carried the food back to the king's tower. He found Mormont at the window seat, writing. His raven was walking back and forth across his shoulders, muttering, Corn! 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 The bird shrieked when John entered. Put the food on the table, the old bear said, glancing up. I'll have some beer. John opened a shuttered window, took the flagon of beer off the outside ledge, and filled a horn. Hub had given him a lemon, still cold from the wall. John crushed it in his fist. The juice trickled through his fingers. Mormon drank lemon in his beer every day and claimed that was why he still had his own teeth. Doubtless you loved your father, Mormon said, when John brought him his horn. The things we love destroy us every time, lad. Remember when I told you that? I remember, John said sullenly. He did not care to talk of his father's death, not even to Mormont. See that you'll never forget it. The hard truths are the ones to hold tight. Uh, fetch me my plate. Uh, is it ham again? Uh, uh, so be it. You look weary. Was your moonlight ride so tiring? John's throat was dry. You know. No. The raven echoed from Mormont's shoulder. No. The old bear snorted. <laughs> Do you think they chose me Lord Commander of the Night's Watch because I'm dumb as a stump, Snow? Eamon told me you'd go. I told him you'd be back. <laughs> I know my men, and my boys, too. Honor set you on the King's Road, and Honor brought you back. My friends brought me back, John said. Did I say it was your honor? Mormont inspected his plate. They killed my father. Did you expect me to do nothing? If truth be told, we expected you to do just as you did. Mormont tried a plum, spit out the pit. I ordered a watch kept over you. You were seen leaving. If your brothers had not fetched you back, you would have been taken along the way, and not by friends. Unless you have a horse with wings, like a raven— do you? 
No. John felt like a fool. Pity! We could use a horse like that. John stood tall. He told himself that he would die well. That much he could do at the least. I know the penalty for desertion, my lord. I'm not afraid to die. Die! The raven cried. Nor live, I hope, Ormond said, cutting his ham with a dagger and feeding a bite to the bird. You have not deserted, yet. Here you stand. If we beheaded every boy who rode to Molestown in the night, only ghosts would guard the wall. Yet maybe you mean to flee again on the morrow, or a fortnight from now. Is that it? Is that your hope, boy? John kept silent. Ah, I thought so. Mormont peeled the shell of a boiled egg. Your father is dead, lad. Do you think you can bring him back? No, he answered, sullen. Good, Mormont said. We've seen the dead come back, you and me. It's not something I care to see again. He ate the egg in two bites and flicked a bit of shell out from between his teeth. Your brother is in the field with all the powers of the north behind him. Any one of his lord's bannermen commands more swords than you'll find in all the night's watch. Now why do you imagine they need your help, hmm? Are you such a mighty warrior? Or do you carry a grumpkin in your pocket to magic up your sword? John had no answer for him. The raven was pecking at an egg, breaking the shell. Pushing his beak back through the hole, he pulled out morsels of white and yolk. The old bear sighed. You are not the only one touched by this war. Like as not, my sister is marching in your brother's host, her and those daughters of hers, dressed in men's mail. Mage is a hoary old snark, stubborn, short-tempered, and willful. Truth be told, I can hardly stand to be around the wretched woman, but that does not mean my love for her is any less than the love you bear your half-sisters. Frowning, Mormont took his last egg and squeezed it in his fist until the shell crunched. Or perhaps it does. Be that as it may, I'd still grieve if she were slain, Yet you don't see me running off. I said the words, just as you did. My place is here. Where is yours, boy? I have no place, John wanted to say. I'm a bastard. I have no rights, no name, no mother. And now not even a father. The words would not come. I don't know. I do, said Lord Commander Mormont. The cold winds are rising, Snow. Beyond the wall, the shadows lengthen. Cutter Pike writes of vast herds of elk streaming south and east toward the sea, and mammoths as well. He says one of his men discovered huge, misshapen footprints not three leagues from East Watch. Rangers in the Shadow Tower have found whole villages abandoned, and at night Sir Dennis says they see fires in the mountains, huge blazes that burn from dusk to dawn. Quarin Halfhand took a captive in the depths of the gorge, and the man swears that Mance Raider is massing all his people in some new secret stronghold is found. 
To what end, the gods only know. Do you think your Uncle Benjamin was the only ranger we've lost this past year? Benjamin, the raven squawked, bobbing his head, bits of egg dribbling from his beak. Benjamin, Benjamin. No, John said. There had been others. Too many. Do you think your brother's war is more important than ours? The old man barked. John chewed his lip. The raven flapped its wings at him. War! 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 It sang. It's not, Mormon told him. God save us, boy. You're not blind. You're not stupid. When dead men come hunting in the night, do you think it matters who sits the Iron Throne? No. John had not thought of it that way. Your Lord Father sent you to us, John. Why? Who can say? Why? 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 The raven called. All I know is that the blood of the first men flows in the veins of the Starks. The first men built the wall, and it said they remember things otherwise forgotten. And that beast of yours, he led us to the whites, warned you of the dead man on the steps. Sir Jeremy would doubtless call that happenstance. Yet Sir Jeremy is dead, and I'm not. Lord Mormon stabbed a chunk of ham with the point of his dagger. I think you were meant to be here, and I want you and that wolf of yours with us when we go beyond the wall. His words sent a chill of excitement down John's back. Beyond the wall? You heard me. I mean to find Ben Stark alive or dead. He chewed and swallowed. I will not sit here, meekly, and wait for the snows and the ice winds. We must know what is happening. This time the Night's Watch will ride in force against the king beyond the wall, the others, or anything else that may be out there. I mean to command them myself. He pointed his dagger at John's chest. By custom, the Lord Commander Stuart is his squire as well. But I do not care to wake every morning wondering if you'd run off again. So I will have an answer from you, John Snow, and I will have it now. Are you a brother of the Night's Watch? Or only a bastard boy who wants to play at war? John Snow straightened himself and took a long, deep breath. Forgive me, Father. Rob, Arya, Bran, forgive me. I cannot help you. He has the truth of it. This is my place. I am yours, my lord. Your man. I swear it. I will not run again. The old bear snorted. Good. Now, go put on your sword. Catelyn. It seemed a thousand years ago that Catelyn Stark had carried her infant son out of River Run, crossing the Tumblestone in a small boat to begin the journey north to Winterfell. And it was across the Tumblestone that they came home now, though the boy wore plate and mail in place of swaddling clothes. 
Rob sat in the bow with Greywind, his hand resting on his direwolf's head as the rowers pulled at their oars. Theon Greyjoy was with him. Her uncle, Brynden, would come behind in the second boat, with the great John and Lord Carstark. Catelyn took a place toward the stern. They shot down the tumblestone, letting the strong current push them past the looming wheel tower. The splash and rumble of the great water wheel within was a sound from her girlhood that brought a sad smile to Catelyn's face. From the sandstone walls of the castle, soldiers and servants shouted down her name, and Rob's, and Winterfell. From every rampart waved the banner of House Tully, a leaping trout silver against a rippling blue and red field. It was a stirring sight, yet it did not lift her heart. She wondered if, indeed, her heart would ever lift again. Oh, Ned! Below the wheel tower, they made a wide turn and knifed through the churning water. The men put their backs into it. The wide arch of the water gate came into view, and she heard the creak of heavy chains as the great iron portcullis was winched upward. It rose slowly as they approached, and Catelyn saw that the lower half of it was red with rust. The bottom foot dripped brown mud on them as they passed underneath. The barbed spikes mere inches above their heads. Catelyn gazed up at the bars and wondered how deep the rust went and how well the portcullis would stand up to a ram and whether it ought to be replaced. Thoughts like that were seldom far from her mind these days. They passed beneath the arch and under the walls, moving from sunlight to shadow and back into sunlight. Boats large and small were tied up all around them, secured to iron rings set in the stone. Her father's guards waited on the water stair with her brother. Sir Edmure Tully was a stocky young man with a shaggy head of auburn hair and a fiery beard. His breastplate was scratched and dented from battle, his blue and red cloak stained by blood and smoke. At his side stood the Lord Titus Blackwood, a hard pike of a man, with close-cropped salt-and-pepper whiskers and a hooked nose. His bright yellow armour was inlaid with jet in elaborate vine and leaf patterns, and a cloak, sewn from raven's feathers, draped his thin shoulders. It had been Lord Titus that led the sortie that plucked her brother from the Lannister camp. "'Bring them in!' Sir Edmure commanded. Three men scrambled down the stairs, knee-deep in the water, and pulled the boat close with long hooks. When Grey Wind bounded out, one of them dropped his pole and lurched back, stumbling and sitting down abruptly in the water. The others laughed, and the man got a sheepish look on his face. Theon Greyjoy vaulted over the side of the boat and lifted Catelyn by the waist, setting her on a dry step above him as the water lapped around his boots. Edmure came down the steps to embrace her. "'Sweet sister!' he murmured hoarsely. He had deep blue eyes and a mouth made for smiles, but he was not smiling now. He looked worn and tired, battered by battle, and haggard from strain. His neck was bandaged where he had taken a wound. Catelyn hugged him fiercely. "'Your grief is mine, Cat,' he said when they broke apart. 
When we heard about Lord Eddard, the Lannisters will pay. I swear it. You will have your vengeance. Will that bring Ned back to me? She said sharply. The wound was still too fresh for softer words. She could not think about Ned now. She would not. It would not do. She had to be strong. All that will keep. I must see father. He awaits you in his solar, Edmure said. Lord Uster is bedridden, my lady, her father's steward explained. When had this good man grown so old and grey? Instructed me to bring you to him at once. I'll take her. Edmure escorted her up the water stair and across the lower bailey, where Patar Baelish and Brandon Stark had once crossed swords for her favour. The massive sandstone walls of the keep loomed above them. As they pushed through a door, between two guardsmen in fish-crest helms, she asked, How bad is he? Dreading the answer, even as she said the words. Edmure's look was sombre. He will not be with us long. The maester say, the pain is constant and grievous. A blind rage filled her. A rage at all the world, at her brother Edmure and her sister Lysa, at the Lannisters, at the maesters, at Ned and her father and the monstrous gods who would take them both away from her. You should have told me, she said. You should have sent me word as soon as you knew. He forbade it. He did not want his enemies to know that he was dying. With a realm so troubled, he feared that if the Lannisters suspected how frail he was, they might attack. Catelyn finished hard. It was your doing, yours, a voice whispered inside her. If you had not taken it upon yourself to seize the dwarf. They climbed the spiral stair in silence. The keep was three-sided, like Riveron itself, and Lord Huster Solar was triangular as well, with a stone balcony that jutted out to the east like the prow of some great sandstone ship. From there the lord of the castle could look down on his walls and battlements, and beyond to where the waters met. They had moved her father's bed out onto the balcony. He likes to sit in the sun and watch the rivers, Edmure explained. Father, see who I've brought. Cat has come to see you. Huster Tully had always been a big man, tall and broad in his youth, portly as he grew older. Now he seemed shrunken. The muscle and meat melted off his bones. Even his face sagged. The last time Catelyn had seen him, his hair and beard had been brown, well streaked with grey. Now they had gone white as snow. His eyes opened to the sound of Edmure's voice. Little cat, he murmured in a voice thin and wispy and racked by pain. My little cat. A tremulous smile touched his face as his hand groped for hers. I watched for you. I shall leave you to talk, her brother said, kissing their lord father gently on the brow before he withdrew. Catelyn knelt and took her father's hand in hers. It was a big hand, but fleshless now, the bones moving loosely under the skin, all the strength gone from it. 
You should have told me, she said. A rider, a raven. Riders are taken, questioned, he answered. Ravens are brought down. <sighs> a spasm of pain took him, and his fingers clutched hers hard. The crabs are in my belly, pinching, <laughs> always pinching, day and night. They have fierce claws, the crabs. Mr. Feynman makes me dream wine, milk of the puppy. I sleep a lot, but I wanted to be awake to see you when you came. I was afraid. When the Lannisters took your brother, the camps all around us, I was afraid I would go before I could see you again. I was afraid. I am here, father, she said, with Rob, my son. He'll want to see you too. Your boy, he whispered. He had my eyes, I remember. He did, and he does. And we brought you Jamie Lannister in irons. River Run is free again, father. Lord Huster smiled. I saw. Last night, when it began, I told them. Had to see. They carried me to the gatehouse. Watch from the battlements. Ah, that was beautiful. The torches came in a wave. I could hear the cries floating across the river. Sweet cries. When that siege tower went up, gods would have died then, and glad. If only I could have seen you children first. Was it your... Boy, who did it? Was it your Rob? Yes, Catelyn said, fiercely proud. It was Rob. And Brynden. Your brother is here as well, my lord. Him? Her father's voice was a faint whisper. The blackfish came back from the vale? Yes. And Lysa? A cold wind moved through his thin white hair. Gods be good. Your sister, did she come as well? He sounded so full of hope and yearning that it was hard to tell the truth. No. I'm sorry. Oh. His face fell, and some light went out of his eyes. I had hoped I, I would... Have liked to see her before. She's with her son in the airy. Lord Huster gave a weary nod. Lord Robert, no. Poor Aaron's gone. I, I remember. Why did she not come with you? She's frightened, my lord. In the airy, she feels safe. She kissed his wrinkled brow. Rob will be waiting. "'Will you see him? And Brynden?' "'Your son,' he whispered. "'Yes, cat's child. He had my eyes, I remember. When he was born. Bring him, yes.' "'And your brother?' Her father glanced out over the rivers. 
blackfish, he said. Has he wed yet, taking some girl to wife? Even on his deathbed, Catelyn thought sadly. He has not wed. You know that, father. Nor will he ever. I told him, commanded him, marry. I was his lord, he knows. My right to make his match. A good match. A red wine. Old house, sweet girl. Pretty. Uh, freckles. Bethany, yes. Poor child. Still waiting. Yes, still. Bethany Redwine wed Lord Rowan years ago. Catelyn reminded him. She has three children by him. Even so, Lord Huster muttered. Even so, spit on the girl, the Redwines. Spit on me, his lord, his brother, that blackfish. I had other offers. Lord Brecken's girl, Waldefrey, any of three, he said. Has he wed? Anyone? Anyone? No one, Catelyn said. Yet he has come many leagues to see you, fighting his way back to River Run. I would not be here now if Sir Brynden had not helped us. He was ever a warrior, her father husked. That he could do. Knights of the gate, yes. He leaned back and closed his eyes, inutterably weary. Send him later. I'll sleep now. Too sick to fight. Send him up later. The blackfish. Catelyn kissed him gently, smoothed his hair, and left him there, in the shade of his keep. With his rivers flowing beneath, he was asleep before she left the solar. When she returned to the lower bailey, Sir Brynden Tully stood on the water stair with wet boots, talking with the captain of River Run's guards. He came to her at once. Is he dying, she said, as we feared. Her uncle's craggy face showed his pain plain. He ran his fingers through his thick grey hair. Will he see me? She nodded. He says he is too sick to fight. Brynden Blackfish chuckled. <laughs> I am too old a soldier to believe that. Huster will be chiding me about that red wine girl, even as we light his funeral pyre, dummy his bones. Catelyn smiled, knowing it was true. I do not see Rob. He went with Greyjoy to the hall, I believe. Theon Greyjoy was seated on a bench in River Run's great hall, enjoying a horn of ale and regaling her father's garrison with an account of the slaughter in the Whispering Woods. Some tried to flee, but we pinched the valley shot at both ends, and we rode out of the darkness with sword and lance. The Lannisters must have thought the others themselves were on them when that wolf of Rob's got in among them. I saw him tear one man's arm from his shoulder, and their horses went mad at the scent of him. <laughs> I couldn't tell you how many men were thrown. Theon, she interrupted, where might I find my son? Uh, Lord Rob went to visit the godswood, my lady. 
It was what Ned would have done. He is his father's son, as much as mine, I must remember. Oh, gods, Ned! She found Rob beneath a green canopy of leaves, surrounded by tall redwoods and great old elms, kneeling before the heart tree. A slender weirwood, with a face more sad than fierce. His long sword was before him, the point thrust in the earth. His gloved hands clasped around the hilt. Around him others knelt. Grey John Umber, Rickard Carstark, Mage Mormont, Galbert Glover, and more. Even Titus Blackwood was among them. The great raven cloak fanned out behind him. These are the ones who keep the old guards, she realized. She asked herself what guards she kept these days, and could not find an answer. It would not do to disturb them at their prayers. The guards must have their due, even cruel guards, who would take Ned from her, and her lord father as well. So Catelyn waited. The river wind moved through the high branches, and she could see the wheel tower to her right, ivy crawling up its side. As she stood there, all the memories came flooding back to her. Her father had taught her to ride among these trees, and that was the elm that Edmure had fallen from when he broke his arm. And over there, beneath that bower, she and Lysa had played at kissing with Pattaya. She had not thought of that in years. How young! They had all been. She no older than Sansa, Lysa younger than Arya, and Patar younger still, yet eager. The girls had traded him between them, serious and giggling by turns. It came back to her so vividly she could almost feel his sweaty fingers on her shoulders and taste the mint on his breath. There was always mint growing in the godswood, and Patar had liked to chew it. He'd been such a bold little boy, always in trouble. He tried to put his tongue in my mouth, Catelyn had confessed to her sister afterwards when they were alone. He did it with me too, Lysa had whispered, shy and breathless. I liked it. Rub got to his feet slowly and sheathed his sword, and Catelyn found herself wondering whether her son had ever kissed a girl in the God's Wood. Surely he must have. She had seen Jane Poole giving him moist-eyed glances, and some of the serving girls, even ones as old as eighteen. He had ridden in battle, and killed men with a sword. Surely he had been kissed. There were tears in her eyes. She wiped them away, angrily. Mother, Rub said when he saw her standing there, we must call a council. There are things to be decided. Your grandfather would like to see you, she said. Rub, he's very sick. Sir Edmure, tell me. I'm sorry, mother, for Lord Huster and for you. Yet first we must meet. We've had word from the south. Renly Baratheon has claimed his brother's crown. Renly? She said, shocked. I had thought, surely it would be Lord Stannis. So did we all, my lady, Galbert Glover said. The War Council convened in the Great Hall, at four long trestle tables arranged in a broken square. Lord Hoster was too weak to attend, asleep on his balcony, 
dreaming of the sun on the rivers of his youth. Edmure sat in the high seat of the Tollies, with Brynden Blackfish at his side, and his father's bannermen arrayed to right and left and along the side-tables. Word of the victory at River Run had spread to the fugitive lords of the Trident, drawing them back. Carol Vance came in, a lord now, his father dead beneath the golden tooth. Sir Mark Piper was with him, and they brought a Derry, Sir Raymond's son, a lad no older than Bran. Lord Jonas Bracken arrived from the ruins of Stonehenge, glowering and blustering, and took a seat as far from Titus Blackwood as the tables would permit. The northern lord sat opposite, with Catelyn and Rob facing her brother across the tables. They were fewer. The great John sat at Rob's left hand, and then Theon Greyjoy, Galbert Glover, and Lady Mormont were to the right of Catelyn. Lord Rickard Carstark, gaunt and hollow-eyed in his grief, took his seat like a man in a nightmare, his long beard uncombed and unwashed. He had left two sons dead in the Whispering Wood, and there was no word of the third, his eldest, who had led the Carstark's peers against Tywin Lannister on the Green Fork. The arguing raged on late into the night. Each lord had a right to speak, and speak they did, and shout, and curse, and reason, and cajole, and jest, and bargain, and slam tankards on the table, and threaten, and walk out, and return sullen or smiling. Catelyn sat and listened to it all. Roose Bolton had reformed the battered remnants of their other host at the mouth of the causeway. Sir Helmin Tallhart and Walder Frey still held the twins. Lord Tywin's army had crossed the trident and was making for Harrenhal, and there were two kings in the realm. Two kings and no agreement. Many of the Lord's bannermen wanted to march on Harrenhal at once, to meet Lord Tywin and end Lannister power for all time. Young, hot-tempered Mark Piper urged the strike west, at Castley Rock instead. Still others counseled patience. Riveron sat athwart the Lannister supply lines, Jason Malister pointed out. Let them bide their time denying Lord Tywin fresh levies and provisions while they strengthened their defences and rested their weary troops. Lord Blackwood would have none of it. They should finish the work they began in the Whispering Wood, march to Harrenhal, and bring Roose Bolton's army down as well. What Blackwood urged, Bracken opposed, as ever. Lord Jonas Bracken rose to insist they ought to pledge their fealty to King Renly, and move south to join their might to his. Renly is not the king, Rob said. It was the first time her son had spoken. Like his father, he knew how to listen. You cannot mean to hold to Joffrey, my lord, Galbert Glover said. He put your father to death. That makes him evil, Rob replied. I do not know that it makes Renly king. Joffrey is still Robert's eldest true-born son, so the throne is rightfully his, by all the laws of the realm. Were he to die, and I mean to see that he does, he has a younger brother. Tommen is next in line, after Joffrey. Tommen is no less a Lannister, Sir Mark Piper snapped. As you say, said Rob, troubled. 
Yet if neither one is king, still how could it be Lord Renly? He's Robert's younger brother. Bran can't be Lord of Winterfall before me, and Renly can't be king before Lord Stannis. Lady Mormont agreed. Lord Stannis has the better claim. Renly is crowned, said Mark Piper. Highgarden and Storm's End support his claim, and the Dornishman will not be laggardly. If Winterfell and River Run add their strength to his, he will have five of the seven great houses behind him. Six, if the errands bestir themselves. Six against the rock. My lords, within the year, we will have all their heads on pikes, the Queen and the Boy King, Lord Tywin the Imp, the Kingslayer, Sir Kevin, all of them. That is what we shall win if we join with King Renly. What does Lord Stannis have against that, that we should cast it all aside? The right, said Rob stubbornly. Catelyn thought he sounded eerily like his father, as he said it. So you mean us to declare for Stannis, said Ed Muir. I don't know, said Rob. I prayed to know what to do, but the gods did not answer. The Lannisters killed my father for a traitor, and we know that was a lie, but if Joffrey is the lawful king, and we fight against him, we will be traitors. My lord father would urge caution, aged Sir Stevron said, with a weasley smile of a fray. Wait, let these two kings play their game of thrones. When they are done fighting, we shall bend our knee to the victor or oppose him as we choose. With Renly arming, likely Lord Tywin would welcome a truce, and the safe return of his son. Noble lords, allow me to go to him to Harrenhal, and arrange good terms and ransoms. A roar of outrage drowned out his voice. Craven! The great John thundered. Begging for a truce will make us seem weak, declared Lady Marmont. "'Ransoms be damned, we must not give up the Kingslayer,' shouted Rickard Carstock. "'Why not a peace?' Catelyn asked. The lords looked at her, but it was Rob's eyes she felt, his and his alone. "'My lady, they murdered my lord father, your husband,' he said grimly. He unsheathed his longsword and laid it on the table before him, the bright steel on the rough wood.' This is the only peace I have for Lannisters. The great John bellowed his approval, and other men added their voices, shouting and drawing swords and pounding their fists on the table. Catelyn waited until they had quieted. My lords, she said then, Lord Eddard was your liege, but I shared his bed. I bore his children. Do you think... I love him any less than you. Her voice almost broke with her grief. But Catelyn took a long breath and steadied herself. Rob, if that sword could bring him back, I should never let you sheathe it until Ned stood at my side once more. But he is gone, and a hundred whispering woods will not change that. Ned is gone and Darren Hornwood, and Lord Carstock's valiant sons, and many other good men besides, and none of them will return to us. Must we have more death still? You are a woman, my lady, 
the great John rumbled in his deep voice. Women do not understand these things. You are the gentle sex, said Lord Carstock, with the lines of grief fresh on his face. A man has a need for vengeance. Give me Cersei Lannister, Lord Carstock, and you would see how gentle a woman can be, Catelyn replied. Perhaps I do not understand tactics and strategy, but I understand futility. We went to war when Lannister armies were ravaging the Riverlands, and Ned was a prisoner, falsely accused of treason. We fought to defend ourselves and to win my lord's freedom. Well, the one is done, and the other forever beyond our reach. I will mourn for Ned until the end of my days, but I must think of the living. I want my daughters back, and the Queen holds them still. If I must trade our four Lannisters for their two Starks, I will call that a bargain and thank the gods. I want you safe, Rob, ruling at Winterfell from your father's seat. I want you to live your life to kiss a girl and wed a woman and father a son. I want to write an end to this. I want to go home, my lords, and weep for my husband. The hall was very quiet when Catelyn finished speaking. Peace, said her uncle Brynden. Peace is sweet, my lady, but on what terms? It's no good hammering your sword into a plowshare if you must forge it again on the morrow. What did Turin and my Eddard die for if I am to return to Carhold with nothing but their bones? asked Rickard Carstark. I, said Lord Brecon, Grigor Clegane laid waste to my fields, slaughtered my small folk, and left Stonehenge a smoking ruin. Am I now to bend the knee to the ones who sent him? What have we fought for, if we are to put all back as it was before? Lord Blackwood agreed, to Catelyn's surprise and dismay. And if we do make peace with King Joffrey, are we not then traitorous to King Renly? What if the stag should prevail against the lion? Where would that leave us? Whatever you may decide for yourselves, I shall never call Lannister my king, declared Mark Piper. Nor I, yelled the little dairy boy. I never will. Again the shouting began. Catelyn sat despairing. She had come so close, she thought. They had almost listened. Almost. But the moment was gone. There would be no peace, no chance to heal, no safety. She looked at her son, watched him as he listened to the Lord's debate, frowning, troubled, yet wedded to his war. He had pledged himself to marry a daughter of Walder Frey, but she saw his true bride plain before her now, the sword he had laid on the table. Catelyn was thinking of her girls, wondering if she would ever see them again, when the great John lurched to his feet. "'My lords!' he shouted, his voice booming off the rafters. "'Here is what I say to these two kings,' he spat. "'Renly Baratheon is nothing to me, nor Stannis neither. Why should they rule over me and mine from some flowery seat in High Garden or Dawn? What do they know of the wall or the wolfswood? or the barrows of the first men. Even their guards are wrong. The others take the Lannisters, too. I've had a bellyful of them. 
He reached back over his shoulder and drew his immense two-handed greatsword. Why shouldn't we rule ourselves again? It was the dragons we married, and the dragons are all dead. He pointed at Rub with a blade. There sits the only king. I mean to bow my knee to, my lords, he thundered. The king in the north. And he knelt and laid his sword at her son's feet. I'll have peace on those terms, Lord Carstock said. They can keep their red castle and their iron chair as well. He eased his longsword from its scabbard. The king in the north, he said, kneeling beside the great John. Mage Mormont rose. The king of winter, she declared, and laid her spike mace beside the swords. And the river lords were rising too, Blackwood and Bracken and Malister, Hazes who had never been ruled from Winterfell. Yet Catelyn watched them rise and draw their blades, bending their knees and shouting the old words that had not been heard in the realm for more than three hundred years since Aegon the Dragon had come to make the Seven Kingdoms one. Yet now were heard again, ringing from the timbers of her father's hall. The king in the north! The king in the north! The king in the north! Daenerys The land was red and dead and parched, and good wood was hard to come by. Her foragers returned with gnarled cottonwoods, purple brush, sheaves of brown grass. They took the two straightest trees, hacked the limbs and branches from them, skinned off their bark, and split them, laying the logs in a square. Its center they filled with straw, brush, bark shavings, and bundles of dry grass. Ricardo chose a stallion from the small herd that remained to them. He was not the equal of Carl Drogo's red, but few horses were. In the center of the square, Ego fed him a withered apple and dropped him in an instant with an axe blow between the eyes. Bound hand and foot, Miramar's door watched from the dust with disquiet in her black eyes. It's not enough to kill a horse, she told Danny. By itself, the blood is nothing. You do not have the words to make a spell, nor the wisdom to find them. Do you think blood magic is a game for children? You call me Meiji, as if it were a curse. But all it means is wise. You are a child with a child's ignorance. Whatever you mean to do, it will not work. Loose me from these bonds, and I will help you. I am tired of the mage's braying, Danny told Joga. He took his whip to her, and after that the god's wife kept silent. Over the carcass of the horse, they built a platform of hewn lugs, trunks of smaller trees and limbs from the greater, and the thickest, straightest branches they could find. They laid the wood east to west from sunrise to sunset. On the platform they piled Carl Drogo's treasures, his great tent, his painted vests, his saddles and harness, the whip his father had given him when he came to manhood, the arak he had used to slay Carl Ogo and his son, a mighty dragonbone bow. Ego would have added the weapons Drogo's blood riders had given Danny for bride gifts as well, but she forbade it. Those are mine, she told them and I mean to keep them. 
Another layer of brush was piled about the cow's treasures, and bundles of dried grass scattered over them. Sir Jorah Mormont drew her aside as the sun was creeping toward its zenith. Uh, Princess, he began. Why do you call me that? Danny challenged him. My brother Viserys was your king, was he not? He was, my lady. Viserys is dead. I am his heir, the last blood of House Targaryen. Whatever was his is mine now. My queen, Sir Jorah said, going to one knee. My sword that was his is yours, Daenerys, and my heart as well. That never belonged to your brother. I am only a knight, and I have nothing to offer you but exile. But I beg you, hear me. Let Carl Drogo go. You shall not be alone. I promise you no man shall take you to Vez Dothrak unless you wish to go. You need not join the Doshkleen. Come east with me, Geeti, Kars, the Jade Sea, Ashai by the Shadow. We will see all the wonders yet unseen, and drink what wines the gods see fit to serve us. Please, Kalishi, I know what you intend. Do not. Do not. I must, Danny told him. She touched his face fondly, sadly. You do not understand. Well, I understand that you loved him, Sir Jorah said in a voice thick with despair. I loved my lady wife once. Yet I did not die with her. You are my queen. My sword is yours. But do not ask me to stand aside as you climb on Drogo's pyre. I will not watch you burn. Is that what you fear? Danny kissed him lightly on his broad forehead. I am not such a child as that, sweet sir. You do not mean to die with him? You swear it, my queen? I swear it, she said in the common tongue of the seven kingdoms that by rights were hers. The third level of the platform was woven of branches no thicker than a finger and covered with dry leaves and twigs. They laid them north to south, from ice to fire, and piled them high with soft cushions and sleeping silks. The sun had begun to lower towards the west by the time they were done. Danny called the Dothraki around her. Fewer than a hundred were left. How many had Aegon started with, she wondered. It did not matter. You will be my Kalisar she told them. I see the faces of slaves. I free you. Take off your colors. Go if you wish. No one shall harm you. If you stay, it will be as brothers and sisters, husbands and wives. The black eyes watched her, wary, expressionless. I see the children, women, the wrinkled faces of the aged. I was a child yesterday, Today I am a woman. Tomorrow I will be old. To each of you I say, Give me your hands and your hearts, and there will always be a place for you. She turned to the three young warriors of her cars. Jogo, to you I give the silver-handled whip that was my bride gift, and name you Ko, and ask your oath, that you will live and die as blood of my blood, riding at my side to keep me safe from harm. Jogo took the whip from her hands, but his face was confused. 
Khaleesi, he said, hesitantly. This is not done. It would shame me to be blood rider to a, a woman. Ego, Danny called, paying no attention to Jogo's words. If I look back, I am lost. But to you, I give the dragonbone bow that was my bride gift. It was double-curved, shiny black, and exquisite, taller than she was. I name you Ko, and ask your oath that you should live and die as blood of my blood, riding at my side to keep me safe from harm. Ego accepted the bow with lowered eyes. I cannot say these words. Only a man can need a Kalasar or name a Ko. Rakharo, Danny said, turning away from the refusal. You shall have the great Arak that was my bride gift, with hilt and blade chased in gold. And you too I name my Ko, and ask you to live and die as blood of my blood, riding at my side to keep me safe from harm. You are Khaleesi, Rakara said, taking the Arak. I shall ride at your side to Vase Dathrak, beneath the mother of mountains, and keep you safe from harm until you take your place with the crones of the Dashkarleen. No more can I promise. She nodded as calmly as if she had not heard his answer, and turned to the last of her champions. Sir Jorah Mormont, she said, first and greatest of my knights, I have no bride gift to give you, but I swear to you one day— you shall have for my hands a longsword like none the world has ever seen, dragon-forged and made of valyrian steel, and I would ask for your oath as well. You have it, my queen, Sir Jorah said, kneeling to lay his sword at her feet. I vow to serve you, to obey you, and to die for you if need be. Whatever may come, whatever may come, I shall hold you to that oath. I pray you never regret the giving of it. Danny lifted him to his feet. Stretching on her toes to reach his lips, she kissed the knight gently and said, You are the first of my queen's guard. She could feel the eyes of the Kalasar on her as she entered her tent. The Dothraki were muttering and giving her strange sideways looks from the corners of their dark almond eyes. They thought her mad, Danny realized. Perhaps she was. She would know soon enough. If I look back, I am lost. Her bath was scalding hot when Iri helped her into the tub, but Danny did not flinch or cry aloud. She liked the heat. It made her feel clean. Jiqui had scented the water with the oil she had found in the market in Vez Dothrak, the steam rose moist and fragrant. Doria washed her hair and combed it out, working loose the mats and tangles. Iri scrubbed her back. Danny closed her eyes and let the smell and the warmth enfold her. She could feel the heat soaking through the soreness between her thighs. She shuddered when it entered her, and her pain and stiffness seemed to dissolve. She floated. When she was clean, her handmaids helped her from the water. Iri and Jiqui fanned her dry, while Doria brushed her hair 
until it fell like a river of liquid silver down her back. They scented her with spice flour and cinnamon, a touch on each wrist, behind her ears, on the tips of her milk-heavy breasts. The last dab was for her sex. Iris' finger felt as light and cool as a lover's kiss as it slid softly up between her lips. Afterward, Danny sent them all away, so she might prepare Carl Drogo for his final ride into the Nightlands. She washed his body clean and brushed and oiled his hair, running her fingers through it for the last time, feeling the weight of it, remembering the first time she had touched it, the night of their wedding ride. His hair had never been cut. How many men could die with their hair uncut? She buried her face in it and inhaled the dark fragrance of the oils. He smelled like grass and warm earth, like smoke and semen and horses. He smelled like Drogo. Forgive me, son of my life, she thought. Forgive me for all I have done and all I must do. I paid the price, my star, but it was too high, too high. Danny braided his hair and slid the silver rings onto his moustache and hung the bells one by one, so many bells, gold and silver and bronze, bells so his enemies would hear him coming and grow weak with fear. She dressed him in horsehair leggings and high boots, buckling a belt heavy with gold and silver medallions about his waist. Over his scarred chest she slipped a painted vest, old and faded, the one Drogo had loved best. For herself, she chose loose sand-silk trousers, sandals that laced halfway up her legs, and a vest like Drogo's. The sun was going down when she called them back to carry the body to the pyre. The Dothraki watched in silence as Jogo and Ego bore him from the tent. Danny walked behind them. They laid him down, on his cushions and silks, his head towards the mother of mountains far to the northeast. Oil, she commanded, and they brought forth the jars and poured them over the pyre, soaking the silks and the brush and the bundles of dry grass, until the oil trickled from beneath the logs and the air was rich with fragrance. Bring my eggs, Danny commanded her handmaids. Something in her voice made them run. Sir Jorah took her arm. My queen, Drogo, will have no use for dragon's eggs in the nightlands. Better to sell them in a shy. Sell one, and we can buy a ship to take us back to the free cities. Sell all three, and you'll be a wealthy woman all your days. They were not given to me to sell, Danny told him. She climbed the pyre herself to place the eggs around her sun and stars. The black beside his heart under his arm, the green beside his head, his braid coiled around it, the cream and gold down between his legs. When she kissed him for the last time, Danny could taste the sweetness of the oil on his lips. As she climbed down off the pyre, she noticed Miramaz's door watching her. You are mad, the god's wife said hoarsely. Is it so far from madness to wisdom? Danny asked. Sir Jorah, take this Meiji 
and bind her to the pyre. To, to the... my queen, no, hear me. Do as I say. Still he hesitated, until her anger flared. You swore to obey me, whatever might come. Ricardo, help him. The god's wife did not cry out, as they dragged her to Karl Drogo's pyre and staked it down amidst his treasures. Danny poured the oil over the woman's head herself. I thank you, Miramazdur, she said, for the lessons you have taught me. You will not hear me scream, Mira responded as the oil dripped from her hair and soaked her clothing. I will, Danny said, but it's not your screams I want, only your life. I remember what you told me. Only death can pay for life. Miramazdur opened her mouth but made no reply. As she stepped away, Danny saw that the contempt was gone from the mage's flat black eyes. In its place was something that might have been fear. Then there was nothing to be done but watch the sun and look for the first star. When a horse lord dies, his horse is slain with him, so he might ride proud into the nightlands. The bodies are burned beneath the open sky, and the carl rises on his fiery steed to take his place among the stars. The more fiercely the man burned in life, the brighter his star will shine in the darkness. Jogo spied it first. There, he said, in a hushed voice. Danny looked and saw it, low in the east. The first star was a comet, burning red, blood red, fire red, the dragon's tail. She could not have asked for a stronger sign. Danny took the torch from Ego's hand and thrust it between the logs. The oil took the fire at once, the brush and dried grass a heartbeat later. Tiny flames went darting up the wood like swift red mice, skating over the oil and leaping from bark to branch to leaf. A rising heat puffed at her face, soft and sudden as a lover's breath, but in seconds it had grown too hot to bear. Danny stepped backward. The wood crackled louder and louder. Miramazdur began to sing in a shrill, ululating voice. The flames whirled and writhed, racing each other up the platform. The dusk shimmered as the air itself seemed to liquefy from the heat. Danny heard lugs split and crack. The fires swept over Miramazdur. Her song grew louder, shriller. Then she gasped again and again, and her song became a shuddering wail, thin and high and full of agony. And now the flames reached her drogo, and now they were all around him. His clothing took fire, and for an instant the carl was clad in wisps of floating orange silk and tendrils of curling smoke, grey and greasy. Danny's lips parted, and she found herself holding her breath. Part of her wanted to go to him, as Sir Jorah had feared, to rush into the flames, to beg for his forgiveness, and take him inside her one last time, the fire melting the flesh from their bones until they were as one forever. She could smell the odour of burning flesh, no different from horse flesh roasting in a fire pit. The pyre roared in the deepening dusk like some great beast, drowning out the fainter sounds of Miramazdur's screaming and sending up long tongues of flame 
to lick at the belly of the night. As the smoke grew thicker, the Dothraki backed away, coughing. Huge orange gouts of fire unfurled their banners in that hellish wind, the logs hissing and cracking, glowing cinders rising on the smoke to float away into the dark like so many newborn fireflies. The heat beat at the air with great red wings, driving the Dothraki back, driving off even Mormont. But Danny stood her ground. She was the blood of the dragon, and the fire was in her. She had sensed the truth of it long ago, Danny thought, as she took a step closer to the conflagration, but the brazier had not been hot enough. The flames writhed before her, like the women who had danced at her wedding, whirling and singing and spinning their yellow and orange and crimson veils, fearsome to behold, yet lovely, so lovely, alive with heat. Danny opened her arms to them, her skin flushed and glowing. This is a wedding, too, she thought. Miramaz Dur had fallen silent. The god's wife thought her a child. But children grow, and children learn. Another step, and Danny could feel the heat of the sand on the soles of her feet, even through her sandals. Sweat ran down her thighs and between her breasts, and in rivulets over her cheeks, where tears had once run. Sir Jorah was shouting behind her, but he did not matter any more. Only the fire mattered. The flames were so beautiful, the loveliest thing she had ever seen, each one a sorcerer robed in yellow and orange and scarlet, swirling long, smoky cloaks. She saw crimson fire lions and great yellow serpents and unicorns made of pale blue flame. She saw fish and foxes and monsters, wolves and bright birds and flowering trees, each more beautiful than the last. She saw a horse, a great grey stallion, limbed in smoke, its flowing mane a nimbus of blue flame. Yes, my love, my sun and stars, yes, mount now, ride now. Her vest had begun to smolder. So Danny shrugged it off and let it fall to the ground. The painted leather burst into sudden flame as she skipped closer to the fire, her breast bare to the blaze, streams of milk flowing from her red and swollen nipples. Now, she thought, now. And for an instant, she glimpsed Karl Drogo before her, mounted on his smoky stallion, a flaming lash in his hand. He smiled and the whip snaked down at the pyre, hissing. She heard a crack, a sound of shattering stone. The platform of wood and brush and grass began to shift and collapse in upon itself. Bits of burning wood slid down at her. Danny was showered with ash and cinders, and something else came crashing down, bouncing and rolling to land at her feet. A chunk of curved rock, pale and veined with gold, broken and smoking. The roaring filled the world. Yet dimly through the firefall, Danny heard women shriek, and children cry out in wonder. Only death can pay for life. 
and there came a second crack, loud and sharp as thunder, and the smoke stirred and whirled around her, and the pyre shifted, the logs exploding as the fire touched their secret hearts. She heard the screams of frightened horses, and the voices of the Dothraki raised in shouts of fear and terror, and Sajara calling her name and cursing. No, she wanted to shout to him, No, my good knight, do not fear for me. The fire is mine. I am Daenerys Stormborn, daughter of dragons, bride of dragons, mother of dragons. Don't you see? Don't you see? With a belch of flame and smoke that reached thirty feet into the sky, the pyre collapsed and came down around her. Unafraid, Danny stepped forward into the firestorm, calling to her children. The third crack was as loud and sharp as the breaking of the world. When the fire died at last, and the ground became cool enough to walk upon, Sir Jorah Mormont found her amidst the ashes, surrounded by blackened logs and bits of glowing ember and the burnt bones of man and woman and stallion. She was naked, covered with soot, her clothes turned to ash, her beautiful hair all crisped away. Yet she was unhurt. The cream and gold dragon was suckling at her left breast, the green and bronze at the right. Her arms cradled them close. The black and scarlet beast was draped across her shoulders, its long, sinuous neck coiled under her chin. When it saw Jorah, it raised its head and looked at him with eyes as red as coals. Wordless, the knight fell to his knees. The men of her cars came up behind him. Jogo was the first to lay his arrack at her feet. "'Blood of my blood,' he murmured, pushing his face to the smoking earth. "'Blood of my blood,' she heard Ego echo. "'Blood of my blood,' Rakaro shouted. And after them came a handmaids, and then the others, all the Dothraki men and women and children, and Danny had only to look at their eyes to know that they were hers, now, today, and tomorrow, and forever. Hers, as they had never been Drogo's. As Daenerys Targaryen rose to her feet, her black hissed, pale smoke venting from its mouth and nostrils. The other two pulled away from her breasts and added their voices to the call, translucent wings unfolding and stirring the air. And for the first time, in hundreds of years, the night came alive with the music of dragons. This is Roy Dotrice. We hope you've enjoyed this production of A Game of Thrones, A Song of Fire and Ice, Book One, by George R. R. Martin. To find out more about the complete Books on Tape catalogue of unabridged audiobooks, call our customer service department at the number on this package, 
or visit us online at booksontape.com. A Game of Thrones, A Song of Fire and Ice, Book One. Copyright 1996 by George R. R. Martin. Published by arrangement with Random House Audio Publishing Group, a division of Random House Incorporated. Production copyright 2003, Random House Inc. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.